Happy Halloween, horror fans, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid the films that we review on this podcast. This is not only our first episode, but it's also our Halloween special. I am your host, Jay of the Dead, and I'm podcasting from Salt Lake City, Utah. I've been a film critic online and in the newspaper for the past seven years, and I've been podcasting about film for about three and a half years now, so you may know me as the former host and creator of the weekly horror movie podcast and the host and creator of Horror Metropolis. Now, both of those podcasts were originally hosted on the Horror Palace Network, but when Horror Palace stopped hosting those shows, they were no longer available, and so I was too proud of that work to just let it not exist anywhere, so went ahead and posted all 36 episodes here on HorrorMoviePodcast.com, and I just want to thank Midnight Corey, uh, who is now the owner of the Weekly Horror Movie Podcast. I want to thank him for his permission and posting that. And so you can catch those shows there. Now, to be clear, this show, the Horror Movie Podcast, which we're on right now, it is not the same as the Weekly Horror Movie Podcast. I know the title is similar, but anyway, this is kind of the third incarnation or the third attempt at a horror podcast. So as the father of those two shows, you might consider this another sibling, the freaky third child. So I I just want to, again, just thank everyone for listening and, and for tuning into this first show and Without any further hesitation, I want to uh, introduce my two co-hosts, as they are exceptional. So first, Wolfman Josh Legary has been a lifelong horror fan with particular interest in classic monsters, murder mysteries, and the 80s slashers. And as a teenager, Wolfman wrote his first feature screenplay, which was a slasher, and then he followed that up by a werewolf screenplay a few years later. And though the Wolfman says that neither script was good enough to really take out of the desk drawer to show anyone. He said that making a feature-length horror film is still very much on his bucket list because he is a big-time documentary filmmaker now. And um, early in his career, you should know that he actually worked on some low-budget independent film, including several indie horror flicks. So he's got legit horror-making, filmmaking cred here. But Josh also directed two horror comedy shorts early on, including an award-winning zombie flick uh which which sounds really awesome it's a short film and then there's another short featuring a ferocious abominable snowman (laughs) and uh wolfman's previous horror podcasting experience includes hosting with stints on some of the horror podcasting legends as far as we're concerned he was a co-host on land of the creeps with greg amortis haddonfield hatchet and dr shock and he was also a part of Horror Metropolis with Bill Shetty, Dr. Shock, Terror Tovey, and yours truly, Jay of the Dead. And he was also part of the Drive-In of the Damned with Katie Rotz. And now I'm very proud to have him join me again here on Horror Movie Podcast. Welcome, Wolfman Josh. <laughs> How's it going, Jay? <laughs> good, that, so that was my impression of Greg Amortis' howl that he would do for me and Bill Shetty saying... How's it going, Jay? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, And Josh, you are a hardcore horror fan, and here's how I know that. Um, today, as we record this, it's actually his wedding anniversary, and he's here <laughs> with us. So very brave indeed. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I was responsible for our last rescheduling, so I could not miss another one because of my dumb uh 
failure to look at a calendar when I agreed to things. So <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised you don't have that date memorized somewhere in your head. But that's easy, <laughs> easy. That's, that's hilarious. Burn. Okay. Well, and now for our next co-host. I cannot believe we got this guy to agree to do a podcast with us as an official host. It's Dr. Kyle Bishop, a.k.a. Dr. Walking Dead, and he is a literal zombie expert. He is the author of American Zombie Gothic, which is a book about the rise and fall and rise of the Walking Dead in popular culture. Dr. Walking Dead is a professor and department chair at Southern Utah University, where he teaches a number of subjects, including Film studies. Dr. Walking Dead has presented and published a variety of critical essays and articles on films like Metropolis, Night of the Living Dead, Fight Club, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Dawn of the Dead, of course, Frankenstein, The Birds, Zombieland, and The Walking Dead. And I'm happy to report that he is currently working on a follow-up book to American Zombie Gothic. And Dr. Walking Dead has been a part of a number of horror podcasts. I'm sure... There are more than I'm even aware of, but I know that he has had a stint as a reviewer on Zombie Reckoning, and he has also been a guest on Horror Metropolis, and he was even on the Horror Palace Network special episode number six when we reviewed the best horror movies of the 80s and 90s, and so now we're proud to have him as an official host on Horror Movie Podcast, and so we welcome Dr. Walking Dead. Hey. I don't have a cool animal sound effect. (laughs) (laughs) Right, maybe. No way, man. That means you've lost. (laughs) I'm a a winner. That's right. Yes, I'm glad to be here. It's uh, I I like to try to keep one foot in kind of the stuffy formal academic world, and then the other foot in more of a realistic, cool, hip, and groovy world uh, (laughs) where we can talk about real things and things that are fan based and popular. So, so yeah, I, I, a lot of my colleagues sneer a little bit that I that I write about horror and zombies in particular. But you know, got me tenure, got me chair. So, <laughs> so take that. So take that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we we're glad you're here, and we're certainly honored to have you. And uh, listeners out there, we just want to apologize. There's kind of a lot of talking on this episode. I mean, up front, this is our first show, and we wanted to give you an explanation about who we are and what this podcast is and so forth. And so, you know, and I know in the same feed, if you've subscribed to it, you've already received those other two podcasts. So you're like, what is going on? But um, I'm going to tell you the purpose of this first episode. Number one, we're going to have an in-depth discussion about the horror genre in our relationship to it as fans and where we come down on some controversial questions. And so you'll get to know your host very well Um, by listening to our answers to some of these tricky questions. And number two, each of us will also be counting down our top 10 all-time favorite horror movies. They're not necessarily the greatest horror films ever made, in our opinion. Or maybe they are, but these are our favorites. That's the criteria that we went by. And then we're also going to introduce you to our recommendation segments, where each of us has chosen a horror subgenre to focus on, so we can tell you about those movies. Okay, so the format for Horror Movie Podcast is very simple. This is going to be a bi-weekly podcast, which means that you'll get new episodes every other Friday. And for these bi-weekly releases every other Friday, you're going to get two types of shows. Our regular episodes and then some hodgepodge episodes. So for regular episodes, they'll be at least two hours long. 
we'll have all three hosts and maybe even an occasional guest. We're going to discuss a certain theme or topic in horror, and we'll have two in-depth feature movie reviews on horror movies that will help us explore whatever the theme is for that particular episode. And then we're also going to give you our specialty recommendation segments, which technically aren't always going to be recommendations, but we'll talk about that more later. And so this format that I just described is our main episode format. But because the three of us have such insane schedules, you'll probably only get this type of full-blown regular episode every month or two. But don't worry about that because, like I said, it's still a bi-weekly podcast. So when we're not bringing you normal episodes, you're going to get this hodgepodge of horror coverage where we're going to kind of like Frankenstein together a bunch of different segments and reviews, interviews, horror news coverage, I mean, you name it, anything and everything that's horror-related, basically. And you can expect a ton of movie reviews, especially on mostly newer horror flicks. And we're also going to cover some old-school stuff as well. And you should know that these segments will probably be recorded at different times for these hodgepodge shows, so it won't be all in one sitting, and portions of these will be solo cast recordings by each of the hosts here, meaning not just me, not just Jay of the Dead, but also my co-hosts. And these hodgepodge episodes might seem a little weird and random to you at first, because like I said, they're all Frankenstein together, but we think you're going to quickly come to love this format as well. Now, here's something that I, Jay of the Dead, want to commit to doing for our listeners. Now, I see a new movie release in theaters every single Friday. So, anytime that there's a mainstream horror release, and what I mean by that is any horror movie that's playing in theaters around me, basically, then I'm going to come home afterward that same Friday night, and I'm going to record a review with no spoilers. I'll give you a full review and the verdict of whether you should go see this new horror movie in theaters. And so these are probably going to be pretty short little bonus episodes, but I'll commit to releasing these to you every Saturday morning after a new major horror release is in theaters. And so if my co-hosts happen to see the movie and they want to join me on these recordings, then they certainly can, and it'll be all the better. And then finally, once in a while, we're going to bring you epic podcast episodes that we're going to call Monster Casts. And actually, this very first episode that you're listening to right now is a monster cast, since it's, it's going to come out to be about five hours long, I think. But in January, when we bring you the best horror movies of the 1970s, that will be another monster cast as well. So watch for our monster casts. You're going to love those for sure. So in short, Horror Movie Podcast is a bi-weekly show. And it releases every other Friday. And occasionally you're going to get these short little Saturday morning bonus reviews of whatever horror movies are brand new in theaters. So without further delay, let's go ahead and jump into episode one of Horror Movie Podcast. Okay, now guys, here here's the first question. And um, I'm excited to launch this at you guys. <laughs> so... A lot of horror movie podcasts, you guys, they battle over what horror is. There's this huge controversy about like the definition of horror and what films should fall in the genre and what films do not. And so I just want you to tell listeners, how do you personally define the horror genre? And I guess what criteria do you use to classify a movie as horror? And let's kick it over to Dr. Walking Dead. 
Well, this is, this is a can of worms. Uh, <laughs> genre definition gets everybody uptight from just your, your run-of-the-mill fan to your, your uh, starched academic. And horror is one of the complicated ones. It, it's kind of like people know horror when they see it, but horror is really subjective. So one person's horror movie might be another person's thriller uh, or might be somebody else's sci-fi movie. And so it is a little tricky. Uh, I think if we're talking about kind of like the capital H horror, the main horror, whatever, the umbrella of horror, uh, I got to go with scary. You know, I, I think horror movies that their core are movies that are supposed to be frightening. They're supposed to scare an audience. They're supposed to have a specific kind of emotional response. And that emotion is not supposed to be uh, romantic. It's not supposed to be awe and wonder. It's not supposed to be inspirational. You're supposed to be scared. Uh, and then within that larger umbrella, I think we really have two or three sub-horrors. And uh, I know, Jay and I, you know I've talked about this, so I'm going to throw it out now. I love it. Uh, there, there is kind of, a in an academic world, a, a distinction between horror and terror. And horror is usually associated with gore and grotesquerie, you know, what they call the grotesque. And uh, what some theorists call the abject. So a horror movie to me is something that's going to have lots of blood, lots of violence, lots of gore. And the goal of a horror movie in this context is revulsion. It's supposed to make you kind of nauseous, sick to your stomach, and push the boundaries of you know what's bad taste and, and what can you stand to watch. And at what point are you going to close your eyes? The terror subgenre is the one that I actually like a little bit better, even mm -hmm. though I'm even though I'm a zombie guy. Terror is more about what you don't see, what's implied, what you imagine in your mind, what takes place like off screen, and, and terror is really more about uh, about suspense and anticipation and, and thrills, and it's a it's a different uh, emotional response. Terror gives you that quickening of the pulse and the sweaty palms and, and you jump in your seat and you gasp. And, and I think that's a little bit more enjoyable, but truth be told, a really good horror film getting back to the, the capital H horror is going to have elements of both. Most films start out in terror. They end up in horror and there's enough uh, variation that the audience doesn't lose interest. So that's kind of over, overly stuffy and technical, but that's, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about horror. I love it that you said that. And in Dr. Walking Dead, would you say that I've heard some people, and, and dismissively I might add, they would refer to this kind of terror movie as psychological horror? Yeah. Is that accurate or not? I think it's accurate, but, but when you talk about psychological horror or you talk about thrillers, people start throwing in like crime dramas and and, and stuff where it's a little bit more realistic, a little bit more human. Uh, and, and that's possible. You know, you can have horror movies about serial killers and horror movies about regular people. Frankly, the, the, one of the scariest subgenres to me is the home invasion narrative, mm. which is why I actually haven't gone to see The Purge yet because I hate, <laughs> I hate seeing those kind of movies. Yeah. Uh, I like monsters. I like supernatural horror. And a supernatural psychological horror is great for me, whether it's science fiction or realist or fantastic. I, I like all that stuff. By the way, uh, 
the the purge is in uh, Josh can back me up or not on this it's really more of an anti-war film and kind of a critique on the attitudes of violence in America interestingly so mm. if you ever want to try that but anyway <laughs> wolfman what do you have to say well uh, he stole mine because I was going to quote him so I guess I stole his in the first Aha! place but um <laughs> I know for me, um, I'm always on the side of inclusivity personally. Um, I'm every bit as happy to include Suspiria as Dawn of the Dead, as Friday the 13th, as Silence of the Lambs, as Hostel in, uh, in my horror movie collection. And I mention those titles specifically because I know they speak com- to completely different segments of the horror community. And some of them are even controversial with, you know, diehards, but not for me, you know, I don't discriminate and I'll take a camp horror comedy and a found footage and a psychological thriller, um, you know, and add those all to my personal collection. I absolutely um, have my preferences, but you know, Kyle kind of said it best with it being scary. If it raises the hair on the back of my neck, that's often good enough for me. So um I don't know, having said that, my favorite definition of horror is um, from Dr. Walking Dead here. And I first heard it on uh, Horror Metropolis episode seven, I believe. I think you guys were uh, reviewing, uh, what is the shark? It was the sequel to the oh, shark. Oh, oh, yeah. Open Water 2. Open yeah. Water 2, right. <laughs> I love and that. And, you know, it was, that, it was that terror versus horror idea. And that, that really worked for me. Um, and then the other one, actually comes from Jay of the Dead. Um, ever since I first noticed Jay doing this on Horror Metropolis, I kind of adopted it for myself. But basically, it's uh, talking about the degrees of horror within a film. And I like I like kind of just breaking the film down by the subgenres and not worrying too much if the, if the primary one is horror, I guess. So basically, as kind of uh, an example of a film that's kind of borderline to some people, if I was talking about James Cameron's Aliens, I don't mind including that film in horror at all. But I like to qualify that by breaking it down and weighing the subgenres. So, you know, with Aliens as the example, I'd call it first an action film, second a sci-fi film, and third a horror film. And I feel like those types of delineations make it easier for me to be as inclusive as possible while still giving the audience a good idea of what they're in for. Good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's some people who don't even think horror should be a genre. It should be something more of a mode. Because, like, like you just said, is uh, you can have sci-fi, you can have you can have action, and so horror can be more of a tonality. Uh, so you can have like if the first Alien movie, which most people do agree is is more of the horror bent, right? But you know, fundamentally, it's people on a spaceship. Uh, so what makes it horror isn't necessarily the scenario; it's the lighting, it's the cat and mouse, it's the monster, it's the the gore. And so that that does broaden out the definition where where you know all kinds of films could fall into that category. Mm, yeah. Well said. And Josh, I just gotta say real quick, you endeared yourself to us already by quoting us on the first <laughs> Well, that was a really good episode. I was so sad that I missed it. Um when I listened back to it, I thought, wow, this was a excellent episode. So I guess the listeners of this podcast probably have heard it since it's been in the feed, but mm. if not, I'd suggest going back and listening to Horror Metropolis episode seven for sure. Thank you. Yeah, it was all Kyle, actually. So That was a good one. We were kind of out there on our own. So Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so, um, well, for me, you guys, I, I like what both of you have said. I really do. And I, I think there are a couple elements to horror. Um, number one, it seems like it, to me, it revolves around death in one of two ways. Either the characters are avoiding it, which is usually the case, 
or they are wanting it, which really comes in like the torture kind of horror movies where people are just having such a terrible experience that they just want to die. But but I, it all has to do with like fear of death. And so I think fear of death or this this encounter with death is is a part of it. And the way I define horror is by looking at drama, because I think drama is the sister to horror. And we've talked about this before, but for those who haven't heard it, I, you know, drama is conflict. And I think horror is drama that is ramped up to an extreme level. So just to give you an example of this, um, a young girl has pneumonia, and that's drama. Or a young girl is possessed by a demon, that's horror. To me, that's the difference. And um, some people like to look at conflict in those old traditional uh, I guess the literary ways where it's like you got God versus man stories, you've got nature versus man, man, right. man versus man, man versus himself, etc. And so you take any one of those scenarios and then you ramp it up where whatever it is that's versing man is malicious and trying to harm man like in a life threatening way or to a life threatening degree. So, I mean, to me, that that's where we get down into ho- this being horror, but I know a lot of the horror fans or the diehard horror fans will kind of balk against this kind of thinking because, and then what you said, Josh, specifically because people are worried that horror is getting watered down. And so I just wondered what you guys thought of that. If we are being inclusive, which I tend to be inclusive as well, yeah. is that ruining or um, watering down the genre? I don't think so. I mean, for me, it's just like, like I said, as long as, I mean, I don't know what our job is as reviewers of a film or people who are, you know, discussing film. I don't think it's our job to worry about whether the genre is getting watered down. That's more on the filmmakers. Um, and so I would just say, as long as we're classifying it as well as we can and, and, um, and being, uh, as descriptive as we can for the audience to really understand what they're getting into, you know, I mean, that's why I offer so many, um, clarifications because i want i don't want to lead anyone wrong you know if, yeah. you, if you really hate like a slow burn psychological thriller you're gonna hate this movie you know i'll say stuff like that and to me that's that's all that matters for me in terms of what we're dealing with here mm-hmm. yeah i i don't think that the genre as a whole is getting watered down i think there is i do think that there's a little bit of a problem in hollywood with marketing right now where the trailer and the film are not necessarily the same thing. Yes. And so that's where there is a, there is a certain uh, social contract that you let people know what they're getting into. And that's where genre is supposed to be effective. So when you say this is a horror movie, I go expecting a horror movie. If I don't get a horror movie, I'm, I'm ticked off. And so that's why uh, – I can't remember which podcast where we had some pretty stern words about Cabin in the Woods, <laughs> where, where some of your more traditional horror podcasters uh, were betrayed by that film because it ended up being so, uh, you know, comedic and, and science fictiony and self-referential. So as long as you kind of know what you're getting into, but but I think Jay, you really nailed it, and I resent you for it. Uh, is it's, <laughs> it's got to be about threat. And it can't be idle threat. It can't be you're going to lose the pageant, right? It's right. got to be. It's going to be that you're going to be. Usually, you're going to be killed, uh, or you're going to be grievously mutilated, or your family's going to be killed. But it has to be a, a really amped up threat, and that can occur in lots of different ways. But if I go to a movie expecting to see threat and to feel threatened, and it's 
too jokey, too campy, too romantic, then I feel cheated. And I, and I feel like I've been betrayed because I thought it was one genre and it ended up being something else. Mm -hmm. Well said. That's great. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next question because this is um, somewhat related. I just wanted to get your opinions on, I guess, the observations (laughs) that you might have as far as like the, over the course of the past 100 years, or it's getting to be 100 plus now, but um, what what do you have to say about the changes that we've seen in the horror genre through the decades? I mean, do you have any kind of, you know, significant and notable mentions that you want to just talk about? I mean, I know we could do a whole podcast on this, but I mean, what, what are your thoughts, Josh? I mean, I think it just comes in waves, right? There's some kind of breakthrough filmmaker or filmmakers, and then there are a bunch of copies and sometimes the copies are good and sometimes they're awful and we'll probably get into that a little bit later but you know i mean i personally love the classics from now to the universal monsters and then you know the next thing that really caught my eye was the you know italian horror and 80 slashers and and you know and they're you know they're usually like i said one or two really great ones and then several that are really terrible uh, that follow that and so i think for genre fans they don't mind you know they're willing to forgive um some of the worst ones, but yeah, I don't, there's nothing that really stands out to me. I mean, I think I'm really happy with where horror is at right now in a lot of ways. I think foreign horror is really good right now. Stuff coming yes. out of Asia and Scandinavia, especially yes. Mexico. Um, there's a lot of inventive new indie horror and some of it's pushing boundaries in terms of storytelling. Some of it's harkening back to more old school horror and psychological stuff. I, mean, I think there's a lot of interesting things, um, a lot of interesting filmmakers, although a lot of these guys kind of fail as much as they succeed. In my opinion, I'm actually really excited about guys like Rob Zombie and Ty West and Eli Roth and Adam Green, because I feel like they're at least people that have a set of skills and are and and are really invested in the genre and really want to push it forward. And Kyle can probably talk about this much more than me, but I think zombie films are still good. I mean, it's shocking that this late, you know, and not late in the game, but, you know, there was obviously a, a flood of zombie movies around 2004 or whenever that was when, you know, Dawn of the Dead remake and 28 Days Later and Shaun of the Dead all kind of came out around the same time. Um, and it's shocking that even with, you know, two television shows now on Zombieland and and uh, The Walking Dead. That zombie movies are still coming out that are good. You know, um, and I think that's awesome. Yeah, knock wood, so yeah. I can still have a career. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Dr. Yeah, well, I I obsess about this. Jay knows because uh, because my book is really about zombies, but I'm really really into patterns. And, and genres and development. And so I do quite a bit of stuff with sci-fi and fantasy, but horror is really where I've, I've settled. And I've thought a lot about where we, how we got from about 1915 to today. And these waves that, that Josh is talking about are a big deal. So for horror, though, you're really talking about three great moments in time and you know it, there was early horror is great you know they were messing around the germans were doing stuff with the uh, cabinet of dr caligari and, yeah. and nosferatu and trying to freak right. people out in the silent era but 1931 is when hollywood really kind of took the bull by the horns and so you got your dracula and your frankenstein to a lesser extent white zombie and we got this great like uh populous rebellion against the depression 
Mm-hmm. That it's we're all out of work and life sucks and we hate everything. So we're going to go and we're going to find a nickel and go to a movie and get scared. Right. Because at least we can control that. We can control the fear of the theater. And these are monsters that don't exist because that's preferable to the monster, which is unemployment and poverty and starvation. Nice. So you get a lot of great stuff out of the 30s, which, uh, you know, most kids today won't sit through. Uh, <laughs> but but you go back and watch some of that stuff. It's a little campy and it's way racist, just so we're all clear. Uh, but but it's good stuff. Then, you know, World War II, we had Wolfman and then that was about it. So we had some anti-Hitler Nazi propaganda. And then we went to the Cold War and it was all sci-fi all the time. So horror became really monster movies. Mm-hmm. So you get them, you get Godzilla, you get the the delightful Night of the Lupus. Uh, <laughs> you get all those alien invasion things. So then the next one, I'm lecturing now, sorry. Do it, do you, it, brother. You get to the next one and it's 1968. And 1968, even though Psycho's important, I'm not, I'm not ignoring 1960, mm-hmm. but Hitchcock was a little before his time and people weren't quite ready for it. Right. 68, though, production code's out the window, right? People go crazy. You get Rosemary's Baby, which even now is pretty shocking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you go back and watch the Satan raping her scene, I mean, that's mm. that's disturbing. Uh, and then you had, you had Night of the Living Dead, which I think is not just important for zombie movies. I think it's important for the whole genre. Because you've got a country at war. You've got a war that's televised. You've got people who are seeing death dismemberment, violence on the nightly news. So they want to have an escapist as well. And then you get to the 70s. And as, as you know, Jay, I love the 70s, man. Mm-hmm. The, all these filmmakers are coming back from Vietnam and they're going, that's not what a dead body looks like. That's not, <laughs> what, a, that's not what a decapitation looks like. And you get Tom Savini on the scene. Right. And so we really enter the golden age of, of great horror where you get you – get, Halloween, you get uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you get Friday the 13th, all this great, amazing stuff, just terrifying, you know, Dawn of the Dead, which everyone knows is my favorite zombie movie. (laughs) Yes. Brilliant decade. Then you get into the 80s, man, 83, 84, you get Thriller, you get Return of the Living Dead, and (laughs) horror just basically becomes a joke. We're all about action adventure, sci-fi, silly stuff. Wait a second. Uh, Are you discounting the slashers? I'm discounting a lot of the slashers. Not that they're because they're less horror, uh, because they become about themselves. The, the, a lot of the initial slashers are great, but by the time you get to part five, part six, and as much as I love Freddy Krueger, Freddy Krueger is more of a a clown than he is a monster. (laughs) Please email and write your complaints. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) And then we had a great moment in the 90s where we tried to rally. We had, you know, Blair Witch. We had Scream. Uh, didn't take because we were all fat and happy and we were dot common and we were playing video games and who cared. <laughs> and then we got 9-11 and 9-11's the third great hallmark moment. 2002 really is when we started getting the third wave. And uh, the third wave started strong. And, and Josh, you talked about this great uh, the problem is the the mainstream American movie industry of the last 10 years has been a recycling. 
let's remake every damn movie from the 70s <laughs> and none of them are going to be as scary none of them are <laughs> going to be as frightening none of them are going to be as gory and so we're we're just going to mass produce horror for profit thank goodness they're making movies in norway and finland because right. I don't know what it is, but right now Scandinavian horror is where it's what I am obsessed with it. But Asia is is on the is on the market. You know, all this stuff is happening abroad and independently, and on Netflix and TV and YouTube. Hollywood is letting me down. It's it's I think it's it's copping out a little bit for the bottom line. So there it is. 100 years of film history. That and, was amazing. Well, 10 minutes, whatever I ended up doing. You just blew my <laughs> mind right there. You really did. And anything that I had to say, which which wasn't even near that, I mean, you you <laughs> totally not only covered it, but exceeded it and covered it better than I could. Oh, <laughs> Thanks for making me go first, Jay. <laughs> I, I know. We should have made him go last, knowing that he was going to knock that one out of the park. That's right. I, that's the one I was most prepped for. So sorry about that. No, that's should awesome. Should have discussed, yeah, who, who had best answers to each question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I seriously, like, like he, he just, like... I have nothing there, but I do want to say, um, by the time this podcast airs in October, uh, you know, we will have seen the conjuring, um, that hasn't yet come out as we record this, but that's something this year that I have hope in. And also a, a horror film called you're next from America, the United States. I, I also have a lot of hope in those two. So there are a couple things this year, which by the time listeners hear this podcast, they'll already know. So maybe I'll sound dumb, but I have a lot of hope in those. But There's always hope. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, let's um let's briefly discuss our rating system on this podcast so the listeners can kind of know where we're we're coming from. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna do the basically the point five up to ten. So like you know zero to ten scale. We don't really give zeros though, right? Because Josh, when you say as a filmmaker, if somebody actually recorded images. You can't give them a zero, right? If they remembered to pick the camera up at the rental shop, they deserve 0. 0.5. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. They got it finished. That's a 0. 0.5. So, so, Seriously, actually, yeah, that should be a that should be like a five just finishing the film. Uh, really? Yeah. I mean, you would know, but um, so that the 0. 0.5 is our lowest, the 10 is our highest, so we can go on halves. And uh, for me personally, and you guys can talk about where you fall, but for me, I divide it into three categories. There's a void you know, rental or buy it. And so for me, the cutoff is um, the 0.5 up to the 4.5 is in a void. And then the five up to 7.5 is a rental. And then eight to 10 is in the buy it range. And that's how I'll be rating the movies. What about you, uh, Josh? Um, well, for me, they're not as tied to the rating, I guess, as you might think. I'm, I kind of stick with your scale in terms of um, you know, saying that it's a an avoid rent and buy, but the the numbers aren't very cut and dry. Maybe to your chagrin, um, but no, I like fine. to give a lot of qualifiers, as I mentioned before, because it's more important to me that the nuance and specificity makes it through in my review more than the number that can be cataloged. And so I actually hate the idea of rating art at all. Right, like the scene from Dead Poet Society where Robin Williams has the students tear the pages out of their rating poetry from their textbooks. And I dislike that idea altogether, but that is the reason we're doing the podcast. And, um, and it is the reason that I take my number ratings so seriously. Um, and I'll, why I also like to include so many qualifiers. So one thing that I find happens for me is that the number does not 
uh, does not always reflect that recommendation. The classic example I always give is like Troll 2, right? So that movie's like a two, a two, but for me it's a must buy, right? And the reverse <laughs> could of that could also be true. I might be able to recognize that Laid to Rest or The Orphan Killer are maybe sixes or sevens in terms of quality, but I hate them, and so they're voids for me, right? Yeah. And that's just kind of how I approach my rating, I guess. You hate the first Laid to Rest. I just don't like that. Tan- that's not my. That's not my thing. Okay. I, I recognize that it's definitely far, far, far better than the second Lady Rest. Right, because the second one is un- almost. Just not, un- it's just not my <laughs> cup of tea. It's not the kind of movie I want to spend my time with. Okay, sorry, yeah. tangent, but uh, okay, okay, Doctor Walking Dead. What about you? Uh, well, because I'm a teacher, I tend to fixate on a five point scale. Uh, <laughs> but so you're going to hear a lot of even number scores from me, but I'll occasionally mix it up. And, and I'm kind of like Josh. My number system is really going to be not really my, my personal preference. And it's always going to be tempered a little bit by audience. So, you know, if, if it's an – and not on this podcast, but if it's an animated movie for a five-year-old, you know, I might <laughs> absolutely hate it and want to stab my eyes out. But I might give it an eight because a five-year-old would – would love it. So I try to give the number that I, I think is appropriate for the intended audience. Uh, and then yeah, I, I the other one I would go with more my personal gut check because because I agree, you know, there's movies that are maybe threes or fours that you just you want in your collection. You want to pull those babies out now and then. <laughs> uh, so so yeah, I, I, I'm I'm down with with the other categories as well. Although in the 21st century, I think we could go with avoid netflix and buy it but you know i just have to tease jay a little bit <laughs> right exactly uh you know i still hearken back to the old vhs video store days man i miss that so much <laughs> you miss that you miss walking up and down the aisles for 45 minutes i do oh yeah <laughs> i loved it i loved it uh, um okay well ha- here's the thing how do you guys approach rating and recommending the older or quote unquote dated horror films when you're talking to a modern audience, especially when you're tempted to say lines like for its time, like this movie was scary for its time or whatever, or the special effects were great in its day. So, uh, and if you guys can answer that and also kind of address, you know, how you would talk to these listeners about the scare factor of those older films, what do you got, Kyle? Yeah, as as a teacher, I deal with this all the time because uh, right now, kind of the area I teach the most is not my area of expertise, I'll, I'll add, but I teach a lot of pre-Civil War American lit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the students are kind of bored with most of it, frankly. And <laughs> to my, it just, it just mortifies me, but a lot of them don't like Poe. They think Poe is boring. And, and, and you have to try to explain to people that there is a necessity to perceive a text from its contemporary audience's perspective and, and recognize that there is a for its time caveat. Right. Uh, so an example of this, which is literary, but hopefully the lit- listeners will excuse me. Uh, I taught I Am Legend recently. And I think I Am Legend is one of the greatest vampire novels of all time. And they were like, well, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, we get it. Okay, okay. And I was like, look, <laughs> this had never been done before. You have to recognize why this is important. There were never more than a few vampires. There was never only one guy. Uh, there were never vampires you sympathized with. Matheson invented all that stuff. And so you do have to uh, 
accept that a little bit. And then this is me being the middle-aged teacher and father. You have to give them a little bit of, of it's good for you. You gotta, you gotta watch <laughs> it. You gotta know what came first. You gotta see the original. Yes. Uh, and so I'm, I'm a pretty big crusader for that. Uh, and then at, I'll, I'll pause now and let you guys go and I'll, I'll come back in with some on that scare factor question. Okay. Well, as for me as a film critic, I feel like all I can do really, or all I can be expected to do is to inform the audience at least of the historical relevance or the significance and to try to at least affect some degree of appreciation in the audience. But since we are reviewing for a modern crowd for viewers of today, I think that it's also just absolutely necessary to kind of assess the scare factor and the overall entertainment value for that modern audience. So, you know, I, I guess for the most part, I would I would try to do what you do, Kyle, which is say, you know, I recommend seeing this because of its historical relevance or whatever. But, you know, it's probably not going to be scary to you. It's probably going to look dated and et cetera. So I will make all those almost excuses, I guess, in order to try to you know, prepare people so they know what they're in for. What about you, Wolfman? Yeah, I mean, it's the same. Um, caveats are my are, are the uh, world in which I work because I I have a lot of respect for the forerunners of the genre, and um, I think it's important to let people know about some of these films. And um, and so, but what usually happens with mine is the rating reflects the place in history what the film was for its time, but my recommendation would probably mm. reflect how the audience might, may respond to it. That's interesting. Nice. interesting. Well played. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> what were you going to say about the scare factor there? Uh, Dr. Walking dead. I, well, the thing, I think a lot of scares are tied to originality uh, and originality of course is subjective because if I haven't seen a movie before, then it's going to be uh, original to me. And so I, I got to teach a summer class down in Tucson just on monsters, uh, which they were really gracious to let me do. And I wanted, you know, I let them vote from a limited list on what movies they wanted to watch. And when we were going to do a Aliens, they voted for The Thing. Mm. Well, to my shock, only about two people in the class had seen it before. And so I was thinking, yeah, I love the thing, but it's a little dated. Some of the effects are not as good as others. There's some, there's some stop motion, but I, you know, I was just going to let it roll. So we screened it as a class and they freaked out. <laughs> That's it, awesome. It scared those college kids so bad. And they went into it thinking, oh, this is an old movie. It's not going to be that big a deal. <laughs> but because they had never seen that kind of stuff before, mm -hmm. uh, Never seen a guy's chest open up and bite off another man's hands. Who has? Who has who seen has? that stuff? <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> so older films are perfectly valid and perfectly terrifying if there's a lack of familiarity and if you don't know what's coming and if you haven't had it spoiled. Because you know, even let's talk about Psycho again. A lot of people know the gimmick, but if you've never seen Psycho before, even if you're like 15 today, right? Yeah. When she dies, you're going to go, wait a minute. Uh, right. And she's the lead character. She's the lead character. <laughs> she just got killed. What? It must be a dream sequence. Uh, there's going to be some time travel later. <laughs> it's like, oh, she's dead, man. Uh, and so I think the scares are still there. It just depends so much on the audience. 
Well said. Very good. Yeah, and by the way, on Psycho, if you haven't seen that before, the ending is really free. That'll run some chills up and down your spine, for me at least. I mean, that's very disturbing to think about. Okay, and speaking of scares, um, what do you think makes a horror movie scary, Wolfman? (sighs) What makes a horror movie scary? Um... I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, it's the unknown, right? That's yep. that. That's the main thing. Okay. Um, sur- surprise uh, factor, you know, and and maybe that. Well, I'm gonna probably talk about that a little bit when we get to the um, the jump scare part. But yeah, I mean, I think I think for horror films, it's kind of what makes any film good. You know, what makes a comedy funny, what makes any horror movie scary is something surprising. Step into the unknown. The tension, the release of that tension. So, yeah, that's basically it for me. Okay. Yeah. And what Absolutely. about? It, it's the unexpected. Uh, it's because like the, un- here's, I'm just riffing on this, but I think it's good. Do it. The unexpected in, in science fiction makes you go, oh, wow, whoa, eh, right? Right. Science fiction unexpected results in an awe factor. Uh, mm-hmm. The unexpected in a romance uh, is the a different awe factor. The awe, yeah. Oh, that's uh, <laughs> oh, they're okay. Ah, but the unexpected in horror is yeah, right. <laughs> is is that real thing that's going to make you freak out? Now, again, let me put my other hat on. Freud talked about this. Freud talked about this, and he called it the uncanny. The uncanny is what freaks us out, and the uncanny can't be familiar. Because then we know what we're looking at, right? It's not it's not unexpected. Right. But if the uncanny the uncanny can't be so foreign that we don't know what we're even looking at. Yeah. Right? So so a great example of this is you're in the bathroom and you see something on the floor and you're not sure what it is. You're like, I can't tell what that is. Is it a smudge? I don't know. So you're not scared because you don't know what it is. So you get down on your hands and knees and you look really close and it's a spider. And then you go, yeah, <laughs> because now it's become something that's uncanny. It's something that's familiar. Yeah, I know what a spider is, but it's unfamiliar because it's a spider in my bathroom. That happened to me once, so, and it was actually mushrooms growing in my bathroom. It was really weird. Uh, <laughs> anyway, sorry. Go well, ahead. That would freak me out. The interesting like, thing that came to my mind when you mentioned the uncanny is there's a, there's a technique in, um, well, there's something they refer to with digital uh, CGI, which is basically the uncanny valley, and that has to do with creating right. humans um, with you know computers. And basically, the closer it gets to a person, but then is off, the scarier it is. So that's why people think like uh, Polar Express or uh, a Christmas uh, a Christmas Carol are kind of scary looking, you know, because right. they approximate humans but um, look odd. And I think that's the same reason. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is scary, you know. They're they're close to human, but there's something wrong with them, you know. Yeah, something off. And, and, and another great example of that is Michael Myers, especially in the original. Yes, yeah. Because he's got he's got the he's got the Bill Shatner mask on. Mm-hmm. And okay, he's wearing overalls. Okay, Bill. But there's just something not right about it. <laughs> For and, sure. And that's that's what's scary. I love what you guys are talking about because that ties into why I think horror movies are scary or what makes them scary to me is is the unnatural. And um, because when it comes to like, for example, monsters are unnatural when something is uh, not 
like you say, I mean, you, you guys really hit it. Not a part of our familiar world. And, and especially for me, what scares me the most is deformity. When I have nightmares, and, and I don't mean to offend anybody. So if anybody out there has any kind of a physical imperfection, I'm sorry about this. But when I have nightmares, I, I dream about people deformed. You know, they have like like maybe a really long pointy chin, kind of like Jay Leno style, you know, <laughs> but, but I mean, any, anything like that freaks me out like big time. So, um, yeah, for me, it's, it's the unnatural really that scares me the most. So, so what about jump scares then? Where do you guys come in on those? How do you feel about it? Is it legit or is it just I, cheap? Yeah. I mean, it can be both. I think, you know, like any cinematic technique, um, there are good jump scares and bad jump scares. They can be fun or they can be a sign of laziness in the filmmaking, right? Mm-hmm. Like a smart film and a smart filmmaker can use jump scares well. Like Sinister, um, which is kind of a recent Ethan Hawke ghost movie, is a great yeah. example of that because the jump scares are set up using sophisticated camera techniques and blocking and framing devices. Um, and so those jump scares work and, oh yeah, the incredible, that is an incredible jump scare in that involving a lawnmower. And I jumped oh, in, yeah. in the air, you guys, I was <laughs> off the couch. Sorry, Josh, go ahead. No, that's fine. No, I mean, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, we obviously know that a hack jobber can do jump scares poorly. So, um, you know, and I think a lot of modern horror movies are kind of an example of this. They get kind of lazy. Um, but you know, one of my favorite horror films, probably my favorite of the 90s is Scream, which functions as both a horror film and a postmodern commentary on the horror genre. And I think Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson were really good, you know, uh, artists. They, they basically employed any and every method of mining a scare from the audience that they could, including jump scares. And you've got bad jump scares and good jump scares in that film. And one of the most effective is the first scary scene uh, with Nev Campbell. Mm-hmm. playing Sydney, and she's walking around on her deck looking for signs of the killer while she's talking to him on the phone. She decides it's a prank and goes back into the house, locks the door, thinking she's locked any danger outside, when suddenly Ghostface bursts out of the closet door behind her, and that's an amazing and completely effective, poop-your-pants scary, totally fun jump scare. <laughs> but then, you know, later in the film, right, so, um, and I think this was done as a commentary on the genre, again, because I think uh, Craven and Williamson give us really, really lame and totally typical horror movie jump scare when Tatum is in the garage getting some beers out of the fridge and a cat suddenly jumps out of nowhere. Yes, right? cat yeah. jump scares. Totally weak. And and I think that they, <laughs> I, that, to me that felt like a commentary on how stupid the genre can be at times because we know that those guys are capable of doing a good jump scare and we see a totally unique and totally creepy scene with Tatum face-to-face with Ghost Ghostface right after that so you know i to me that that was their nod at like look how silly this can be basically and then they immediately follow that up with a gut punch of like now here's the most terrifying scene in the movie yes can i can i just agree right there and and horror filmmakers out there who am i i'm nobody but i just let me say this if you use a cat for your jump scare i mean 99 (laughs) percent of the time that is cheap and lame and just i think it's so weak i'm with you and for me jump scares have to be um well used like you described in sinister i i remember there was a good jump scare in the purge i believe and and it was actually kind of a part it was like a function of the story it wasn't just a wake up the audience kind of thing what about you kyle uh i agree i i think 
What makes a jump scare effective is, again, to go back to our first answer, it's to make it unexpected. And if the jump scare is too predictable and you know it's going to come, it can still make you jump, but then you feel cheated. You feel kind of like, come on. Right. <laughs> uh, the best is when you expect the jump and it's not there. And then when you don't expect it and it is there. Now, and this one has become a cliche, so it doesn't work as well anymore. But it's the, you know, it's when uh, the heroine opens the door and no one's there. And then she closes the door and the thing's behind the door. Yes, or the bathroom mirror is the same Yeah, or thing. the mirror. The mirror is classic. <laughs> right. But I, for this example, I always go back to Jaws, which is another one we debate. Is it horror? Is it not horror? Um, but with Jaws, what was so brilliant by Spielberg is that he would signal the shark with the music. Yes. And then the time you get the first time you get the close up, there's no music. <laughs> and so when that shark jumps out at Roy uh, Schneider and there's no music to preface it. Yeah. Totally effective. Brilliant. Right. Totally effective because the filmmaker has changed the rules. And when it, it changing the rules is what makes it effective. By the way, I love it when monsters have a regitative, like a theme where that's like, like you said, that signals them. I think that is just so cool. But anyway, I'm sorry, that was a random note. But um, so what's an example, you guys, if you're going to name uh, like the scariest, just one, name just one of the scariest horror movies you've ever seen. And just uh, tell me why you think it's scary. Josh. I think The Exorcist is the scariest movie because I am too afraid to watch it and I've never seen it. <laughs> You've never seen well it? Well played. Yeah. <laughs> Brother, it is freaky. It is super freaky, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I, I don't know. This is a hard question for me. I love the opening scene of Scream with Drew Barrymore. I think that's one of the most terrifying and fun scenes I've ever seen in a movie, but it's actually scary. And I think, again, it's that idea of the unknown and the surprise she thinks she's having this pleasant conversation and suddenly there's this big reversal and what was innocent has suddenly turned you know terribly wrong and i and i love how that scene plays out yes okay and what about you dr rocking dead uh i'm gonna i'm not gonna talk about the scariest ones because they're on my list okay so i'm gonna give an example that's not on my list and it almost made the cut uh it's the blair witch project <laughs> which for some yeah. reason that movie gets scarier to me Wow. As I get older, and I don't know why, but, but I have some theories. Part of it is that it really, through that documentary footage, which now is, you know, found footage we all know, it wasn't then. See, right. I'm going back to the caveats. Right. It was new then. Uh, but so much of that movie is spent going, what is that? What is going on? <laughs> and it's, it's a total sense of unknown. And there's a weird element because of how that film was made that I think there are moments in the movie when the actors are genuinely scared. Really? Uh, when, when I think because the, the filmmakers are messing with them and they, they don't know the exact plot or script of the movie. I think there are moments when their, their fear is genuine. Neat. And that movie has one of the most terrifying conclusions of any film in film history, in my mind. <laughs> It just freaks me out every time I see it. You know what? Um, I, I got to say something here. I, I love what you just said, and here's why. I remember in 1999 when this came out that there were adults. Like in my hometown, there are a lot of industrial workers, factory workers. And it was these tough guy factory workers that would – I heard that there were people who wouldn't sleep for two nights after watching that movie. 
and mainly because of the ending. And I remember seeing the ending and it does kind of stay with you for sure. Uh, and so I, I think I think a lot of the listeners may or may not feel the same way you do about that movie. But they should know that, you know, in 1999, especially when people thought it was real, it really freaked people out big time. Oh, yeah. My wife, my wife saw it thinking it was real. I mean, she when she left the theater, her and her friend were like completely freaked out of their minds. <laughs> <laughs> they thought that happened, you know, and then that was just part of the marketing of the film. Um, Brilliant. And I told you this, Jay, before, but, um, you know, I first saw the Blair Witch Project in the middle of the woods. We, me and my friends went up to oh, the canyon <laughs> and nice. we found a pavilion with power and we got the longest, you know, extension cords we could find. We linked them all together and went out to the middle of the woods and watched it out. <laughs> sitting in the Wow. That is awesome. brilliant. We got to do that with uh, Dr. Walking Dead here. <laughs> See, Absolutely, man. Because, yeah, when I first saw it, my first viewing of it was literally one of my most fun movie viewing experiences ever. We went to a drive-in. And um and it was surrounded by woods, so it's not quite as scary as you because we were my girlfriend and I were in a car, but it was still pretty freaky, I have to say. That's good. That sounds like a good spot. <laughs> Absolutely. But um my scariest that didn't make my list but it was pretty close into my top ten is actually Pet Cemetery. And the reason why I think this is so scary, first of all, the character Zelda in that movie is one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my life. And there again, you've got something unnatural. She's yeah. unnaturally skinny and there's the deformity factor there, mm. you know, and that just freaks my mind out. And when she's like huddled down in that corner and she scurries across the room toward the camera. <laughs> oh man, I'm getting scared right now thinking about it. <laughs> but um, with Pet Cemetery, though, I think it's a brilliant film as far as scare goes is because they they are a multi opportunity offender or or however that phrase is because there are lots of different sorts of scares in that movie uh, there are, um, we've talked about this before in previous podcasts but there are like there are ghosts in it there are um quote-unquote zombies in it there are like um really real life type of horror like losing people that it's unthinkable to lose i mean there are lots of different elements of scare to that movie and that's why i think pet cemetery is still one of the scariest films i've ever seen yeah Hey, that reminds me though. Um, so, have you seen Browning's Freaks? Oh yeah, from yeah, nineteen thirty-two. Uh huh. Yeah. Sure, sure, brother. Just with your with your body deformity fear. <laughs> it is right. that That's one's of that one's really uh, unsettling. Absolutely, and it did. Um, even though it's like super dated now and stuff, and it's kind of weird. I, I definitely would recommend that the horror fans and and but but just because of that very thing. And yeah, it did. It was kind of unsettling to me. Mm. All right, well, um, let's let's move into our first couple of uh, top ten favorite horror movies of all time. Okay, so um, let's uh, for, first of all, I'll just I'll, I'll kick it off, I guess here. It's just want to tell you a couple things. Usually, I, I take a lot of notes for podcasts and stuff like that, but I wanted to try something different. This is gonna sound corny, but I wanted to kind of speak from the heart here with you guys, with you listeners out there. I wanted to do a movie like little mini reviews of these where I just kind of like tell you the first thing that pops into my head about these films and why they affect me so much. So if I sound a little bit discombobulated during my top 10 naming, then that's why. But um, I got to clear something up because way back on episode one of the weekly horror movie podcast, um, we named like our top five and that was kind of off the cuff and it was kind of quick. I don't want to make excuses, but um, 
in there, I named my number five as From Dusk Till Dawn. Okay. Now, um, when I when I took this very seriously, because we've been preparing for this show for a few months now, and I've spent a few months really pouring over my list, making sure I had my my real actual top ten. From Dusk Till Dawn did not make it in there. So I just want to tell you guys, yes, you're going to see that I am not putting From Dusk Till Dawn in there, but it is definitely a guilty pleasure, honorable mention for me, and I just wanted to throw that out. But my number 10, and Kyle's going to love this, I'm sure, is going to be um, Zombie 2, which is the Italian uh, name, Lucio Fulci's Fulci. Fulci. yeah, Fulci's, uh, Zombie from 1979. And um, for me... I mean, you know, I'm sure Dr. Walking Dead's going to have a lot to say about this. But for me, Zombie 2 is really what a zombie film should be. I think it is the heart of a zombie film. And, and the reason I think that is because the zombies are so grotesque and creepy. I mean, these they have like worms and things like <laughs> crawling out of them. They, they're icky and gooey. And if you really think about what a reanimated corpse would look like, especially like, you know, one that's been dead for a while. I mean, I think that these zombies is, is what you would have. I mean, we've got formaldehyde and all this stuff. If you want to get gross and technical, you know, uh, they might not have quite as much. But I'm talking about old school zombies. And there are some kind of older zombies in this in this film. But and, and there's some violence. See, to me, zombie films are partly about the gore. And I think um, Dr. Walking Dead, correct me if I'm wrong, but like abjection is something that you refer to a lot. Yeah. Which do you want to define that for the audience real quick? What, what you yeah, mean I can, by it? I can give you the real fast one. Abjection is the stuff that we slough off of our bodies that we don't want to look at because it reminds us of our mortality. So that's <laughs> why your you, blood makes you faint and nauseous and dizzy, but you're similarly turned off by, you know, urine and feces and pus. And so all the things that are physical manifestations of mortality, that's the abject. And it goes back to your definition of horror, Jay. Anything that reminds us that we are, are at risk of death is yes. horrible. Horrible. Yes. Well said. Thank you. Now, um, so... In in this movie, I mean, you've got you've got some serious degrees of this, and uh, Kyle actually does a great job. <laughs> I don't mean to do commercial, but in American Zombie Gothic, I, I was actually uh, reading what you had to say about Zombie Two, and I was super impressed. By the way, Kyle, um, you guys should check that out. But he, he brings up a lot of neat points. But for me, uh, the the really defining moments in this, of course, there's a famous zombie versus shark scene. And this guy, yes, sir, he actually wrestles a real shark. And <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong. He was he was a shark. He was the shark trainer, right? I think so. But the the, the shark they actually injure the shark, <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's not PETA approved. There there's a it's as real as it gets, man. It's a guy fighting a shark. Yeah, and and like and and you're actually seeing it. I mean, it's it's for real. It isn't like staged or whatever. So and that's incredible. And and that that in a movie, I mean, it's such a unique uh, piece of cinema. I I just think that kind of makes it legendary. And then of course, um, probably the most infamous scene with Zombie Two is uh there there's an eyeball gouge that is. <laughs> unthinkable and almost unwatchable um i remember the first time i ever saw that i i 
you know, I almost couldn't watch it, but I stuck in there because I didn't believe that Fulci was going to do it, but he stays on it. They show it and it looks real. I mean, I think even today I watched this recently and I think, you know, you can, you can kind of tell, but I'm telling you, it still made my eyeball hurt. It still makes me like squirm. It is one of the freakiest scenes I've ever seen in horror. So yeah, for me, uh, zombie from 1979 is my number 10 okay what about you dr walking dead what's your number 10 well you're right that that zombie 2 is great i don't have a i have surprisingly few zombie movies on my list partially because i want to uh branch out and partially because um this is going to sound sacrilegious but i don't like a lot of zombie movies (laughs) what (laughs) what is going on here well you know when you write a book about something, <laughs> you kind of saturate yourself. So uh, it's it's not my favorite subgenre, which is <laughs> going to come as a surprise to a lot of people. But I know a, a heck of a lot about it. So wow. uh, I have a few honorable mentions. We kind of talked about throwing those out there because it was really hard to get 10. Do it. And so I just want to throw these out. I'm not going to say anything about them, but I already mentioned Blair Witch Project. Uh, I'm going to get hate mail because Friday the 13th isn't on my 10. Uh, but the first one is pretty great. And uh, we've already talked about Scream. I think that's another really great one. And one of my favorite horror movies of the last 10 years, because here's a little bit of a spoiler. The most recent movie on my top 10 list is 87. Wow. Mm. So I'm, I'm an old school horror guy. But of recent years, Drag Me to Hell. <laughs> really liked it. Thought that was a, a great horror movie. Interesting. Nice. That scene, by the way, when they're in the car with the old lady is so awesome. But anyway. <laughs> I, I like quirky horror, uh, but but let me get to my, my tan. You got it. Uh, so like I said, I, I, I am a, I think the 70s was the greatest era on the planet for horror. And it trickles into the 80s. So really kind of 73, which by the way is when I was born. Uh, to about 83, 84. That's the real peak of horror for me. And maybe it's because I was a kid. <laughs> I don't know. There's some correlation there. Sure. Uh, but for my number 10 is not my favorite horror movie, It, but I think it is, as Josh already said, one of the scariest movies ever made, and that's The Exorcist. Uh, the exorcist is hard to watch. It's really frightening and it's really terrifying for a couple of reasons. Uh, I have a, I have a good buddy I work with at SUU and he was, he was trained in a, or educated in a Jesuit high school. And he told me a little while back that they watched the exorcist in class as a documentary. What? Uh, because it's, <laughs> it's based on a true story oh. and the teacher of his class knew the guy who had performed the exorcism in real life. <laughs> That's a cool story. <laughs> and wow. I have I have certain religious beliefs that make me uh believe exorcism and demonic possession is plausible. Me too. Uh and my father claims to have actually been involved in a low level exorcism in Mexico. So Exorcist freaks me out because it is within the realm of possibility, uh, but it's got that uncanny because it's not the realm of possibility that is normal, everyday, familiar. (laughs) Right. And it's just got some amazing shots 
of things you've never seen before and never wanted to see and don't want to see again, especially the kind of extended director's cut they released, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. Yes. And that tubular bells soundtrack is just terrifying. (laughs) It's one of the scariest soundtracks ever uh, composed. Uh, That, that, that musical refrain just freaks me out. So agreed because of its probability, plausibility, and because uh, the victim is a young girl, uh, I think The Exorcist is an extremely scary movie. Uh, and by the way, all the things on my list are buys because <laughs> it's my top 10. So uh, very highly rated. Uh, buy it. Absolutely. See it. See it, Josh. Bite the bullet. Yeah, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> Never! I got to back you on this, Kyle. I, I really do. This is one of the most shocking, most offensive films that I've ever seen and and by the way I did a whole episode it was a big huge episode with Dr. Shock for people who know him and my crew on the Considering the Sequels podcast and we did like I did tons of research where I watched lots of extreme and shock cinema that's what it was about and still The Exorcist ranks in there for me so I, I back you on that for sure it's it's the oldest film on my list and it's coincidentally the year of my birth and I didn't watch it until I was probably 17 or 18. Yeah. And I lost it. <laughs> yeah. And, and for me, I think that film holds a special place because it's one of the first horror films that I was kind of exposed to. It was one of those situations where I was like in my aunt and uncle's house and my cousin and I were kind of peeking around the corner while they were watching it. And I should have never been watching that. Oh my goodness. It scared me out of my mind, but yeah. Awesome. What about you, Josh? You got some honorable mentions before you give us your number 10. Um, let me see. So many. I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> the haunting, I think, has messed me up more than any single movie in my life in terms of having nightmares. Uh, I think it was a 47, 1947 movie, not the Owen Wilson <laughs> the one. Um, right. and that, that book gives me nightmares as well. I love schlocky comedy horror, so Tremors, Slither, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, classic. Re- Re- Return of the Living Dead is on my list. Um, Possession is a great film. Zombie 2 is definitely on there. Uh, House by the Cemetery. Um, yeah. Some some of those. Friday the 13th, the final chapter will be my... Uh, number four will be my uh, entry into the Friday the 13th <laughs> uh, group of films. But Frailty is another one that I love quite oh, a bit. Nice. Huh. I like that. Oh, and Shadow of the Vampire is another one. That's a good one, yeah. Very so, good. Yeah. Those are some of my uh, honorable mentions. My number 10, I'm going with uh, a classic. Um, I have a feeling that the horror fans are going to hate my list, but I don't care. These are the (laughs) movies I like. (laughs) This is a classic 1922 silent film. Uh, Dr. Walking Dead's already mentioned it. It was directed by F.W. Murnau, based on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes. uh, the names changed because I guess they couldn't get permission to make the film from uh, from Stoker's family. So, but it's you know still very similar to the story of Dracula and the film. As you know, even being a 1922 silent film, it's still surprisingly watchable. And the main performance of Count Orlock is still terrifying. Yeah. Um, and there are still several shots that, for me, hold up today as interesting horror, you know, ideas and motifs that I think you know clearly a lot of people. Um, draw from and this is a German expressionist film which you know clear you know has definitely influenced a lot of um, of our 70s horror 
you know, some of my favorite films. So yeah, Nosferatu is my number 10. Absolutely. I should have mentioned that in my honorable mentions. I think Nosferatu might be the most successful adaptation of Dracula that we've got. Mm. Probably so. Well, well <laughs> said. Yeah. And in fact, I, I love Salem's Lot, you know, the TV 1979 version or whatever, but, yeah. but that was hugely influenced by this film or at least, you know, this count and, and guys, when he, when he raises up out of that coffin oh, yeah. in the bottom of that ship, that is still scary today. For oh, real. Yeah. Like it's so scary. I will say if you're going to watch this and you worry, you know, you want to see it, but you're maybe worried about the 1922-ness of it all. I would say watch it as a companion piece. Shout of the vampire that I mentioned earlier. They're awesome films to watch together. That one's a little more mod is way more modern and yeah. super fun to watch. And I would say, yeah, check those out as a, as a double feature, maybe. Which order, yeah. Josh? Which, which? Oh, I think you have to watch Nosferatu. Yeah, Nosferatu first, and gotcha. then I I would add. You can skip the the uh, remake, the the Klaus Kinski remake. <laughs> oh, With Werner Herzog's film. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got a hater. It, interesting. It's not. I'm not a hater, but there's <laughs> lots of movies to watch before you die. Yeah. So. Exactly. I lived in the city where the Jonathan Harker character in Herzog's um, movie lives and so i have like a special place in my heart everywhere he walks it's in holland i go oh i know that's true i know that's true you know how that is when you, <laughs> when you have a, some kind of weird random personal connection to a film it suddenly elevates it but yeah absolutely renounce is way better in most ways oh wow very good that was a good pick thank you for your number 10 okay we'll move on i'll give you my number nine right here and it is my namesake Day of the Dead from 1985. And guys, I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to say this right <laughs> now. And this is going to be very, con it's always controversial with you zombie guys. But for me, this is the best George Romero zombie flick. Oh. It is my favorite. I, I loved it. I love Dawn of the Dead. And I'll tell you right now, um, Dawn of the Dead is not in my top 10. This is in my top 10. Um, I, but, you know, Dawn of the Dead ends up there. I'm not. I'm not taking anything away from that. So it is probably in my top 20, of course. But but Day of the Dead for me is what it's all about. And, and, and the reason I say that is because I love how in this film, they, they um, first of all, they're stuck. They're, they're basically stuck underground to a great degree. You know, like, um, I mean, everybody's probably seen this and they know the plot. But um, I feel as I watch this film, I get more and more claustrophobic. I kind of feel like suffocating a little bit. And um, <clears throat> so, so there's that. I think it's genuinely scary. I think there's a mean spiritedness to this film that that's ferocious. And it's one of the, I, I think it's one of the zombie films that maybe, and Kyle can correct me on this, but it, it seems to me to be one of the first zombie films where they actually illustrate that the real monster is mankind even more than the zombies and they actually have they're very sympathetic towards zombies especially with you know the bub character in this and so there's that whole part of it and i've always loved that about zombie films is how you know they really they, they kind of out us and identify that you know the real monster is us and, and yeah. i think i think that's pretty cool i've always loved that theme but in this movie too like some of the the gore effects are just incredible. And I believe, yeah. um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think Tom Savini, who, who's like a, a wizard at this, I think he's said that this is some of his proudest work. Yeah. Isn't that true? I, oh, I, I think it's, I think it might be the goriest zombie movie. It's really, hmm. 
it really pushes all the boundaries. Right. right. And probably the goriest, except for what dead alive, right? And brain dead. <laughs> yeah. But that goes so far over the top. It, it, it goes around the other side and doesn't. <laughs> this has got one of my favorite kills of all time in it though, for sure. In which one is that? When Rhodes bites the dust. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Geez. He is such a great movie villain. And you're right, Jay, this is the first zombie movie where the, the human antagonist is so much worse. Yes. And it really flips stuff around and puts Bub in the other shoe. And then you watch it and you go, wait a minute. Who am I rooting for? Yeah. And and I got one other thing to say on that. Because one of the great things, one, one thing for me that makes, oh, well, and I guess we're going to get to this later. But one thing that makes horror films great to me is bleakness. And that is so bleak. I mean, they have the characters in this film have very little hope as it is. And then the humanity that they're trying to save, like their fellow people that they're trying to um, work together with are just really not worth saving and despicable. So, I mean, you've got, you've got the, the zombie forms of humans who are just totally, I mean, that's a lost cause, right? They're deteriorating, they're dying. And then you've got a lost cause internally, with you know the characters because they're such awful beings and i just that's one of the reasons i think it's such a tremendous film so that's my number nine day of the dead 1985 and um go on to dr walking dead what's your number nine my number nine is the original evil dead 1981 because we josh was kind of talking about this with the alien movies evil dead 2 is brilliant evil dead 2 is one of the most fun movies you can watch but it's not so much horror as it is crazy and zany and weird and, and slapstick. And, and it's got so much going for it. But when I recently went back and rewatched the evil dead, it's really pretty, pretty scary. Uh, it's really alarming. Uh, it's disorienting. It's got the uncanny elements that we talk about. Uh, it's surprisingly pathetic in which you feel really pretty bad for the, for Ash and you feel bad for the characters. Yes. Um, and in so many ways, it's, 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 it's a kind of a contradictory film because on the one hand, there's no movie quite like the evil dead. And on the other hand, there are 20 or 30 movies that want to be like evil dead. <laughs> uh, not the least of which is the remake of the evil dead, right. uh, which I did not like and cabin mm-hmm. in the woods which I absolutely loved, but, but for different reasons. So, uh, yeah, the idea of the, the remote location being isolated and cut off from other people, uh, being, having your friends picked off one at a time, uh, an insurmountable foe that is supernatural but also unclassifiable, uh, the idea of demonic possession, which because uh, I always define the evil dead monsters as possessed not as zombies right and so i've already mentioned that so the two films on my list so far have been demonic possession films uh and and as you were saying with day of the dead it's really a bleak bleak movie it's it's a movie which doesn't have a lot of hope uh at the end so evil dead scary movie and I totally agree with you. I um, rewatched that fairly recently for the weekly horror movie podcast. And you know what? That still scared me. And I was really surprised because I'm pretty callous, you guys. And I don't really get scared that much by movies, to be honest with you. Especially, I mean, horror movies just don't scare me too often. But that's still scary to me. That's an 8.5 to me. I say buy it for sure. Nine. 
Okay. Okay. Awesome. All right. Uh, Wolfman, what, what's your uh, number nine? Okay. My number nine is another classic black and white film. <laughs> is the 1956 uh, film directed by Don Siegel starring Kevin McCarthy in one of my favorite film performances as a small town doctor who realizes that the other inhabitants of his town are systematically being taken over by alien body snatchers. That's right. It's invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> and, you know, like these people, they look and they sound the same superficially, but, you know, as we've been talking about this uh, uncanniness, they are kind of creepily without emotion. And I think that's what makes the movie so scary. Um, and it's also just really fun and watchable. I think the idea has since been retread so many times that it might feel stale to a modern audience. Um, you know, there was like two remakes of the film. A lot of people prefer the 70s film. I go back to the 56. I, I'm um, with then, you. I'm with but then you even, too. Yeah. Oh, cool. Good. Well, good. I'm glad we're doing a podcast together. Then, you guys. <laughs> That's right. brother. <laughs> but then even like a film like the thing or the faculty, they borrow heavily from invasion of the body snatchers. And I think, you know, there are actually so many of these, I kind of actually think of it as a body snatcher subgenre almost in a way, but yeah. yeah, just the film is just a lot of fun to watch and, uh, it's, it's, you know, heavy on the paranoia and, and, uh, creepiness of it all. So I would definitely highly recommend invasion of the body snatchers. Wolfman, I got to tell you, I got to give you some props for, for bringing out these old school films here on this top 10 list. Um, first of all, Dr. Shock would be very proud. I got to tell you, because <laughs> you are, you are, uh, you know, keeping it real here. And uh, the other thing is, I remember watching Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1956 when I was a little kid. I was pretty young and it freaked me out then. And uh, I really, I really like that idea of people that you trusted or, or loved or could trust before are no longer with you. The same thing happens in zombie movies all the time. It's like they're no longer you know, on your side or whatever. And I think that's very yeah. upsetting, like on a really deep level for me. And I, I mean, it, it goes back to betrayal and all this other stuff, but I think right, that's a, yeah. great, a great theme. Yeah. And that film climaxes with such a devastating betrayal. Yes. You're like, they're going to yes. make it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Josh, have you ever, have you ever dug up the short story who goes there? You know what? I'm not Which, sure if I have or not. I think, I don't think I did actually. I yeah, thought about it when we were doing the thing once. Yeah, because that's right. the origin for the thing, and it it predates the book Invasion of the Body Snatchers, oh. and so it's kind of like the the Ur uh, Body Snatcher narrative. I mean, there's there's probably some stuff previous, but it's an interesting story. It's not terribly well written, and there's so many characters you get confused, but it you see that it's laying the groundwork for that that subgenre. That's cool. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> it was awesome. Okay, well, let's move into our number eight. I'm going to tell you my number eight is Jaws, 1975. And yes, Jaws is a horror film. You love scary animals. <laughs> That's right, brother. Beastly freaks is what I call yeah. them. Um, it, it, seriously, you guys, like, oh, my goodness. This movie, I could basically watch this over and over. Uh, like, I could watch it all the way through. And then when it's over just hit play again. It's one yeah. of those movies for me. I think it's so well done. And I love, you know, I usually don't love this. And this is how you know that Spielberg is kind of a master. Um, he waits a really long time to really show you the shark. 
But the way that it's done, and, and we know this from history that there are reasons for that, but they didn't have a great budget for the shark. Not by design, <laughs> but yeah, he did work out that way. <laughs> right, exactly. But he, he actually, he's one of these innovative filmmakers who took limitations and, and used it to be extra creative, which is something that I love that a lot of indie filmmakers are forced to do. They don't have a high budget, and so they're able to, you know, kind of think outside the box to make something great. And I think that's what Spielberg did here with Jaws. And, and the reason why I love it so much is because um, it, Jaws becomes a monster that is like the, the same kind of monster even as uh, Michael Myers or, or Jason because he is an unstoppable force, <laughs> essentially, because he, he has just no mercy and, and just nothing. It's just cold black killer. I mean, it, and, and for me, I mean, you feel that when you watch the movie you, and you see that shark's black eyes. I mean, this made people in the 1970s, it made people afraid to go in the water. And, and it was like this cultural, um, it, it actually influenced the culture. Yeah, it, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys. Is that not true? I mean, people were scared to go in the water oh, yeah. because of Jaws. Oh. I'm still scared to go in the water because of Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm scared to go in my bathtub because of Jaws. But no, but but seriously, like a, a film that can do that. I mean, that's one reason why I love the cinema so much is because it can literally be life changing for people. And this film, it did that on so for so many people and it still resonates today. It still holds up. And so uh, Jaws is a definite must own. Mm. And that's my number eight. Absolutely. Hey, doctor. I, I love Jaws. I think Jaws is one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, but and you and I've talked about this. I don't discount it. I, I I can see it as horrific and having that horror element. But I I don't usually associate the the what you call beastly freaks. Right. <laughs> That's not what comes to mind immediately. And uh, the majority of my list is supernatural. Uh, that's really where I where I zone in on my horror, and so I think Jaws is scary, but I, I see it so much more as a kind of a, a man versus nature adventure film. But you are right; it is a brilliant movie. It's a great movie. If anybody listening has not seen Jaws, shame on you. Right. Uh, <laughs> go watch it right now. Pause this. Go watch Jaws, then come back. Uh, okay, my number eight. And it was it. It pains me that it's this low on my list, uh, but I just have seven really awesome movies ahead of it. Uh, but this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, my wife and I watch it almost annually, uh, and I've and Josh has been making me feel guilty because as the filmmaker, he's been acknowledging the film producers, and I, I've been ignoring <laughs> that. Uh, but this is this is a classic. It changed the world. It's John Carpenter's Halloween, nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, we try to watch Halloween every Halloween, and I've seen that movie so many times, and it's still scary. <laughs> but the scariest moment in that movie to me doesn't have anything directly to do with Michael Myers. It's when he drives up on to the insane asylum, and all the the people are wandering around <laughs> in their in their white sheets. So That's, like zombies. Oh yeah, it's just <laughs> you know this is something on on Jay's comment. In a way, the the mentally insane are frightening. Right. Uh, they really are because they're uncanny. They look like us, but they've lost their normal faculties. Uh, we're terrified because of the threat. You know, there but for the grace of God, go go you. 
you know, I would rather die than go insane. I would rather die than get severe Alzheimer's because I don't want to be trapped inside a body or, or lacking in any way. So in a lot of ways, it's the, the criminally insane that is scary to me. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the other part of that movie is it is masterfully shot. It's so quiet and so subtle and when you go back and watch it, you realize that Mike Myers is in so many more frames than you think he is <laughs> that it's like, oh, my gosh, he's right there. He's in the background. He's he's right off camera. Oh, yeah. He's in the corner. Yes. And the other thing that makes it scary, and I'm going to talk about this with a couple of the other films, what, what scares me about it is not the morality tale where he's killing the kids who are sleeping around and disobeying their parents and doing drugs. You know, that's pretty standard. What's scary at the ending is when he threatens the children. And maybe it's because I'm a parent now, you know, and I'm getting older. But but <laughs> the idea of Jamie Lee Curtis kind of having to put herself between this juggernaut and these innocent little children, man, that's scary. Right. Uh, and, you know, the fact that the dude just won't stay down. <laughs> Cla- classic fear. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a, that's a great pick. And I'll tell you what, uh, you probably just went to the top of everybody's list here as their favorite, <laughs> right? As of right now, because, um, we have, there are so many Halloween fans and they, and when I say fan, I mean fanatic. So that's going to be a very popular pick. Good job. Okay. Josh, what about you for your number eight? Okay. Let's see. My number eight is, well, you know, Kyle said that being Dr. Walking Dead, he actually isn't fond of too many uh, zombie movies. As Wolfman Josh, um, I'm a lover of monster movies, and I love the creature of the werewolf, but there are so few good werewolf movies. It's <laughs> yep. just sad. It's yeah. really sad. True. And, of course, the original Wolfman will always have a place in my heart, but this one, my number eight pick, is a 1981 comedy horror cult classic film by John Landis, called an American werewolf in London. And um, (laughs) it's about a couple of American backpackers who run into a werewolf on the moors outside of London. Uh, One of them is killed. The other one begins to kind of slowly transform into a wolf himself and hilarity ensues as a co-host of another podcast we do would say. (laughs) Um, And it is kind of a funny movie. And the first time I saw that, um, well, for several years, the comedy aspect of this film actually kind of turned me off um, because I wanted it to be such an intense, um, you know, werewolf experience. Um, and, um, you know, the transfer, the werewolf transformation in this film is so good. You know, it's, I'm sure seen yes. as one of the absolute best werewolf effects ever. Amen. Um, that's funny if you compare it to like another film, I think it was even the same year of the howling, um, which has such a terrible werewolf transformation in compare. That one has a cool idea too, but this is just so amazing. I think it probably goes unrivaled, today in a lot of ways because now they just use stupid cgi transformations but um, <laughs> but eventually yeah i mean eventually the comedy aspect of this grew on me as well and it's just a really fun watchable film um i don't think you have to necessarily be a werewolf fan to enjoy it or even a horror fan um but but yeah for me it is definitely a must see in the werewolf genre subgenre of horror yeah, I'm glad you have it on there because after I made my list uh, and checked it twice, as they say, uh, I was shocked. I don't have a single werewolf movie and I don't have a single vampire movie. <laughs> wow. uh, and I feel kind of bad about that. But 
werewolves interest me and actually kind of fascinate me because of the whole, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, it and ego, all that psychoanalytic stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I love vampires. I really do love vampires and vampire narratives, but they don't scare me. Vampires do not scare me at all. So, so I'm glad to see some classic uh, movie monsters on the list. So Absolutely. Not even uh, Salem's Lot or 30 Days of Night, no? Uh, Salem's Lot doesn't work for me as a film because it was a made-for-TV movie, and I think that hurt it. I think the novel is scary. Mm-hmm. The vampire uh, I, is creepy as all get I'm, out. I'm much more scared by vampire novels. Okay. Uh, and then 30 Days of Night just ticked me off because I have such a uh, basic con- concept of the tilt of the earth. Uh, that <laughs> The whole idea of 30 Days of Night I can't get behind, and I can't even suspend the disbelief. Yeah. I don't know, man. I've been to the I've been to the interior of Alaska where it has been pretty dark almost all yeah, day. I've, but it I've doesn't go from a normal day to thirty days of night to then a normal sunrise. Oh, that's true. It's it's <laughs> gradual. The Earth it moves slowly. Yeah. Anyway, Fair tangent. All right. all right. So um, we're we're up to our next question here. Uh, during the nineteen. No, let's see. <laughs> During the 82nd Academy Awards ceremony, horror was cited as the most popular genre. And so why do you guys think that horror is so popular? And then, um, but yeah, let's just go from there. What do you think, Wolfman? My answer to this is probably going to be unpopular. <laughs> if I had to guess, I'd have to say that it's because most people go to the movies for escapism. Right? They want a thrill, and horror is kind of the easiest way to get a surefire thrill, I think. You know, where a drama takes a lot more work on the audience's behalf, and comedy is so subjective, I think horror can immediately carry away. Fear is such an easy emotion to tap into for a filmmaker. You know, my kids, um, they don't have a lot of experience with scary movies yet. I have shown them some classic films, though I have tried to desensitize them from an early age with stuff like Scooby-Doo and any monster <laughs> movies I can get them to watch that won't give them nightmares. But You're a good um, dad. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I've tried to make fear fun and exhilarating for them like it is for me so that you know they'll want to watch movies with me and I'll have a good horror buddy when they grow up. But um, <laughs> But it's weird. Like They'll watch stuff just a normal movie and they can immediately tell if a scene is supposed to be scary. And I'll say my kids are two and five. So, um, and the five-year-old just turned five and I was watching Harry and the Hendersons with them the other day, which is a totally, you know, light comedy movie with, you know, a a large beast in there that could possibly be scary for little kids. But uh, (laughs) the movie starts with kind of this fake out scare, um, that's really supposed to be a comedy beat. And there's just a simple POV shot going through the woods with some slightly like dark, you know, heavy tonal ambient unsettling music. And uh, my four year old or five year old immediately covered her eyes and ran away and told me to fast forward it. She, you know, thinks it's, she could tell that it was horrifying. And so, you know, she hasn't seen Halloween and she hasn't seen Friday the 13th and she shouldn't know that this is scary, but it, I think it just works immediately. And yeah. so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think horror really works when you can put the responsibility for scares back on the audience and um, most do that pretty easily. And I, so I think that's, you know, and that's, I think why the jump scare works actually. And I think that's why horror is so popular because it just immediately can work. Well done. Well said. Okay. What about you, Dr. Walking dead? Uh, Wolfman nailed it, man. I don't think it's, I don't think it's reductive. I think, I think escapism, the, you know, the fancy Greek term is catharsis. 
Uh, people want to go and right. see horrible stuff. Because, right. you know, horror is not new. The Greeks wanted to go and see, uh, see a woman slaughter her children. Granted, it was off stage, But the idea was, how do you keep a society in check? Well, you give them harmless ways to uh, release these horrible impulses and desires. So, so horror is a pressure valve. The purge. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> so we can go to a movie and when it's really violent. And of course, video games do this a lot today as well. And then you're, some studies are showing that you're less prone to actually be violent because you got to uh, cathartically or, or uh, act it out in, in a different way. And I think the other part, because so many film goers, especially in the theater, are are teenagers, uh, horror is forbidden. So people want to go to to horror movies because they're not supposed to go to horror movies. And there, so many of them are R-rated, and they're not supposed to go to horror movies. So they're going to sneak in, or they're going to get their older buddy or brother to buy the tickets. And so I think there is a certain allure to that transgression and that trespass against what is appropriate entertainment or what is uh, socially acceptable. And, and we have other questions where we're going to get into this, uh, but I think that's where it's, it's one of those taboos that's still acceptable mm-hmm. where, you know, you can take a date to a horror movie, but you have to kind of have a special relationship to take a date to a porno. So, <laughs> so I, I think that it's still in that realm where you can, you can have that experience that's, that's, you know, not normal, not accepted in some ways, transgressive, and then work out these easily accessible emotions, like like Wolfman said. It's, it's an instantaneous response. You don't really have to know anything about film grammar to get horror. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just is, and it's visceral, and it punches you in the gut, and it gives you nightmares, and who doesn't love that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you guys. That that was uh, very well described, and I agree too about the thrill. I mean, for me, a horror movie is like riding a roller coaster. I mean, it's essentially the same kind of thing, except I love it even more because I'm scared, but then I know that I'm in no danger. I love being able to just sit in the comfort of my own home or whatever and know that I'm not actually in danger, but feeling like I am. I think that's awesome. And uh, Alan Jones, he's the author of uh, The Rough Guide to Horror Movies. Uh, he, he wrote uh, something really neat about this. I thought he captured it really well. He said, The urge to scare oneself witless might seem masochistic, but exploring the notion of fear is revealing. We can open ourselves up to being scared if we know that no harm will befall us. And it's the wave of relief once the fright is over that makes being scared so much fun. Unquote. Mm. So yeah, great. I, I agree with that. And then the other thing, and, and I, you guys have already said it, the exploitation. I do think that there's kind of a little bit darker part of our natures where we are um, morbidly curious about the killing. And, you know, horror has a lot of salaciousness in it as well, as far as like nudity and sex scenes and stuff. And I think that people are attracted to that. So I think that's also part of it. And then I agree with what Dr. Walking Dead said about that concept of the ideological safety valve where we feel that need to um, vicariously act out these these acts that are the darker part of our nature, and it gives us some sort of relief. So I, I totally back you on that, and it's not that I want to kill people, but, you know, sometimes I'm in traffic, somebody does something, <laughs> you 
know, so maybe a little, like maybe a little bit. I want to kill people, you know, but I, I'm not actually, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then you we watch, know what you're saying. <laughs> you watch a horror movie and then you feel better. I will never kill anybody, but, but, um, I do agree with that. I think there's some merit in it for sure. Well, and uh, you just made me think that there's, uh, there's also kind of a dare factor, yeah. which, which is why horror films, I think get more repeat viewings in the mm, theater yeah. than some other films, because you go to a movie, it's really off the wall, horrible, scary, gory. You can't believe it. So what do you do? You go get your friends and say, you got to come watch this. Right. Uh, you're you're, you're going to walk out, man. You can't handle it. And so we kind of push each other and it becomes in a lot of ways a little bit more of a, of a collective experience. Yes. Because there's certain genres of movie I'd rather watch alone in my house. And there's other movies that I really want to watch in a theater with a bunch of people. And horror is one of them. And horror is the one I recommend the most because I want them to have the experience I had and to see if they could take it like I could take it. (laughs) That's hilarious. So why do you love horror personally, Dr. Walking Dead? You know, I think about this a lot and my mom thinks about it even more. (laughs) Uh, I think, and I'm going to be, this is going to be really open disclosure. So this is, special time with the listeners. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm also here in Utah and I was raised in a, in a pretty conservative environment. And, and for me, uh, we weren't allowed, you know, we weren't supposed to see R rated movies and R rated movies were a thing that you didn't do and you didn't watch. And violence was bad and sex was bad and gore was, was bad. And so I went almost 20 years of my life without really seeing horror and without really knowing what horror was and being, you know, by the the world standard, pretty sheltered. And so then when I kind of became an adult and went away to college, uh, you were talking about the the video stores. Uh, I got a video card and a VCR and a TV for my dorm room, and I watched every forbidden horror movie I could rent (laughs) and all the movies that I had never seen and that I'd heard so much about. (laughs) And I just kind of, you know, it was like having a first drink of alcohol and just going, what other alcohol is out there? I bet you didn't sleep very well in college, right? You didn't sleep very (laughs) well. I watched a lot of stuff. and um, But here's the other thing. I don't really like being scared. And horror movies don't scare me a lot. Other things scare me more than horror movies. Like, I won't go to spook alleys. I don't like people jumping out at me in real life. (laughs) But there was that sense of owning something which had been forbidden and then taking charge of something which is is challenging in a lot of ways. And so, sure, I I get the catharsis as well. and, And I get that idea of overcoming something which is a challenge. But to me, it was really exploring something which has, had been forbidden and then finding merit. And that's where I'm at today. As an academic, as a professional in an English department, I like to write about horror movies because all my colleagues think they're crap. <laughs> and so I want to stand up for horror movies. I want to champion the genre. I want to make an argument that it's a relevant work of art and culturally significant. And that's kind of been my professional crusade. Wow, that was a very good answer. Okay, what about you, Wolfman? Why do you love horror personally? I mean, I think it just is that simple idea of, like you said, being able to be scared and and feel that fear without it being real. I mean, that's it's pretty basic, but you know, it's a it's a fun experience for me. So, um, you know, I just love that kind of exhilarating roller coaster ride. You know, the visceral 
feeling of it. And I get really into movies. Unlike, unlike Dr. Walking Dead, I get completely sucked in. I like to immerse myself in the feeling and tone of a movie. I, I, if I know what happens, I kind of pretend I don't, I kind of lie to myself and pretend and I'll rewatch these movies a hundred times and kind of (laughs) trick myself into not knowing how it's going to end. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the main thing for me. I also respond, I think, intellectually to films that have kind of a deeper social, political, moral implication that are delivered through the genre elements. Um, you know, and and you know that's comes up most in I think zombie movies and you know slashers possibly, but um, but I love that kind of stuff. And um, and I also just like the basic cerebral fun. I like mysteries um, and giallos. I've mentioned. A couple times, I really like kind of trying to figure out uh, a mystery, a whodunit. So all of those elements kind of play into my love of horror films. It's kind of fun to be scared, basically. Yeah. Well, I, I envy you, Wolfman, because I think that one of the uh, the negative side effects of my profession is I'm so analytical now that <laughs> and and I and I think it's great that you, as a filmmaker, can step away from analyzing every shot and every cut and and all that technical stuff. but but I, I do struggle with the escapism because I'm always analyzing and thinking and reading. Yeah. and and so it, that's something I need to work on. Well, I think that comes from watching rewatching the movies a lot of times because I think the first time I see a movie, I can't help but dissect it, you know. Um, and so I think, yeah, I mean, you know, a film like, I don't want to mention anything that might be on my list, a film that I've seen <laughs> hundreds of times, you know, I, I'm not looking at that anymore. I'm so familiar with the film that that doesn't become an issue. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely, I have a harder time enjoying films at the theater for that that reason. <laughs> well, and, and for me, the reason I love horror personally is because, um, number one, I, I love to see a filmmaker work his or her magic on me like when when they actually get me I mean I can appreciate it when they can successfully manipulate my emotions to that point where they're getting a physical reaction out of me and what's really impressive about that is you know going in that they're going to try to do that to you so you're kind of on guard and you've got that that dare mentality that Dr. Rocking Dead was talking about and you know it's the same thing with comedians it's like you you know, an audience sits in front of a comedian. It's like, yeah, I dare you to make me laugh. Try it. And the same thing with these people. So I, I appreciate that. And then this is a little personal, you know, a personal time with Jay of the Dead here. Um, I have a really good life. I'm very blessed. You know, it's not perfect in every way. And But when I see a horror film and what's going on with these people in this film, no matter what my stressors are or what, no matter what is amiss in my own life, after I come out of that horror movie, it's like, oh, my life is great. It just makes my life seem a lot, a lot easier. And honestly, I, I you know, I kind of I use horror movies as kind of therapy in that way where I can be more appreciative and more grateful. So it's a relief and it is a catharsis for me. Absolutely. Yeah. OK. So in my experience, you guys, the the horror genre and its fans are really they seem to be looked down upon you know, by society. I mean, that's, that's what I've encountered. I mean, it seems like horror is regarded as just like a step above pornography. And you even said that Kyle, that, you know, you could take your girlfriend to horror movie, but you know, you can't really take her to a porno unless you have a very special relationship. So so with all of its awful depictions of like evil and depravity in the name of mere entertainment, because really that's why a lot of people go see it just for entertainment. 
How do you guys, as decent human beings and family men, how can you justify watching such content? Is it immoral to be a horror fan? Dr. Walking Dead. Well, short answer, no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's immoral to emulate the behaviors seen in horror films. Uh, but this, this, this question dovetails nicely into the previous one, because the whole point of catharsis is to purge these things from your system, to, to make you a, to make it easier to be a human being, to make it easier to be a good family man. And I think that uh, the acceptance of the horror genre is shifting. I think it's becoming increasingly more mainstream, particularly as the generations age. So, you know, cause, cause we're all, we're not spring chickens anymore, right? We're, we're all entering into middle age and a lot of the horror podcasters are, are parents. And, 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 and so I think there is a little bit of a shift traditionally though. Yes. It's, it's considered to be B-grade culture, lowbrow culture, dep de depraved culture, if if you even allow that it's culture at all. <laughs> uh, and I think that if you look carefully, most horror movies are actually very moral and very conservative right. in their values, particularly in the 70s, mm -hmm. uh, where they're almost like Chaucer-esque morality tales. Uh, and so there's a lot of redemptive qualities and things you can learn from them. Now, recently, uh, as we get into these really, you were mentioning, Jay, the, the shock films, where they're just really wallowing in torture and uh, depraved uh, abuse of other people. Is that a problem? Well, here's the thing. We all need to be somewhat selective of what we expose ourselves to. <laughs> And that's extremely subjective. So a film that I yeah. would consider to be inappropriate for me to watch may not be inappropriate for someone else to watch. And there's no way, even though people have tried over and over and over again to link media to behavior, there, there's no foundation for any of that. I mean, you can watch tons and tons of horror movies and be the nicest person on the planet. You can watch nothing but Disney movies and become a serial killer. So <laughs> I don't, I don't see a link there. That's awesome. Okay. What about you, Wolfman? I mean, I think the good doctor here nailed it right on the head for me. I mean, I think it's kind of a difficult question. I don't in any way think it's a moral simply to be a horror fan, but I do understand the concern, you know, like we're spending so much time looking at the stuff that is, morally questionable you know i mean like you know i mean it's kind of all been said i do think there's some truth to the notion that filling an unstable mind with gruesome thoughts and images could be dangerous but i don't know how to one would regulate something like that except for within yourself and your own viewing habits so i mean i think a depraved person is going to find fuel for their sickness regardless of whether or not these movies are available so personally as someone who works in film, I think about it kind of from the filmmaker point of view. And I think the filmmakers do have some responsibility um, because filmmakers make choices. Everything that appears on the screen is a choice. And while, you know, art is meant to kind of push boundaries to a degree, I'd say um, just as with a scientist that is pushing boundaries in their area of expertise, you can go too far. Or at least the debate, you know, exists about going too far. Um and I don't like to judge audiences or filmmakers, you know, um, when I can help it. And I actually think horror plays kind of an important role in society for some of the reasons we've mentioned. Um, but ultimately, I think it just really depends on the viewer. Okay. Good answer. And, and as for me, 
just to be really honest, this is probably going to become a kind of unpopular answer, but on a very base like animal level, okay, horror allows us to go places or to see things in society that, that we would never be permitted to see or go, you know, legally. So, so there's that. So if we're being really honest about it, but I, I am conflicted over this very thing. And that's why I pose the question, because when I was younger and more naive about the world, uh, horror movies were just good, harmless fun. Seriously, I watched, I watched a lot of horror movies out with my cousins at my aunt and uncle's house. They had HBO. <laughs> We'd watch horror stuff on there, <laughs> and I loved it. It was just as innocent as like a thrill ride, like a roller coaster, like I said earlier. But now that I'm an adult and I'm, I'm a religious, church-going type. I'm a family man. I, I do feel when I spend time watching horror movies, especially if I watch a lot of them. I do sometimes feel like I'm, you know, <laughs> what's the word, kind of spending time hanging out with the wrong team, so to speak, <laughs> <laughs> like on, on the wrong side of the line. And it's like, um, because <laughs> anyway, and that's why I like certain, certain subgenres better than others, you know, in horror, which I'll, I'll list my favorites later. But like, that's why I'm not really too into demonic possession horror movies. I think they're very scary. And because like like Dr. Walking Dead, I think there is a, a degree of plausibility to them. Um, you know, it it's hard for me to give them a lot of attention because again, I feel like I'm spending too much time with the other team. But so, uh, you know, and I'm a Christian, so I am conflicted about digging into horror. I, I've seen websites, you know, I think there's a website out there called something about Christians who love horror or something like that. And uh, so I I, th- I would like to look into that and see how those people kind of, I, I guess, feel harmony about it. But but for me, I think it's interesting. The most interesting thing about this is uh, horror really is a ki- kind of a, an examination into death and our feelings about death, like I talked about in the first question. And a lot, it's, it addresses our fear of death. And ironically, religion is kind of fitted to address that as well. So I guess there's no excuse or justification in my book because religion provides us that way to like address our fears of death as well. And so, yeah, I'm still conflicted on that to be really honest with you guys, but I do know that I love it. And uh, so that's kind of my take. (laughs) I would say that horror serves a different function from religion though in that, in that way. I mean, yeah, I mean, religion gives you a sense of, what may be beyond and maybe helps you deal with feelings of fear of, of death. But you know, the horror movies are, uh, they're, they're preparing you for the nuts and bolts of death, you know, the ABCs <laughs> of death to, you know, to quote a recent, uh, anthology film. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think there is something to that, um, to, to be able to deal with your own mortality, um, I think is, uh, definitely something that I've, had to struggle with at certain points in my life that, you know, weighs on me very heavily at some points. So, um, especially I think having kids, um, yeah. the idea that like, well, oh, we'll yeah. be gone soon, you know, <laughs> like it's, uh, you know, it's something that we grapple with, I think as humans. And I think it's something different, definitely interesting to explore. Well, what I keep trying to tell myself, you guys is why can't I just, cause I know a lot of people out there view it this way um and in fact some of our good fellow podcasting friends view it this innocently it's like why can't i just 
regard horror or look at horror the way I did when I was young. And it's just, it's just a fun thing. It's just a thrill ride. It's a hobby. It's a, it's an escape. Like, you know, I keep trying to tell myself that. And so I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll be able to, you know, talk myself into that. But what, what are your thoughts on that, Kyle? Well, it's, it's so subjective, man. Yes. And I, I mentioned this before, and we're going to talk about some uh, some more examples later. There are horror movies that I watch that are just good, clean fun, and I don't think twice about them. Uh, there's other horror movies where I really have to kind of parse it out and figure out what it's saying and what it's offering me and what I'm getting out of it. And then there's other movies I watch, and I'll mention an example later. I'm going to – that's a little teaser – <laughs> Where I watched a movie, and after it was done, I actually thought, I wish I had not seen that. That was a huge mistake. And so wow. you got to be careful. And I think that's why shows like this are valuable, because they give people information so they can make their decisions, uh, decisions they can live with. Because media does saturate who we are. It gets into our consciousness, our subconsciousness. It gets into our dreams. Uh, it can, if you watch too much of any genre or play too many video games of any kind, it's going to start affecting your ability to interact with people around you. Well said. So you have to be careful. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I know a lot of people who have really screwed up versions of love from watching romantic comedies <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the thesis of high fidelity. <laughs> That's hilarious. And now for our first specialty segment, which is going to be mine. Oh, I'm excited. Jay of the Dead. Okay. That was good. No, thank you. Thank you. Was the last part of the part of No, that was me laughing right now, actually. (laughs) 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 That was awesome. That would have been even scarier. (laughs) I gotta tell the listeners uh, a couple things real quick. Number one, uh, each of us was responsible. We actually created our own intro for our little specialty segment. So that was mine. And I'm super proud of these guys, um, Wolfman Josh and Dr. Rocking Dead, because they made their own as well. And so just know and appreciate that, I guess. But my my segment is called Jay of the Dead's Beastly Freaks. And uh, for this segment, I'm going to be specializing in one of my favorite horror subgenres, and that is the creature feature. And by creature feature, I mean any movie where the monster is some kind of killer beast or a mutant or a freak of nature or a mutated thing. I mean, I said mutant already, but or, or even an unusually large animal or a vicious killer animal. So that's why earlier we referred to Jaws. Um, you know, great white sharks kill people. Sure. I mean, they are, you know, beasts, but Jaws was just especially vindictive killer. So he was kind of a freak in that way. Yeah. And, and and so that that so anything like that. So I'm talking my segment will cover anything from Alien to Cujo and anything in between. If it's a beastly freak, I'm interested in it. Now, I'm not going to spoil anything here, but I want to say Wolfman and I have actually related segments. But to be clear, I'm actually going to try to pick creature features that take themselves seriously, which is to say, you know, there's a difference between the B B movie monster movies and then there's like the ridiculous ones that are just silly and funny and over the top. And so mine are mine are more serious, like in the alien type of vein and things like that. And um and the other thing also is yours are recommendations. Well, I'm that's the other part. I'm glad you brought that up, Wolfman. I'm really gonna try to find recommendations for people 
Um, but there are so many terrible movies in this yeah. in this subgenre that, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that I'll be able to come up with a strong recommendation every single time. But what I'll do, it's I still hope it's going to be valuable to you listeners because what I'm going to do is I'm still going to watch the film and review it and give you my my take on it and give you my rating and recommendation. So, but it will always be a beastly freak movie. So. My, my first one is from 1997, and it's a film called The Relic. And this is an adaptation from a novel just called Relic. And in this movie, it, it was directed by um, Peter, is it Himes or Hyams? Do you know, Josh? I don't know the pronunciation on that. Okay. Well, I'm he, so glad you're talking about this movie. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, he, he's really more of a sci-fi director, and it actually shows, uh, he directed, just for your information, he directed Capricorn 1, which is a cool sci-fi movie, 2010, Time Cop, and End of Days. So that gives you a little flavor. And The Relic stars Tom Sizemore and Penelope Ann Miller. And here's the premise. Um, John Whitney is a collector of artifacts and relics and other objects from remote tribes around the world uh, for the Natural History Museum in Chicago. And one of his shipments back to the museum contains a relic that also has these weird leaves and parasitic fungus and, you know, this weird stuff in it. So before you know it, a museum worker is found decapitated with a hole in his head and part of his brain is ripped out. And this murder seems related to the decapitated victims on the ship that was carrying the crates to the museum. So um, Tom Sizemore here, he plays a cop who's investigating these murders. And then Penelope Ann Miller, she plays this evolutionary uh, biologist, I guess. And she works for the museum. And so basically... And ben Stiller plays the night security guard. Right? No, no. <laughs> no, there's no Ben Stiller in this, but that's funny. Oh, okay. And, and so uh, <laughs> they're, they're trying to wrap up this bizarre case and they team up together and they, they want to try to get these murders solved and catch the killer because they think it's a person and not a beastly freak. <laughs> they want to catch the the murderer before the museum's big uh, gala, which will have the Chicago mayor and these other elite people from the city. And so that's basically the premise. And obviously, as I said, the killer is not a person, but it is a beastly freak. And so um, Josh talked about this earlier, but as far as the genre for this, you should know up front that this movie is one of those weird blends of many things, kind of like this beastly freak itself. Um, it begins as a mystery or kind of like a police procedural. And then it turns into an action sci-fi, like action sci-fi thriller blend. And then after about 75 minutes into the film, it finally turns into a horror movie. So it does become horror um, near the end. And that's really my big first, my first big negative on this movie. Because The Relic is just another one of those 90s horror movies and we've talked about this before on the Horror Palace episode. Um, 90s was kind of a rough dec decade for horror for the most part. And it did have a lot of genre blending. But um, about this movie, The Relic, uh, Roger Ebert, who's not really known to be a horror fan, he actually gave The Relic three stars. And he, he said that he liked the blending of genres. And he, he wrote, it's clever the way the movie combines the conventions of the horror and disaster genres. Although this is technically a science fiction movie about a mutant monster, the museum guests are in roughly the same predicament as in a disaster movie, trapped, in danger, and helpless to escape. And I guess I did kind of appreciate that too because, you know, it left a feeding frenzy for the beastly freak when they're trapped inside. 
But I, I do want to tell the listeners, the thing is, when I mean, right now as we record this, it's currently streaming on Netflix Watch Instantly. I don't know if it will be still when we release the episode, but the opening scene when you watch this, it looks exactly and feels exactly like an X-Files opening. <laughs> and and hmm. and it really, it doesn't get to the more explicit gore scenes until the end. And, and so until that, it really seems and feels like a made-for-TV movie. And another problem I have with this film is how dark it is. And I mean, there's very little lighting in the scenes. And it's not because they're trying to hide the special effects, which are really good, actually. And it's not because they're trying to make it creepy. I mean, it's dark in so many scenes that are just dialogue and they don't need to be dark. And so that's really irritating because I only felt like I saw half the film. Um, But what I am excited to tell you guys about is the beastly freak itself. The creature effects in this were done by the late, great Stan Winston. And for those who don't know him, trust me, trust me, you do. (laughs) Stan Winston is the, um, he was to creature effects as Tom Savini is to makeup effects. Um, He did the Terminator films, one through four, Aliens, Predator, Lake Placid, Darkness Falls. He did the Tooth Fairy in that even did Iron Man, so he, he's really incredible at that stuff. But but this creature does have kind of a little bit of a Predator look to it, and it's also kind of a cross between, um, like I said, the Predator and then a rhino, that rhino slash Triceratops creature that's in the Gladiator Stadium near the end of Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of big like that, so it has like kind of a Predator-like face and that body of that thing. And it's big, and and my favorite part about this creature is the way that it runs. It kind of gallops in a really muscular way and attacks its victims, and it and it gives it a lot of weight. I have to like it feels when you're watching the film and you see this monster running toward a victim because like the camera is where you are because you're the viewer, and then there's the victim in between you and the beastly freak, so you see it in the background running toward the victim. And it feels like the the floor should be shaking or something. So that's pretty awesome. And that's really the only reason that creature is the biggest reason I'm even talking about this movie on this podcast. So I'm going to tell you right now, you get your first glimpse of the monster at like 39 minutes in. And there are a few deaths in the first half of the film, but they all happen, happen off screen. And then it takes an hour and about an hour and 15 minutes before the main characters are threatened by the monster. And then... After an hour and 21 minutes, you guys, you finally get to see the monster. And so this is not like Jaws where it's like worth it. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like in Jaws, Spielberg was able to like uh, create suspense and it was genuinely suspenseful. In this movie, I just got impatient. I was kind of bored. I actually paused it because I saw this a long time ago. But I paused it and I went to Google Images and I looked up the relic because I was sick of waiting to see what the monster looked like. I had forgotten and I just wanted to see it again because I remembered that it was worth it, but I wanted to look at it. So anyway, I'm predicting that most horror fans out there are going to be bored by the first 75 minutes of this movie like I was. So I'm going to move into my ratings. Almost my entire rating, almost every point of it goes to Stan Winston's creature for the film. There was one decent beheading scene that they show where the creature beheads um, an individual, and that's figured into my score, too. So I'm coming in at a 5.5 out of 10. I'm saying it's a low-priority rental, but it's worth checking out someday just so you can see this beastly freak. And um, I should tell you, too, that the movie is about an hour and 50 minutes long, so make sure you have something else to do while you're sitting through the first like 75 minutes of it. 
And like I said, it's streaming right now on um, Netflix Watch Instantly. So that's The Relic. It's a 5.5 low priority rental. I I thought the movie was surprisingly good. I mean, I haven't seen it since it came out, so I would have to revisit it before I could ever get a rating on it or anything like that. But I, I just expected so little when I went to the theater, and mm. I was really pleasantly surprised with my watch of it. Sure, yeah. Oh, so many years ago. I think it's. I would love to watch it again. I was so happy when you said it. I was like, oh, man, I want to watch that movie. Yeah, brother. It's streaming on Netflix. So check it out. Let me know what you think. I'm curious. Absolutely. Okay. So um, next question, you guys, do you think that viewing horror comes with a price? And what I mean by that is, do you think that a steady diet of watching horror movies can take its toll on a viewer? Because, for example, I know a friend, my, my good friend Bill Shetty, who is like a horror maven, <laughs> he, he strictly watches horror and horror only, and that's it. And so I just want to know that for you, generally speaking, not, not talking about Bill Shetty, of course, but generally speaking, do you think it takes a toll on a person in some way? So um, what about you, Wolfman? It was a bit similar to the last question for me. Um, I know that horror does take a toll on me personally. Um, like, I wouldn't have said that before I started horror podcasting, actually. But now <laughs> having emerged, like submerged myself so much in that world and when all I watch for a long time may be horror, I've noticed my paranoia increases for sure. <laughs> like, and I, I mentioned this on our other podcast, but the way I lock my doors at night or close my shades, um, you know, is definitely like a whole different tone than, you know, than <laughs> it is, you know, on a normal night. I've slept with a weapon by the side of my bed before at the height of my paranoia. <laughs> I mean, when horror is all I'm consuming, it can be too much for me personally. But as a part of a well-balanced cinematic diet, I guess, um, it is one of my favorite dishes, you know. Okay. Well it's said. like dessert. <laughs> you may want to eat it all the time and nothing else, but there may be consequences as well. That's hilarious that you said it because that's in my answer too. I'll just go right into mine because when I'm on a steady diet of horror films, I actually start feeling physically sick a tiny bit. <laughs> I'm serious. It physically affects me. And, and, and Wolfman, I had the same experience when I very first started the weekly horror movie podcast. I, you know, I was on it. I, to watch so many movies for that podcast, I was on a pretty much a strict diet of horror and horror only. And I watched it yeah. several a week. And, um, what was happening was like my body started getting sick and I just thought it was weird and then I quit that podcast for a while and then we started up Horror Metropolis again and it started happening again. <laughs> so so, so it, it does affect me. And the best way I can describe it is what you've already said is like if you've eaten tons of Halloween candy and then if somebody tried to give you like French toast or dessert and then you're just kind of too sugared out. So sometimes I hate to admit it to the horror fans out there, but I do get a little bit horrored out, so to speak. And I think it's just because I can't ingest that much negativity for that long without having some kind of an effect on me. But you also have to understand, like, when you're doing a podcast or something, you watch so many more than the average viewer does, I think. I remember um, when I was doing Land of the Creeps for that time, they'd be like, okay, so next week we're, we're reviewing all of the Friday the 13th movies plus <laughs> a recommendation plus whatever you've been watching. Like, I'm like, what? Right. It's like seven movies by next week, you know? <laughs> So, um, yeah, I mean, hardcore. yeah, it's hard. They are hardcore. That's awesome. Okay. What about you, Dr. Walking Dead? Well, to quote my people, moderation in all things. <laughs> I, I think that, I think I, the, the dessert analogy is perfect. Uh, I think if you do anything too much, it messes with you. 
Uh, I remember when I was young and Tetris just came out. I played Tetris all day once. <laughs> and then all night in my dreams, I was just moving blocks around. <laughs> and so I, I think you need variety in your diet. I think that's the metaphor. You can't just eat the same thing all the time because it's unhealthy and it messes you up and, and you get bored. And you want to break it up because we have all kinds of entertainment for a reason. So, you know, now and then it's good to watch a romance and to get in touch with that side of your psyche. Uh, it, it's good to to watch an inspirational sports movie now and then, which is my wife's favorite. Because um, otherwise you you, be, you end up becoming myopic as, a, as an individual and then you become kind of boring. And then you're the guy at the party where... People only want to come talk to you about horror movies, but nobody will talk to you about anything else. Right. So <laughs> a little diversity in life is a good thing. And I think too much of any media can take its toll. Sure. Yeah. I got you. Good answers. Okay. Well, um, and by the way, I have a feeling we're going to hear from the listeners on that. You guys aren't hardcore. You're not fans. Like I, Bring it on. <laughs> I can I can hear it coming now. Um, here's the next question. It's it's still hilarious to me. As long as I've been hanging out in the horror community, which I guess isn't as long as a lot of other people, but it's still so funny to me that, that we horror fans assess the quality of a horror film by the number of or the convincing and graphic nature of its kill scenes. And so I just wanted to get your take on what do you think of this morbid measuring stick, <laughs> Dr. Walking Dead? Well, yeah, there's certainly a one-upmanship in both the fans and the filmmakers. And that there is that idea of, uh, I mentioned this kind of earlier, that when you recommend a horror movie, a lot of times it isn't, oh, you got to see this. They're such carefully crafted characters. <laughs> right. You say, no, the thing at the end where he gets the thing you won't believe it. I, you know, that's, <laughs> people want to see that over the top, uh, what they've never seen before. And they want people to really push the boundaries. And that's why, you know, the Saw films were such a sensation because they were, you know, beyond the imagination of the average viewer. And they were so graphic and so, so photorealistic and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, to me, that's not my measuring stick, and I'm totally fine with people who love that. Uh, you know, I used to love Joe Bob Briggs's stuff uh, when he would host the the drive-in movie theater thing on TNT or whatever it was. <laughs> and, and he would do that, right? He'd do his drive-in totals and kind of talk about all the different morbid methods of murder and death and mayhem. And it's great, and it's cool, and we can revel in that, and I'm fine with that. But... But the quality of a horror film to me is always going to come back to mood and tone and my emotional yeah. reaction and whether I'm, I'm moved by it in a, maybe even a negative way, whether I remember it later, whether it makes it hard for me to sleep at night. And getting back to my initial definition, um, I'm far more interested in the terror. I'm, that's what I take to bed with me. Uh, I don't fixate on, on the gore nearly as much as other people. That said, you know, uh, in Land of the Dead, when th when that zombie pulls out the belly button ring, you're just like, awesome, awesome. <laughs> I've never seen that. So there's something about the originality and the innovation and just it being sick, just being beyond the realm of the normal. Right. Gotcha. Okay, Wolfman, what about you? I'm kind of there right there with Dr. Walking Dead. For me, good kills can be 
great if they support the film. To me, that's kind of the my judgment. That's where my measuring stick uh, comes into play is whether or not they kind of are supporting the rest of the film. And so, although I, you know, funnily enough, I will say that a weak kill can be a definite minus for me, like digital blood and bad practical oh, yeah. effects and bad blocking. Like that will take me out of a movie and lower my score almost immediately. Sure. And, and way more than good kills will raise my score actually. Um, but having said that, I, you know, I like a creative kill as much as the next guy. Um, the ones that or came first to my mind aren't exactly horror movies. Um, but, uh, the car crash and death proof is one of the most insane things <laughs> yeah. I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> Lizzie Kaplan exploding in Cloverfield really, uh, <laughs> affected me the first time I saw that. Yeah. Um, so for some more classic films, I mentioned Ro- Captain Rhodes and Day of the Dead. That's a big one for me. Johnny Depp's Death and a Nightmare on Elm Street is totally oh, yeah. easy and awesome. Yeah. Um, and this one's not particularly gory, but I like the conceit of the zombie kill of the week in Zombieland. That is about getting yeah. creative and the comedic juxtaposition of like these horrific circumstances the characters are in or they're supposed to be living through with this kind of cheesy game show element. So I just thought that was a lot of fun. Um I was watching recently the ABCs of death and that's actually interesting because the whole movie is based on these kills. <laughs> right. Have you seen right. that Jason? No, I have not. And I cannot wait to see it. It is streaming right now on Netflix um, oh, as we record. Uh, but wait, when you watch that first scene, tell me what you think of it because I think it is just wonderful. It's actually directed by the guy who did uh, the kind of like sci-fi horror time travel movie, time crimes. Oh. Um, Nice. But it is oh. such an awesome little scene. It starts with a surprising story element, has this over-the-top gore that's so outrageous it kind of registers as comedy, but then it goes back to a great story twist and then it ends up being completely motivated by like this deeper, more poignant character element. And that's all just this one kill. And so I think that's just genius if you can pull something like that off. And the gore is actually, you know, uh, commenting or... Uh, I can't think of the word I want to use right now, but it's um, making every part of the story better, basically, because of the way they, wow. they did it. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of what I like to see. Uh, my favorite, though, absolute favorite of all time would be The Killing of Bob in Halloween. I just love how crazy and creepy that is. Oh, oh man. Uh, and then also, um, I like the crazy sleeping bag kill in Friday the 13th Part 7, I think, has got to be. <laughs> when I first saw that, is, you know, I was like, whoa! <laughs> like, that freaked me out camping for a long time after that. Yes, yes. Wow, that was a great answer. You were loaded with lots of good examples. Excellent. I'm trying um, to get a couple of movie references in there because I, I appreciate that. You told me to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, and I'm, I've been the slacker on that tonight. I apologize. But um, I think that this... This ties in as far as the the you know the kills being our measuring stick of whether it's a good horror film or not. I think this ties into that whole preoccupation with death thing again because we do have a morbid curiosity about death and how it looks and how it happens and and I really think that this falls under the same classification as when we um, inexplicably, by the way, when we try to see something while we're driving past a car accident, and you know how you kind of slow down, and you don't really want to see a mangled body, but you kind of have to look on some level. I don't know if you guys have that experience, but I do. Like, I really don't want to see dead people, but I do sometimes, and I have before, and it's really haunting, and and I think that this is just kind of our way of running up to death and looking him in the face, and sometimes we even scoff, and then we run away real quick, you know. 
I think that metaphorically that's kind of what this is all about and 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 then there's a geek out quality to it too. I mean, we like to see how convincing they can portray this and I think there is a curiosity as well. What would it look like if somebody's, you know, head was blown off? Like um and and, and those are the ones for me is like in like the original Maniac, for example, there's a shotgun scene with the head exploding that's absolutely incredible. It looks real. And um that that's one of my all-time favorites and I I think I like those scenes like that versus whereas I don't like um <laughs> what that final destination all that ridiculous I, uh, uh, yeah. you guys know what I'm saying cuz it's just on and on and on and I forget what that um that that system is called there's a guy that we refer to in that that he has that those long traps where something leads to something else anyway sorry I even said all that but <laughs> I forget what it is but anyway I don't like that because it's not very realistic but the kills that really bother me the most and I guess bother me as in disturb me is like um I believe it is Maniac again like there's a there's a scene in the beginning of that one I don't know why that movie's in my head but um he, he strangles this prostitute and um it 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 really doesn't go very smoothly and and it's kind of, it's really disturb. It kind of shook me when I saw that scene because it's like, yeah, that's probably what it would be like if you tried to kill somebody. It wouldn't go very smoothly, and it would. It, it it's like, ooh, it kind of gets under my skin. So anyway, I I do think it just has to do with that preoccupation with death. Okay. Yeah. So do do you guys think I'm weirdos yet? Like I'm a weirdo. No. Like okay. Like, no. I think Kyle's judging me over there. I do like. <laughs> He's like, I'm glad he lives in the northern part of the state. <laughs> it, a buffer zone is helpful, Jay. Right, right. I'm really not a psycho, but anyways. Um, okay, so let's move back into our top 10 all-time favorite horror movies, and I think we're at number seven, and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Walking Dead. All right, first off, I'm I'm thrilled that we haven't had any duplicates yet. So this is a – we're getting well, giving the fans lots of <laughs> recommendations here. That's right. I'm sure the duplicates will come. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, for my number seven, this is my third demon movie. And uh, looking back, I realized I have a fear of demons. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I guess it's my theological upbringing. Uh, this is a movie. Uh, I'm going to take a page out of uh, Wolfman's book and not reveal the title just yet. <laughs> this is a movie that I actually wrote about in one of my uh, PhD exams. And when I went to the defense, uh, one of the teachers said, why on earth did you write about that movie? <laughs> what possible reason did you have to focus on that movie? Nice. This is a crazy film. It's the most recent film on my list. It's very disturbing. It's very uncanny. It's cool. And it scares the crap out of me. Uh, but it also fascinates me. It is the 1987 Clive Barker masterpiece, Hellraiser. Oh, interesting. Which they are unfortunately remaking, or at least that's oh. been the that's been the word for a long time now. Yeah. Uh, Hellraiser to me kind of marks the beginning of the end for 20th century horror as we start getting into things that are a little more schlocky, a little more comedic, a little more re uh, reductive. Uh, but Hellraiser. It's got so many of the creepy elements 
So in addition to uh, being fascinated with zombie movies as part of my career, one of my passions is the the haunted house. And I'm an Americanist. I study American literature, Gothic literature, and the haunted house is something really integral to American cultural history. Some of our oldest uh, stories in America are the haunted house narrative. And so Hellraiser's cool because it starts out as a haunted house because you don't really know what's going on but this there's the family the you know the single dad the the daughter they go to this creepy house she's angry this evil stepmother all these classic tropes and then you get the dead body of the evil uncle that is slowly reconstituted from blood <laughs> And that sequence, that sequence, which is not CGI, boys and girls, that sequence is so amazing with stop motion and reverse reverse footage photography and, you know, wires and, and melting wax and all that kind of stuff to create a monster that is basically a psychopath with no skin. And and that's another thing I like about Hellraiser. The The monster of Hellraiser isn't Pinhead. It's the really uh, kind of borderline incestuous, creepy uncle uh, who is who is obsessed with with all this kind of stuff. So, uh, Frank, I forgot his name. What a great name, right? Frank. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, the Cenobites are pretty damn scary, too. The Cenobites are really creepy, <laughs> and that whole body mutilation thing and, and body modification and the idea of the puzzle cube and, and all that stuff. I don't know. I, I think I think Clive Barker often lets his mythologies get away from him. And he kind of does in Hellraiser. And the, 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 the franchise has gotten increasingly bad. But that original Hellraiser is one heck of a movie. Nice. I know. See I, what I did there where I said heck? Mm, yeah, that was good. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I know that that's one of them. Um, for Dr. Shock, I've heard him say before that that movie really scared him. <laughs> And, and, and he he really loves that film, too. So good one. Good pick. Okay. What about you, uh, Wolfman? What's your uh, number seven? Well, talking about no repeats, um, we're hitting my first. And uh, and I'll actually say I, of the seven we have left at this point, I only have two that haven't been mentioned yet. So huh? <laughs> I'm going to be going through these pretty quickly. Um, okay. But my number seven, is, you know, I'm a big fan of Night of the Living Dead. I like Dawn of the Dead a great deal. I like the schlocky Return of the Living Dead and Return of the Living Dead Part 2. But this is my favorite of the Dead films. Um, it's a 1985 American horror film written and directed by George A. Romero, the third in Romero's Dead series. It is <laughs> Day of the Dead. Yes, yes. The only one that's going to make my list. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> nice. and, um, and I love this movie. And you guys have already hit on some of the best parts about it. And I've, I've mentioned that my one of my favorite kills of all time, uh, you know, from Captain Rhodes comes in this movie as well. But for me, it's really all about Bub. Uh, that's the thing. I mean, I think um, and it's not so much that he may be able to feel or whatever, but I think the best um, the best part of any zombie movie is that, you know, the this notion that the humans are really, you know, the other people you're trapped with are the most dangerous 
element right. of a good zombie movie, right? And so I think seeing Romero really take that a step further by saying, and guess what? Maybe this, maybe the zombie isn't so bad either. That's that was just an interesting addition to for me. And uh, I, you know, I'm not, I'm no scholar, so I'm, you know, Kyle can break this down a little bit better for us. But for me, this was the movie that really stuck with me most out of the franchise. Mm. Yeah, Day of the Dead changed the game in so many ways, but unfortunately it was right at the end of the the wave because Day of the Dead tanked and Return of the Living Dead took off, and so it was all comedies from then on out. But Day of the Dead has one of my the most cringeworthy moments in a zombie movie, which is almost not related, but it's when Bub shaves his skin off. Ooh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, have, I have shaving phobia, which is why I am a... <laughs> I am a bearded man, uh, and that that always just I can't watch him just cutting that gray flesh off of his yeah. face. That is so that, gross. Never watch Eli Roth's. Uh, oh, Cabin Ca- Fever. Cabin Fever, man! I know. <laughs> I've seen it. It's <laughs> oh, awesome. I love it. So, Kyle, real quick, if you could um, share your expertise with us, why I've heard a lot of people hate on Day of the Dead, and it absolutely astounds me. I cannot believe that people think that, that it's a crappy movie, and I've heard them say that. Why Why did that happen? Why do some people not like it? How can they love Dawn of the Dead and not like Day of the Dead? I don't know. I've thought about it a lot because I didn't like Day of the Dead very much until I studied it carefully. I think Day of the Dead is a more complicated movie, and it you have to think about it a little bit more. I will concede, and, and you two and the fans can disagree with me on here, of, of the Romero films, I think Day of the Dead has the worst acting. It's, it's a little more melodramatic, it's a little more stereotyped, and, and it's sometimes distracting. Mostly it's the, the other soldiers, you know, kind of like there's a, there's a yeah. Laurel and Hardy kind of buddy team in there. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know, I th- man. Dawn of the Dead's got some pretty, uh, pretty, some pretty rough performances in there as well. No way, man. They're all perfect. Oh, man. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Back off. Uh, so I, I think Day of Dead is, is less accessible and... Historically, at that time, the zombie had really saturated and people were over the zombie in a lot of ways. And so everybody loved the Dan O'Bannon movie, right, with the, with the punk rock zombie and the Send More yeah. Paramedics. And, yeah. and Return of the Living Dead is so much fun. And, you know, it's mid-80s, man. It's, it's Reagan. It's, uh, we're loving life. We don't want to have a downer. We don't want another Cold War metaphor. <laughs> So I, I think it just was kind of the wrong movie at the wrong time, and it is starting to gain traction as people go back and revisit it, oh, yeah. uh, particularly in light of fan disappointment in the recent Romeros, where that the, the 20th century trilogy really is kind of seen as, as his masterpiece, and Day of the Dead is, is usually included in that. Excellent. Thank you. That was a great explanation. I mean, I, for people out there who are haters of Day of the Dead, you're crazy. You Go watch it again. Yes, that's right. We're telling you on Horror Movie Podcast, you got to check it out again. Okay, guys, my number seven. Here it is. Um, if if you have ever wielded an axe, if you've ever like <laughs> picked up an axe and chopped into some wood, then I think this movie resonates and shakes your bones. It shakes mine, and of course, it is um. An incredible film. I, this is a horror masterpiece, and I will say this: 
I don't use that word masterpiece very lightly. I don't use it very often either. But and I and I will say something very controversial here. I think it is one of the few masterpieces in horror, and it's The Shining, nineteen eighty. And of I thought course, you were going to go with Hatchet. No, I, <laughs> I was I was hoping you were not going to go with Hatchet. No, 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 no. Come on, you guys, give me some credit. So, and then of course I'm talking about uh, Stanley Kubrick's version. Um, now. You guys, seriously, that that the hatchet scenes in this movie when he runs around with that hatchet, it freaks me out. Now I have to admit, I got to confess something. I really wanted to revisit this. I've seen it several times, but it's been a long, long time since I've last watched it. And so, um, you know, I I will say shamefully, I'm a little bit rusty on it, but I do remember like some of these scenes have really stuck with me. Um, and and Shelley Duvall, I think. A lot of people always credit Jack Nicholson with his tremendous performance and he's like such a nut job in this. But her fear and her weirdness unsettles me just about as much as he, you know, as he does, like with his with yeah. his behavior. And the other thing that's cool about this movie is it's not just like a, a, a slasher film or something. I mean, it, it's actually more than that. It has supernatural elements too. And that whole red rum thing and the kids and the, those two little kids in the hall. I mean, this movie um, is the stuff that nightmares are made of to me. Uh, yeah. what, and, uh, and I don't want to call you guys in here if, if this is on your list or whatever. But um, but for me, I mean, The, the Shining is a must-see. If you haven't seen it, it's a must-own and uh, I just think it's really an unforgettable movie. And it is one of those films, unfortunately, that I watched when I was really young. And maybe that's why it's kind of scarred me. But, I mean, it is it is in my brain. And I, I just think it's one of the greats. True masterpiece. Okay. Here, here, here. Uh, okay. Well, let's move into um, number six then. And let's hear from Dr. Walking Dead. What's your number six? All right. So, uh, because of the ending of Halloween... And, you know, Mike Myers disappearing after getting shot, whatever it is, eight, ten times. Uh, my number six movie is the only one on my list that I do not consider to be remotely supernatural. Uh, it is a movie that messes me up every time I watch it. It has been oft imitated but never replicated. It's one of the scariest movies of all time. I'm talking about Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, <laughs> <Nice>. 1974. <laughs> the just the opening of that film uh, is so terrifying, and the even the, we know it's all it's loosely based on Ed Gein, and we got that. But but the brazenness of Hooper to present that film is based on real events. Uh, <laughs> when the chronology doesn't line up at all. It's like, <laughs> I'm basing this on real events that haven't taken place yet. Uh, he had some moxie <laughs> there. But what I like about that film is it's micro low budget and it doesn't feel like it. Uh, it doesn't look like it. Um, it's got some bad acting, but for some reason you just kind of roll with it. And talk about the uncanny. There's there's elements in that film that are really, really frightening because they're 100% possible plausible, perhaps even uh, common. Uh, the, the scene when the hitchhiker just cuts his own hand with a, with a knife, with a switchblade, yes. is, is off the hook. Uh, you know, everybody <laughs> makes, makes so much about, about leather faces wearing, wearing people's faces, but I'm so much more disturbed by the fact that 
they have furniture that's built out of human body, human bones, that they have human skin lampshades. I mean, all this <laughs> stuff that is directly inspired by a real dude. That this this kind of crap goes down in our daily life. <laughs> and, and, and when you find out, like that we just did recently, less recently for the listeners, you know, there's these guys that have, have had women in their basement for a decade, uh, these, these sex slaves, and, and the depravity that people will commit against each other. That's why Texas Chainsaw Massacre freaks me out. Uh, I also mm. love it because it's one of the, the more poignant movies of the 70s, this whole subtext about the industrialization of the slaughterhouses and the displacement of the rural middle class or the lower class. And, and all this stuff about how the, the family are these horrible monsters, but they're often more sympathetic in the film than these vapid, spoiled kids uh, <laughs> that you almost want to see killed. Uh, it's also a brilliant movie because it really, uh, it really does kind of begin the final girl trope uh, that becomes so powerful in films like Halloween from four years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just can't say enough about how how awesome Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. And I think I've said this on another podcast, Jay, but to date, it is the best commentary track I've ever listened to. Uh, I learned more about filmmaking and cinema from that commentary track uh, with with Gunnar Hansen and, and Toby Hooper talking about making that movie mm-hmm. than I've than I've learned from any other commentary track. I oh I'm I'm oh. with I gotta back you on that commentary track. And they are so casual and I, it, it's just like they're just sitting around sm- smoking cigarettes drinking beer and reflecting on their film you know I, they I, are <laughs> I, I, I love that commentary track yeah I must listen for sure but anyway excellent pick i'm really happy that you picked that <laughs> all right wolfman what's your number six well my number six has been mentioned it's a 1975 american thriller from steven spielberg Based on Peter Benchley's novel of the same name, that would be Jaws. Yes. And um, I think this is a one of the great films of all time, actually, horror aside. This is just one of the great American films. I think the characters are so good. The performances are so good. The shark didn't work, but that actually worked to their advantage. Um, and I think they've made a really uh, just high-intensity high movie. Um, and I think a lot of that tension comes from the fact that, you know, they couldn't show the shark. And so they had to come up with other ideas like, uh, the, uh, floaters, uh, going down into the water that, you know, that was out of necessity. And, um, the cinematography in that particular scene and in the whole movie is so good at, um, relaying this stuff to the audience. And then that's why, you know, all of these scares work so well in the film and um, why just there's this overwhelming sense of dread throughout the film, even though it's like Kyle said, it's not the most horrific of horror movies, but um, yeah, for me, this is just one of the greats and I could not leave it off my list. And one of the, one of the great theme songs, if not the greatest. And, and that thing is so simple that I mean, it's so simple, but everybody knows it and everybody knows what it means. Yeah, first song I learned to play on the piano. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. And only. Okay, brother, that's awesome. Good, good pick. I'm, you know, I back you on that. Okay, so my number six. This is going to be more controversial than my picking Day of oh. the Dead 
You love it. Over Dawn of the Dead, okay? So I'll probably get more crap over this, but, you know, I'm, I'm dead serious. I mean, I was torn between the two, but it's um 1986, Aliens. The sequel. Ah, <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, like um, you know, I was really torn, you guys. I'm like, okay, it's gotta be alien or aliens. One of those has to be in there. And to be honest, when it came down to it, I enjoy aliens more. Now I know it's more of a sci-fi action horror. I mean, it's definitely more action horror, and that's not typically my thing. Okay, so I'll admit that up front. But I, I tell you what what really did it for me. I think what bugs me, and you guys are going to think this is so nitpicky, but in Alien, the first one, 1979, there's a scene where um, alien, the alien is in the, um, the shaft, right? And when, when one of the characters, I won't say who it is, when one of the characters encounters that alien, the guy in the suit kind of just like, the alien throws out his hands to the side, kind of like a boo, you know, like a scare you move. And it means that the alien's going to grab the guy, but you can tell that he just went like boo with his hands and then they stopped the shot. That kills it for me. That, that really, and I'm not saying it ruined the movie, but that, <laughs> sure, hope not. <laughs> that bugs me so bad that that shot is in there. If they would have just edited that, I mean, it would have been a nearly perfect film. So I do love the first alien. It's much more realistic. Um, of course the chest burst scene is incredible, but I'm, I know I'm not reviewing that one. That's not what I picked. I picked aliens. And the reason why I, I actually prefer it because I like how there are more aliens. I think the suspense is ramped up and it's even better for me. And I know that it gets into some kind of actiony, almost unbelievable stuff at the end, but there's a, there's a battle (laughs) between two ticked off females that is incredible to me and I just love it. And it has like, I mean, there's some really gross. I mean, the first movie's gross, but this has some really gross, gross stuff in it. And I guess the, uh, the biggest downfall in this movie is the newt character that kind of bugs me. But I think that newt goes to, to this It helps carry out this theme, this maternal theme that's through the alien films. And I think it fleshes it out really nicely and it helps establish that, um, Sigourney Weaver's character uh, she's also she's a hardened she can hang with the men and still be a warrior but she also has a motherly side to her as well and and that's also reflected in in the mother alien and so um but anyway I, I don't want to spend too much time on it but but aliens is one of my all-time favorite films and it's definitely number six in this countdown wow I hate to tell you this Jay but you're wrong <laughs> Yeah, I agree. You're wrong. I, I like it because it. of Bill, Bill, Bill Paxton and the air shaft scene are the two reasons I would agree with you. But Alien for me is way better. Okay. But you know what? That's cool. Fair Jay, enough. You, you can have your, your opinions. <laughs> uh, I gotcha. I knew no, I'd get crap on that. I knew, I knew it. But um, yeah, I got to stick to it because Aliens is my fave. Okay. Just stick to your guns. You got it, brother. So, so Dr. Walking Dead, then what's your number five? All right, so this is going to shock you, Jay. <laughs> okay. Hope you're sitting down. I am. Number five on my list is the only zombie movie on my list. Wow. <laughs> it's it's Dawn of the Dead, 1978. <gasps> oh, my like, goodness. How is that not your number one? <laughs> how uh, is that not your favorite horror movie? I would have bet this podcast that it was on, that was your number one. I would have. I know. I knew you thought it was, too. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. 
Uh, I love Dawn of the Dead a lot. Uh, it's my favorite zombie movie, as I've said repeatedly. Um, but but the thing is, honestly, my favorite stuff in that film is not the horror stuff. And so that's why it's a, it's not on the top. It's not in the top four for me as far as horror goes. There's some great horror. There's some great zombies. There's some great tension. There's some great suspense. There's some there's some decent gore. It's it's not the over the top stuff. Uh, there's a lot of sympathy uh, where you feel terror because of your sympathy for the characters. But what I love about Dawn of the Dead is the extensive lengths uh, Romero takes to tell the story of these four survivors. And one of the reasons I like it is one of the reasons other people don't. It's long. It's a really long movie, and it gets mm -hmm. a little boring because it would be boring to be stuck in this <laughs> shopping mall uh, <laughs> playing with useless money and wearing whatever you want and eating whatever you want. And I, and I love the bleakness of that film. Uh, one of my favorite subgenres is apocalypse narrative and post-apocalyptic narratives. And very few movies capture the kind of hollow futility of survival as well as Dawn of the Dead. Because there's two great montages of, of the film. The first is, this is so freaking awesome. We're in a shopping mall and we can have whatever we want and take whatever we want and do whatever we want. And there's a happy music and it's frenetic and it's fun. And then later in the film, there's another montage where they're just wandering around, bored, unsatisfied, unfulfilled. And one of the most <laughs> haunting images of Dawn of the Dead has nothing to do with zombies. It's a slow zoom, pullback zoom of, of the, the couple in bed. And, you know, yes. And they're just, they're just alone. They're together, but they're not together. There's no love between them, even though she's pregnant and even though he pretended to propose, it's just bleak and devastating. Oh, yes. and the ending of that film, which is a revision from Romero's original screenplay, is supposed to be one of hope, and I find it devastatingly hopeless. I do too, and that's why it's number five on my list. And and Kyle, I gotta I gotta give you um your due credit here. We we've talked about this before on other podcasts, and and I said something somewhat ignorant which I'll admit, but um, I was saying, you know, people say it's a, it's supposed to be this great commentary on consumerism and, and all that stuff. And I, and I, I thought it was pretty shallow in its depths of that. But, but I tell you what I did. I rewatched it just recently, actually just this past week. Um, and <laughs> call me dumb. You're probably going to really be thinking <laughs> I'm stupid for this, but always before I would look at the, that consumerist commentary as being the zombies themselves wandering in around the mall. And it's like, okay, Romero saying that we're like mindless zombies, uh, you know, walking around our malls shopping or whatever. But no, I actually realized at least to me that this time, the most critical um, commentary was of the survivalists themselves. And exactly what you described when they first get in there. I mean, all of society is falling apart. People are dying and, and, and this awful stuff is happening in the world outside and they're all excited about being in the mall, finding these products and they even still revel over the money that they find, actual right. currency. And, um, you know, I'm just like, wow, okay, 
I got to give Kyle was right. There's more to <laughs> there's more to this than I w- had originally given it credit for. And so I got to give you props there. Just just get used to saying that. Jim. OK, <laughs> you got it, brother. OK, so um, number five, let's go to Wolfman. Josh, what's your number five? Well, my number five was just mentioned. So now I only have uh, one original <laughs> one left. But no, this is well, not just sorry. This is uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Um, the 1980 psychological horror film, and um, it's great. I think this is one of the greatest horror films ever made. Um, again, like the Jaws, I think it's one of the greatest films ever made. And um, I think it's kind of the scariest movie on my list. Probably, <laughs> I, I realize that maybe that's sad as I look over my list, but I think of the ones. I mean, Jay kind of described it well when he said it was nightmarish. I mean, the whole movie is like a nightmare, and um. And yeah, this is probably the scariest movie um, Josh, on my you, entire list. Why are you trying to copy off my list? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I only have one original film left on my list at this point, and I know for sure no one else will say it. So, and that's because the horror fans will think it's ridiculous that I chose it. But um, yeah, anyway, there's not much more that can be said about The Shining other than Jay. If you are gonna rewatch it. I would also recommend double featuring that with the documentary Room 237. Oh, I have um, not seen that yet. You guys I've heard have bad got, things about No, that I've too. heard it's brilliant. I heard I, I really want to see that. Well, I mean, it's not. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it depends on what you're expecting. Um, it, basically, all it is is it's, uh, it's kind of a tribute to uh, film scholarship, to to conspiracy theorists, to film fandom, um, and to film critics. And so basically what it just does is it gives five different people give you their conspiracy theory on what the shining really means. And so it is a weird construction for a documentary. There's no talking heads. Um, but it's really fun way to think about the shining and it will totally change your viewing experience. So, um, yeah, totally fun. Interesting. Um, but anyway, yeah, the shining number five. Wonderful. Okay. Here's my number five. I don't believe this has been said yet, although we have mentioned it, of course. And it is uh, 1982 John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, one of the great... Uh, the Thing and um, and The Shining, I think, are the two greatest horror films of the 1980s. Um, this this movie, I mean, what can we say that hasn't already been said? But those, those practical effects, the special effects in that movie are... N- are like, well, you've never seen it before is the thing. And and here's what's right. really interesting. We talked about earlier about how, the, you know, the unnatural is scary, but still the familiar. And here's the thing about this. <laughs> the thing monsters, or the thing monster itself and the, the various transformations, they are both unnatural, but also unfamiliar. And it, And it's still, even though your mind can't really wrap around what you're seeing half the time it is so (laughs) freaking scary and um there's that scene i I just want to talk about one scene in this there's a character and his name escapes me right now and i'm sorry it's been a it's been about a year since i've watched this but he goes out and he's like kneeling in the snow i believe and then you see that he has a crazy shaped hand 
Yeah. Yep. And then he screams this this blood curdling scream, and that that kind of like that 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 did something to my psyche when I first saw that. It really affected me. And so every time and I he see looks that, right at you, basically, yeah, he looks toward camera, and it yeah. stays with me, and it gives me cold chills up and down my spine right now. And um, and anyway. A tremendous movie. I love the paranoia in this. It's got a great story. I mean, that's one of the most important things for me is a story. And and the paranoia element works. The the body snatching element is incredible. I can't say enough great things. Um, the thing, 1982. It's my number five. Okay, guys. So let's move into our next uh, question. And this one's a real simple question. Uh, Wolfman Josh, how do you feel about gore? Well, this is another one where it depends on the movie for me. I'm kind of a latecomer in my appreciation for gore, and I'm not someone who necessarily seeks out something because it's sick or twisted like a lot of our horror podcasting friends do. <laughs> and this is cheesy, um, but I think having kids and gaining appreci- appreciation for like the sanctity of life has actually changed me a bit as well. Um, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not judging anyone else when I say this, but films like Toolbox Murders or Martyrs or... Uh, stuff like that. They're just a little bit too sadistic for me to enjoy, frankly. Um, you know, give me something like Zodiac and I'm much more happy. So um, it actually wasn't until I got into zombie movies that I was able to kind of acclimatize to gore and start to appreciate it as a cinema- thematic and like tonal device. But now I appreciate it for sure. And um, when it's used well, as, we, as I said before, like strengthening the film, adding, you know, terror poignancy to a character's death. And even when I can laugh at it, like if it's gross out, funny, like Slither, Planet Terror, that kind of stuff, um, I have gained an appreciation for it. But um, yeah, I have a lot of respect for a filmmaker who can get a scare across without the gore. Films like Jaws, like we talked about, or even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the horror is done so well that the audience actually feels as though they've experienced far more gore than they really have. I think that's pretty impressive. Mm. Nice. Very good. Okay, what about you, Dr. Walking Dead? Uh, Yeah, I'll echo that a little bit. I think that gore can be handled artfully. I think it can be done very well. Uh, I'm just kind of thinking, I went to that, you know, that Body Works exhibit that's kind of around the country where they... I could have done that. (laughs) Where they... uh, they take corpses and they, and they blast them out and, and kind of dissect them and show you the different body parts. And so there is something aesthetically beautiful about about biological forms and functions. And gore that's done really well and that drives the plot can be something where you look at it and you are repulsed. You are – because it's the abject, right? It, it, it terrifies you because that's you, your potential death. And it horrifies you because it's disgusting and gross and sick. But on the other hand, you kind of go, oh, my gosh, look at the intricacies of the human body and all the organs and, and how frail we are and, and, you know, and how easy it really is to, to be killed. And so I, I think it can work very effectively. Um, where I don't like gore and where I kind of draw the line is where it is cruel. Uh, I actually prefer it when it's excessive. <laughs> Like, like, uh, you know, brain dead where it's a, just strap on a lawnmower and go for it because then it becomes, uh, you can kind of step away from it a little bit, mm-hmm. but for some reason, uh, and I don't really mind <laughs> necessarily seeing a body ri- ripped limb from limb or, or a decapitation or some blood squirting, but I really don't like, uh, particularly mutilation of genitalia. 
that that just is too much for me. The idea that we're gonna we're gonna juxtapose death with life and, and kind of cross a line into a very uncomfortable, um, disgusting, arousing moment. Well said. And and so that kind of stuff really freaks me out. And um, I am okay with simulated gore, but I don't like seeing real gore. And I'll, I'll bring this movie up probably again later, but one of the most disturbing films, this is the one I mentioned earlier, the film I wish I hadn't watched, mm-hmm. is uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, yeah. It's uh, rough. <laughs> which is a really rough movie. And the, the violence against animals is real. It's real, yeah. Uh, the mutilation of animals is actual footage. But the, the the violence against humans is so amazingly realistic that the director was actually charged with murder uh, and had to present the actors at his trial to prove that he hadn't killed them. And, you know, this is pre this is not CGI. But right. there's there's some stuff in there where the gore is no longer thematic. It's not narrative. It's not fun. It's just really, really upsetting. <laughs> yeah. And I don't like that. Boy, I'm with you on that. Absolutely. That, yeah, that Cannibal Holocaust movie. I remember the first time I saw that. And you saw it more than once. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that, that is the, (laughs) that's actually the only time I've seen it. I've only seen it once, but, but when I saw that, when I shut it off, I remember there was just this, just, there's just this darkness inside of me. It just felt black. And, um, yeah, the, one of the animal scenes, the one that really stuck with me the most, the one that bothered me is they, there's a, they hack up this this tortoise, this really big turtle. Right, yeah. And, that's what I was talking about. And I mean it is um <laughs> it's heartbreaking, I'll be honest. I mean, and because it is real, I it's just it's very upsetting. And yeah, that that's a movie that you don't forget for sure. No. So okay. Well, taking into account everything that Kyle just said, because I really do agree with <laughs> what he just said. I almost always love gore. This might surprise people, but um, for me, usually the more the better. And I'm serious about that because for me, if it's convincing, then it makes the movie scarier to me because it adds realism and it adds intensity. It ramps it up. And so I'm all for it, especially if it's done well or if it's convincing, you know. But um, I don't absolutely have to see gore. But I will say this, I will confess that I usually feel like something was missing when I see a horror film that doesn't have any in it. So that's my mm-hmm. feelings. Okay, so you guys, like like many other well-defined, well-established genres, <laughs> horror is, it, it has tons of conventions, tons of cliches by now. It, it's basically a variation on a theme. I mean, there are really only a couple of different uh, premises or whatever. And, and it's kind of the same thing over and over again. Very simple stories. And so since the genre is relatively simplistic and, and repetitive, how do you think um, it maintains its appeal, at least for you? I mean, I guess we can't speak for the fans, but just do you ever get bored with the genre and, and does it maintain its appeal? What, mm-hmm. a, what about you, Kyle? Mm. Yeah, Again, genres are weird because on the one hand, if we don't get the repetition, if we don't get the expectation, then we feel cheated. 
Absolutely. So you just said it, right? If there's not gore in a horror movie, you're like, what the, what the heck happened? Yeah. Right. And, and when I teach genre, I say, how would you feel about a Western movie that doesn't have any horses or pistols? <laughs> And the, and the students are like, well, that'd be a really bad Western. <laughs> right. So, yes, on the one hand, you have to have conventions. That's what makes it a genre film. We're not talking about a drama that could be anything to anybody, right? Horror means there's a contract. If I'm going to a horror film, I want certain things, right? But if, it's, if you see the same exact thing over and over and over and over... And it becomes a cliche and it becomes a, a subject of parody, right? But if every time the black guy is the first one to die, you're like, ugh, right. I get it. If every time the virginal one girl is the only one to survive, you know, if, if there's those moments that are just going to get dry and stale and, and then you're in parody country. So a good filmmaker, a good genre filmmaker has to walk the line. Give the audience what they want, but give them something they don't know they want. And then they'll come back and they'll see what you've got to offer. Yeah. So you're saying, you know, have the familiar conventions, but also spice it up with a little bit of newness as well. Yeah, you got you to give us something that we're not expecting. And so you see that over the arc of Romero's films, where each time he tweaks the mythology, he develops a little bit, bit he adds something you haven't seen. Um, less effectively with the with the last two films, mm-hmm. um, and, and we saw that with the vampire. Unfortunately, the the tweak was to make them the protagonists and to make them sexy and love stories and bleh, all that stuff. But <laughs> you know, Dracula, one vampire versus the world. I am Legend, one man versus a world of vampire. Nice. You, you got to tweak things. You got to adjust things. Otherwise, it does get yeah. stale. Okay, great job. Um, what about you, Wolfman? I think what Kyle said at the end there really resonates with me. Um, you know, I'm most attracted to films that do something we've never seen before, but I don't know. I'm going to sound stupid when, <laughs> because of this question, but um, basically, I mean, to me, yeah, genre films have their own appeal. I don't mind the cliches, actually, if they're well executed. Um, and I, you know, kind of along with what Kyle said, I think that repetitiveness is kind of the point of genre. It's why people become fans of a genre. They know what they're getting and they are happy to watch, you know, these small variations on the same structure. And to some extent, all storytelling is a variation on the same basic structure, right? I mean, you were talking about the uh, man versus self and man versus nature. If you're familiar with the hero's journey, um, you know, these basic literary conflicts are kind of the stuff all stories are made of. Um, most stories follow a basic three to five act structure. So for me, I'm really happy about a film that seems to break out of the box, but honestly, most don't. And that's fine with me too. And as long as a film is well constructed, if the dialogue's good, if the cinematography is good, if the filmmakers and actors create tension, I think it can be enjoyable. And with horror, it might be the scares or the gore or the underlying themes that I'm attracted to. But, you know, that works for me, too. And the problem is when those conventions or cliches are combined with a bad script or bad acting. You know, to me, that's Michael Bay to get out of the horror genre for a minute. I mean, I think his films look great. (laughs) They look great. 
You're, I mean, you like Michael Bay. I heard you. I heard you on movie streamcast. <laughs> uh, guilt, guilty pleasure. Come on, come on. <laughs> but 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 he does action really well. His films look really good, and the uninspired storylines don't bug me. But his films often fall apart because then you have to add in this trite dialogue or bad acting to the mix. Like Pearl Harbor, three fourths of the element of that film uh. have the makings of an amazing movie, but the other one quarter of the elements makes it nearly unwatchable. Mm. And so many, many, many horror movies are guilty of this as well. And that's when I really, when it starts to really wear on an audience and that's when I kind of check out, um, you know, it's, it's not about the conventions. I don't mind it as long as they do it well. Yeah. yeah I agree to that. And sometimes a, a filmmaker doesn't understand the meaning behind a convention or a cliche. And that's another layer too. Like these things are done for a reason. And if the filmmaker doesn't get that, if he's just a diehard and you know horror fan and he doesn't understand the genre, then you see problems there as well. <laughs> this is very random and weird, but um, <laughs> but uh, I'll just throw it out there. I don't know why, because we're on a horror movie podcast. Uh, we were just talking about gore and we talked about abjection. All of a sudden, my nose started gushing blood everywhere, like lots. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the oh. weirdest thing so uh, sorry to share overshare there but no i think i think it's important i think it's important we know that <laughs> that that's happened to me a couple of times last time was when i was sleeping on a native american burial ground so yikes yeah. yikes <laughs> i know well i was just talking about how horror affects me and so you know i don't know but it's it's hilarious because i never get nosebleeds so this is pretty weird you guys okay anyway as far as conventions with me it's more about the feeling um, that it gives the audience and and I think it's all about that that high of feeling scared and getting the thrill and I think it's a little bit like a drug and so I really think that that's essentially why people typically don't get bored or they don't I don't know their bored meter doesn't go off or whatever because you pay the price of admission and and that price is not just monetary but it's also putting up with the same setup and the same conventions and for, for paying that price or watching the same conventions, then you're expecting to take the ride and get the thrills out of it. Right. Um, but I guess if I watch like all horror and nothing else, like I've talked about before, then I do start kind of missing the types of conflicts and conventions that are found in other genres. So in that sense, I do get a little bit bored, but you know, sometimes as we've discussed earlier, I need to take a break from the darkness. And so it's really not about, you know, the same, the convention isn't what bothers me it's kind of the darker themes that get to me so it's not a boredom from that but anyway i think blah 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 well, <laughs> sorry my nosebleed is distracting my, my uh, speech as it, as it <laughs> go, go ahead kyle sorry i think the hardcore fans are going to disagree because the hardcore fans want the repetition they they want to they want to see it they want to know it's coming they want to joy in that moment um, I think for the more casual viewer, the repetition gets boring. And, and my, my support for that is most of these uh, formulaic series or serials, their um, franchises, the, the viewership drops off steadily. Um, and, and as they see a sequel and find the sequel to be pretty much the same movie as the previous one, you're going to lose people. But the, right. the, the diehards are going to stick through it, and they're actually going to revel in that. And so my, my best example of this is a non-horror movie, but it's The Hangover. <laughs> uh, Hangover was okay. It was funny, whatever. I was furious with Hangover 2. 
I'm like, it's the same movie. Yeah, right. All the same beats. It's the same script. I know exactly what's going to happen because I saw the first one. And so I didn't like it. Uh, but but there are things you want to see. There are things well, you want to see different. And to continue that, on the third movie, they kind of broke from the way they'd been doing. You know, they broke from their convention and all the fans hated the third one. Right. I mean, so that's the, kind the, of interesting. The fans want the pattern. Uh, everybody else wants the variation. Yeah. Fans are willing to forgive that stuff if and only if all of the genre elements you're expecting are delivered. Right. Yeah, and and you know what you said is absolutely right, Doctor Walking Dead, and I I have to agree because um Bill Shetty, who is probably the biggest horror fan that I know, like for real, <laughs> I do not know anybody who who eat drinks and sleeps and lives and breathes it more than he does. He loves the same simple story. His favorite is Slasher in the Woods. If you if you made, I bet if you made like a hundred Slasher in the Woods films that were you know quality or whatever by Slasher terms. He would just love every single one of them and never get bored. So he loves the simple story. He loves those conventions. So I do have to agree with what you said. Absolutely. Okay. Well, you guys ready for our next recommendation segment? Yes. Okay. Here we go. This is going to be from Wolfman Josh. (laughs) Josh. What I love most about that is I can hear, I can tell that's you, your voice is hilarious. <laughs> it's 17 of my voices, Jack. <laughs> that's amazing. So my, my, uh, my segment's called Destroy All Monsters. This is a, a void section, I guess. Um, I'm watching the world's worst monster movies, so you don't have to. Nice. So tonight <laughs> I'm telling you to avoid 1974's Son of Dracula. Now, this film features the great Peter Sellers as Abraham Van Helsing, which sounds awesome, Uh. (laughs) but (laughs) that's about the last thing that's awesome in this movie. Everything else about it is the absolute pits. So um, the main protagonist of this film is the son of Dracula himself, Count Dow. He's played by Harry Nilsson, the musician. If any of you don't know who he is, you can check out the documentary, Who is Harry Nilsson? Um, (laughs) But after the death of... uh, Dracula, right? Count Dow comes home to take things over and he's met by Dracula's right-hand man played by the producer of the film, which is never a good thing. <laughs> we have <laughs> Merlin the Magician. Yes, Merlin <laughs> the Magician is in this film and he's played by Ringo Starr of the Beatles. Wow. Oh, man. And it is bad. And the makeup is bad. The costumes are bad. The performance is atrocious. And so <laughs> anyway, Merlin and Frankenstein want Dow to take over the operations of Dracula, but Dow himself isn't interested. He wants to start a rock band and he falls in love with a human and wants to actually become human himself. So I'm going to spoil this film because you should never see it. Um, Peter Sellers as Van Helsing pulls out the count's fangs, rendering him human, I guess. And then he is free to live with his girlfriend and play in his Band. His band, by the way, includes members of The Who, Led Zeppelin, uh, the horn section of the Rolling Stones. So it's like, see, it's Keith Moon, John Bonham, Peter Frampton, and it totally sucks. Like, this is a terrible, 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 terrible film. It's kind of like, it's a, it's just one of those hippie films. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like what would have right. happened if The Lord of the Rings had been done by the Beatles when they, you know, when they were trying to get that film made. It's just, it's unbearable. Dude. Is it a, 
I'm I'm calling you out, Josh. You're making this up. This movie <laughs> not. does not exist. <laughs> it does. There is no way that could happen. Is it, it a so bad it's good kind of movie? Is it no. something you could watch with your friends and I make fun of it? I know it sounds like it is. I know it sounds like it might be that, but it's really just unwatchable. It's like it's got this pseudo hippie intellectual theology stuff going on. It's just so unbearable to me. Unless you are a classic rock completist and a big fan of like the Bee Gees, Sgt. Pepper, Lonely Hearts Club Band movie, <laughs> then maybe check it out. <laughs> Wow. But otherwise, this is a point five and an avoid. Wow. Nice. A point five. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is hilarious. Now, you realize, Josh, that you're going to have to rate other movies that are really bad. And so this one is the bottom of the barrel. You're not going to be seriously one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Well, well, IMDb says that it's rated PG. And it describes it as a comedy horror musical. That sounds oh. awful. Yeah. Well, there you go. No, well, they nailed it. <laughs> if they would have added a trippy, then trippy to that description, that would have been the icing on the cake. It's so bad. Oh. Just imagine just imagine Ringo Starr is a Merlin, and you already know all you need to know. Yeah, there you go. But Ringo Starr as a caveman, on the other hand, is great. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, sweet. Thanks for that. I recommend, well, avoid segment actually you're welcome <laughs> all right you guys well speaking of conventions i just want to know what are your favorite horror subgenres? we'll start with you kyle ah uh, <laughs> you came to me uh-huh. uh obviously i there's a special place in my heart for the zombie movie um and it's it's part of a of the the way i got into it was not an interest in zombies necessarily, but a fascination with the siege narrative. Yes. yes. And, and, I, and I think we can kind of call the siege narrative a subgenre, and it's almost always horror. Uh, and it goes back to, in my research, one of the earliest examples of this is actually the birds. Nice. Uh, just this this idea of being stuck. And of course, we could say, really, it goes back to the Middle Ages when you're literally being sieged uh, <laughs> in, in your castle. But I like the siege narrative, <clears throat> whether it's apocalyptic or not, but the idea of being stuck in one location, often with uh, a variety of different people uh, and, and the conflicts that arise from those, those misalignments, and then this idea of the threat from without – but also, there's a certain allure of a MacGyverism that you can make your your uh, mm-hmm. the place where you're you're defending. You can make it defensible and habitable. Yeah, totally. And <clears throat> so I keep coming back to I Am Legend because it's one of my favorite uh, horror novels of all time. I'm not a particular fan of any of the adaptations, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but but I love I Am Legend with this idea of this guy who is smart and ingenious and able to withstand this this relentless onslaught in a variety of different ways. So <clears throat> The Birds is great. I Am Legend is great. Night of the Living Dead is great. And it didn't make my top ten, which is probably surprising to a lot of people, because I think the film is brilliant because of its legacy more than for itself. Right. But but the siege narrative part of it, I think, really resonates and really is effective. The the boarding up of the windows and and the the sounds coming through the walls and all that kind of stuff. 
And, and we continue to see variations of this theme, so much so that there's clearly something pervasive in our psyche. Yes. That is, we love our house, but do we really want to be stuck in our house? You know? <laughs> and, and that's what I love about Shaun of the Dead, is they love that tavern. They love the Winchester. <laughs> but is it really the place they want to get stuck uh, <laughs> during a, a zombie apocalypse? So uh, there's just a, a smattering of examples. There's a whole bunch of others, oh, and yeah. it, it shows up in TV shows. Uh, there's you know there's a lot. There's good. There's bad. There's horror. There's sci-fi. I like the siege narrative. Oh, amen, brother. You you just said one of my all-time favorite things. I am nuts about that. I I used to call them until I met you. I used to call them hold-up movies because people would hole up in a certain yeah, place. Yeah. But yeah. you're exactly right. Siege narrative is amazing. Like 30 Days of Night is why I like that so much. The Mist, I really yeah, like. The Mist is really good, actually. Yes. And, and, and by the way, listeners, if you're going to watch The Mist, I know this is probably against people's grain, but watch the black and white version if you can, mm. because it actually works better mm. as a black and white film. Um, so I highly recommend that. Uh, Tremors, uh, you mentioned The Birds. I mean, I used to have, I have this huge list somewhere of all the siege narratives and man, I'm nuts about that. So I'm with There's you. A ton. There's a ton of them. Perfect storm. This kind of feels like that to me. Mm. Yeah, it really does. Perfect storm. You know, the shining we already mentioned. Um, I really like the space ones. So, so like event horizon or, or these where you're stuck on a spaceship and you really are, <laughs> you really are stuck. Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. And that, that's what was kind of interesting about the relic, which I reviewed earlier yeah, tonight is um, you know, it was kind of like the the inverse of that. <laughs> the people the people were stuck inside with the monster, and I think that's yeah. interesting. What's that called, Kyle? Uh, I don't know. That's that's a you put me on the spot, but yeah, <laughs> the, uh, you know, because the thing is that way, and and uh, yes, I, I think that's another great one. The 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 captivity near. I don't know. I got nothing, but but I think that that's another <laughs> one worth looking at. Yeah, so I'm with you, and my list of uh, you know favorite horror subgenres is definitely the siege narrative, um, especially the beastly freak siege movie, which they're often hand <laughs> in hand. I love beastly freaks that I talked about already, and um, probably my favorite actually, and I get a lot of crap over this is the um, I refer to it as uh, the perishing situation movies or the survival horror movies. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, I'm, you love these things, man. I'm so nuts about it. Yeah. I could watch them. Oh, I mean, I could watch those for the rest of my life, and those only. Seriously. And um, what did you call it? You called it. You used to call it situational horror, right? Yeah, I call it situational horror. I call it the the perishing situation, like where. And and here's the thing, listeners. Wait for it. Wait for it. I love it because. The Throw out some examples of this so uh, people know what you're talking about. Yeah, so they'll send me hate mails, what you mean. But um, <laughs> I, I love when people are stuck in a situation that isn't immediately life-threatening, but the longer they're stuck there, mm -hmm. the more dangerous it becomes. And um, so that would be Frozen, which I do consider a horror film. Um, open Water is that way. Open Water 2, Adrift is that way. Um, buried, which I don't... That That's a... That's a real borderline. I don't necessarily consider that a horror film. That's kind of a thriller in my book. But, but yeah, I mean, movies where people are stuck in a situation where if they don't get out, then they are doomed. 
and I love that. And then another one I love is um, subgenre is of course zombies, which is where I get my name, Jay of the Dead. And also, I I'm actually quite fond of slasher movies, especially eighty slashers. So that's me. What about you, Wolfman? Well, everything's already been said by you guys or by me, probably. But I did write down a few movies um, that I was thinking about when you mentioned subgenres. You said 80 slashers, definitely. I like anything like Bill Shetty with a cabin in the woods. That's right up my alley. Yes. Um, I like anything in an American neighborhood. Like that really appeals to me for some reason, like Halloween. Or even if it isn't that scary, like Gremlins or the Burbs or something like that. I just love that all like the American neighborhood. Did- Location. Did, did you go nuts over the um the opening of the remake of Dawn of the Dead? Yes, absolutely. That that's big, that's red. Killer. Um, yeah, I, I love it. Monster movies, vampires and werewolves, particularly. As I said, there aren't too many good werewolf movies, but um, yeah, there's so many good vampire movies. I think out there from foreign films, like Thirst is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, Let the right one in, of course. <laughs> yeah. I like indie vampire films. Stakeland um, is such a fun movie. Yes. Um, Shadow of the Vampire I've already mentioned. I even like just the big budget, glossy Hollywood vampire movies like Interview with a Vampire. Um, well, Zombies. Priest. Priest is not exactly my my speed, but just I wondering. like the I like the idea of Priest. Just wondering. Okay. Um, zombie movies definitely i mentioned day of the dead night of the living dead return of the living dead those are probably my my favorites um anything post-apocalyptic or siege narrative like you guys said is right up my alley i love giallos i've mentioned kind of they're those are the black love proto slasher italian whodunits and torso is one of my absolute favorites the bird with the crystal plumage black belly of the tarantula people (laughs) should check out yeah they're great titles Nice. Um, actually, any murder mysteries, and that could range from Rear Window to Scream. Um, I also like comedy horror, like Tremors, Under the Creeps, Evil Dead Two, They Live. You know, it can be campy, schlocky. I love all that stuff. I like stuff that's so bad it's good, like the stuff in Sleepaway Camp, that kind of thing. So uh, the stuff. <laughs> yeah, I love the stuff. Man, um, you don't discriminate, do you? No, I love well. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I, you know, I kind of said the only stuff I really don't like is really sadistic stuff, and yeah. I don't love supernatural stuff only because it scares me so much. <laughs> right. But that's that's my that's I could go on for days and days, but that's the main that's the main thing. That's hilarious. So basically awesome. everything. Basically <laughs> everything. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, um, let's talk about th- this. Is gonna this question right here is gonna ensure that I am everybody's least favorite person on this podcast. But um, I want to talk about found footage horror movies and um, and whether you think they seem more real. And if so, does that add to the scare factor? And so I'm going to just start off right off the bat. I love found footage, you guys. I absolutely love them. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sorry. I'm not. That's I, okay, man. I have to be one of the world's biggest found footage fans and ensure you know i agree i think the shaky cam stuff is annoying i do not like the shaky camera movements um but it does not make me sick or queasy like it does for a lot of people but for me found footage does create an extra air of reality because it appears to be it looks like documentary film footage and that adds scariness to me and uh, and i think it's always um problematic that, that once everything is really nuts and then the camera person is in severe mortal danger and he's in, he or she is in high crisis mode that 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 that, that person would cont- you know just 
drop the camera. We all know that. They definitely drop the camera. <laughs> and and like that's one of the biggest criticism. And I, I do agree. I, I can concede that that is problematic, sure. But you know what? I don't care. Because what I love is how um, in found footage films, they only choose to reveal certain information. And they briefly flash that, like something in the back and the corners of the screen. I love the way that they use the corners of the screen. Because a lot of times, if you're not watching carefully, you'll miss like some of the scariest stuff because it kind of flashes by quickly. And so you definitely have to watch for that. And that's why I don't think that the subtitled found footage horror films work as well because you do have to read. And so instead of watching all the corners of the screen, sometimes you miss too much. But having said that, you guys, I still love Wreck. You know, don't get me wrong because that's an 8.5 for me. That's a buy it. But um, but it could have been a much better experience for me if I didn't have to read, you know, the dialogue. But um. I'll also admit that um, there are some terrible found footage horror movies. I even like a lot of those, but, um, you know, because I just have a good time watching them, except for one, which I'll call out right here on the podcast. Tell you guys. Lost never. Coast Apes. Oh, well, that one, make, <laughs> that one makes me pretty mad. But, you know, I'd watch Lost Co- Coast Tapes every day of the week for the next year if um if I didn't have to watch 2011 Skew. That is the most terrible example of a found footage film I have ever seen. And I know that people are going to watch it now to see why, but but trust me, don't. So anyway, what what are your thoughts on found footage, Wolfman? Well, I think found footage when it's done well is really effective. I actually love the conceit, but I think it's usually bad. So that's the, that's just the problem I have with it. Going back to the Blair Witch Project, I, like you mentioned, Wreck, Quarantine, I love even... Um, those work because they take place in the context of a mockumentary. So then you don't have as much of the shaky cam stuff because it's supposed to be a documentary. And so the organization, the presentation are actually easier to kind of get behind and it's more watchable for me. Um, but you know, like even the last exorcism or lost coast tapes, those are also kind of in that vein. But the problem for me is um, just so often you know, the product doesn't live up to that awesome conceit of found footage. I mean, the idea, the very idea of that is terrifying, actually. You know, that these people are dead and this, there's this leftover footage and you're going to, like, see <laughs> what happened to them. That's that's actually really scary just in and of itself. But, yes, um, yes. But, you know, just so much of it is so poorly done. Troll Hunter, I love. But it's ridiculous in its execution as a mockumentary because the crew members – and the director, you know, the sound girl, they're in the frame the entire time. If this is a real documentary, you get your footage back, you'd be like, what the hell? None of these shots are usable. <laughs> the crew's in every shot. What are you doing? <laughs> You're the worst EP of all time. Um, so <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that gets distracting for me. Maybe that's maybe that's just being picky. But I, I just think that the vast majority are worse than the good examples I've given. I mean, even some of the best directors like Brian De Palma, George Romero, they've made atrocious found footage films. So I just think it's a subgenre oh. that's difficult. It's difficult to pull off well. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. I love to see it w- when it's done well, but I just think it's rarely done well. Okay. All right. What about you, Kyle? Well, I was going to give my example of a good found footage film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I agree that found footage films can work if they're done correctly. And because I'm too intellectual for my own good, I, I, I can roll with them Either if there's no editing 
So it's like they really just found this camera and they're just playing it. Or if there's some kind of frame narrative that explains who found the footage and why they edited it and why they added what they added or cut what they cut. So so when it when it has a plausibility factor, I'm, I'm much more uh, open to it. Uh, because sometimes you'll have films where there'll be like cuts that are clearly multiple cameras, but there's only supposed to be one camera and <laughs> I just can't tolerate that kind of stuff. Yes. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why I, 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 I do come back to Blair Witch. I think Blair Witch was great, not just because it was one of the first, if not the first, actually. I, um, I'd say Cannibal Holocaust was probably the first. Oh, is that really set up that way? You're right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm trying to block that movie out, Jay. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> so... <laughs> But yeah, I think it works really effectively. And then much to Josh's disagreement, uh, I think <laughs> Dyer of the Dead is really pretty effective uh, because Dyer of the Dead does have the ex- explanation that she's been holed up in a safe room editing footage and putting stuff together and that when she films somebody else in a, in a you know, when there's a cross cut, they're both holding cameras. And so there's, there is a, a re- realism to that, which I think is clever and somewhat refreshing and i think it's it's probably the most unsung of the romero films mm. uh that that i would be happy to defend on a special podcast in the future but kyle <laughs> i i just gotta say right now there is one thing in that film that bugs me like more it's so bad when she says in there a line to something like we've added music to scare you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes me nuts. That totally ruins it for me because well, it's like, is this found footage or not? Like, but you know, see, on the other hand, it then explains the presence of a soundtrack where other found footage movies do it with no explanation. Which is here's the, well, okay. <laughs> which is also here's, bad. Here's the other thing about the Blair Witch Project, though. They really shot like the actors actually shot it, right? And so it feels real, like with with um. Is Diary of the Dead? Is that the name of the movie? Yes, it is. Diary of the Dead does not look in any way, shape, or form like it was shot by those kids. It looks like the most rehearsed, staged blocking. It looks like it was shot by a cinematographer on a glide cam. Like it doesn't have well, you're, you're any feeling of authenticity. You, you know that. <laughs> well, I just think the Blair Witch Project feels so much more visceral. Like it feels like those guys really made the movie because those guys really made the movie. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm not disputing that one. It's yeah. definitely the best of the of the bunch. I just think when you can do that and when it can feel like the cinematographer isn't holding the camera, then it's I don't know, to me that really makes the films. And so then if you have the excuse at least of that it's a documentary, then you have a reason why the shots are all nice and clean, like the you know, the last exorcism, for instance. My, by the way, oh so much to say here. You guys are just getting me so excited about film footage, but like I agree with what you said. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I forget who said it, but but in Cloverfield, yeah, the 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 actor uh, T.J. Miller, the guy who plays HUD, yeah, um, he actually did shoot a great deal of of Cloverfield, right? Real, and they said he did a great job. So I agree with that. That does add, you know lend to the the realist the realism and the verisimilitude of it. Um, but yeah, some of the great greatest ones for me, I would say, you guys are of course Wreck, and then of course. Um, paranormal activity, the first one, I, I actually, yeah. I know people make fun of me for this, but I don't care about that. The night I reviewed that for the newspaper I was writing for. And that night when I went home, I uh, had serious trouble getting to sleep and I had, I, I slept with the hall light on and I know my wife thought I was nuts, but anyway, <laughs> um, 
So that's there you cool. Go. That's fine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's effective. There's a bunch of ridiculous stuff in it, but it's it is super effective. Well, but the best found footage film I've ever seen, probably, unfortunately, it was not a horror film, but I would highly recommend it because it's kind of a sci-fi thriller. It's called Chronicle from 2012. You guys should yeah, check that's that out. Yeah, not, that's not bad. I will I will back you up on that one. Mm-hmm. Jake, can you name more than five good found footage films? More than five good ones or yeah. tolerable ones? Like Good ones. Good ones. Man, that's that's going to be hard. Like I said, I, I never said there were lots of good ones. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, there, are, there are lots of almost good ones, though. I mean, <laughs> that's true. Like The Bay, for example. Like the, the Bay is almost good. But it's not, though. But it's not, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, I have so much fun with that convention. And, you know, I just, I really enjoy myself. Yeah. Even if, for the most part, if they're bad. So, okay. Well, they're so. not going away anytime soon. My friend, uh, Eric, he wrote an awesome, like, throwback to, like, a 70s, like, 80s, more like an 80s, I guess, slasher film. It's got, like, all this religious stuff built into it. It's super, super good. Um, and he went and he pitched it to Lionsgate, and they just came back and they said, uh, can you take out these gay characters and make them lesbians and can you make it a found can you make it a found footage movie those were their only notes <laughs> wow that's yeah that's crazy <laughs> go Lionsgate. oh my goodness yep. well you know i like Lionsgate even more now i have to say <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just i have two more reasons to like Lionsgate. okay so guys let's move into our um number four number three and number two top 10 all-time favorite movies um so number four dr walking dead what is your number four okay we've talked about my four i've talked about it repeatedly and i agree that's one of the one of the best horror movies ever made it's one of the best science fiction movies ever made and in a lot of ways the movie should not work not for the very least that there isn't a single female character in the movie and that it all takes place in the same location but I love the thing. Uh, it's creepy. <laughs> it's uh, fascinating. <clears throat> you want to know more. You want to know where the spaceship came from. You want to know about the alien. And yeah. one thing that a lot of films fail on is they insist on explaining everything. Because they, you got to know what the backstory is, what the motivation is, where things come from, what's the resolution. And The Thing is a potentially frustrating movie because you don't know anything. <laughs> and by the end of the film, you still don't know anything. Uh, and I love that level of high-octane ambiguity. Uh, <laughs> and and the, the ending of the movie is awesome, and a lot of people hate it, and I love it. Um, so we've, ta- we've all talked about this one in, in various forms. Uh, but I did want to come back to what Jay said about how, how the monster is effective because it's so unnatural. Uh, and I'd just like to, to kind of tweak that. What makes it really, really disturbing is the unnatural, uh, the unnatural nuss integrating the familiar and the recognizable. Mm. So the, I, I mentioned the great chest mouth scene, which is just, we, uh, it's just great. Yes. But uh, the best example of what I'm talking about is when that head falls off and the spider legs shoot out of the side of the skull <laughs> and the, the inverted head 
scurries across the floor. <laughs> I mean, that is such a premier example to me of the uncanny. Do you, you know what a head is? You know what a spider is? But you don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and that movie scares me. The other thing is, and and I this is a a rule that I live by. You know you're watching a serious horror film when they kill the dog. Yes. If if the dog doesn't make it, it's bad news. And the thing kills, what, eight dogs, 12 dogs? <laughs> they can't kill the dogs fast enough. Oh, it's hilarious. And then my coda is Kurt Russell's greatest role of all time. Yes. Mm. He yeah. is. Agreed. He is top notch in that film, and I mean that both seriously and 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 as just as a fan. Yeah, I can't think yeah. of anything he did better than that for sure. That's awesome. And by the way, speaking of chest mouth scenes, <laughs> if that interests you, Kyle, there's a there's kind of a comedy horror called Blood Diner from 1987. That's oh. a, it's a tribute to uh, Blood Feast, and there's like a a serious chest mouth type scene in that one too. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's a, a secret passion of mine. Is the, yeah, right. <laughs> the chest mouth. <laughs> okay, so what do you got, Wolfman Josh, for your number four? Well, it's been mentioned, but my number four is the 1960 classic directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It is Psycho, starring Anthony Perkins in one of the greatest performances in cinema history, in my opinion. I think his depiction of a psychopath is incredible. Uh, it's so good and so creepy and. So, and the weird thing is, is you feel for him so much. It's such an, you know, it imbues so much empathy, the audience, I think. So, um, yeah, I don't know what else to say that hasn't been said a million times by you guys already, but Psycho is absolutely one of my all-time favorite films. It's something I can watch over and over and over again. Hitchcock is one of my favorite directors, and um, this is one of his greatest films, if not his greatest, so... I got a question for you on that one. Do you consider Psycho to be the first slasher film? Um, I know there's pe some people say Peeping Tom, but um, I think so. It's at least a proto slasher. Yeah. What What about you, Kyle? You have a take on that? Uh, yeah. I, I really a Peeping Tom really is the first kind of cinematic depiction of the serial killer from from more or less his perspective. But there's something about Psycho that that elevates it in a way and, and lays a lot of the groundwork for the, the subgenre that would follow. But I wouldn't call any of them uh, a full-fledged slasher. Definitely right. uh, developmental. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just looking it up here, technically, Peeping Tom came out earlier in the year. So it was May and Psycho was September. Yeah, they were made, they were made of, around the same time. Of 1960. But, yeah. but of course, Psycho is based on a pre-existing novel, whereas I don't think Peeping Tom is. Mm. So the, the story of Psycho is, is first. Interesting. Very good. Okay, well, great pick. Uh, boy, you got some classy picks in there, Wolfman. <laughs> yeah, well, you, Wolfman's the refined I know. Uh, <laughs> filmmaker and... Wait till, we, wait till we get to the rest of my list. You guys <laughs> say that. <laughs> He's going to have critters down for one. Yeah, number one. Nice. Um, okay, my number four, you guys, is, uh, oh man, I love this. 28 Days Later from 2002. Mm. It is definitely one of my all-time favorite films, period. I love this movie so much. And you know what, Kyle? Since we've talked about this a long time ago on the Considering the Sequels podcast, um. You know, I have come to, I have finally worked it out in my head about the whole 
zombie thing, infected thing. And here, here's, here's where I'm, I think I'm going to fall on this now. Now that we're in this new world that we're in, <laughs> I, I, do, I do acknowledge that there's the infected and then there's the the actual living dead, you know. But um, I just think that in my opinion that this zombie identification tag, the word zombie, ha- has come to also mean it has an additional meaning to include those who are infected. But I will I will say, technically, twenty eight days later would be an infected film. Do you have any comments? Uh, you're you're defending yourself against an argument that I'm not going to make. <laughs> Okay. All right. So you agree or what? Yeah. Well, I agree because we're getting to the point now where it's a semantic debate. And I've, I've had a lot of those with people because everyone loves to ask me, is blank a zombie movie? Right. That's right. The, questions. <laughs> right. the more and more I've been, had to think about it and defend my position at conferences and what have you, I think the defining feature of the zombie is not undeath or living death. I think the defining feature of the zombie is lack of agency. And if that's the definition that everyone can more or less agree on, because it's a definition that unites the voodoo movies with the Romero movies, then 28 days later is a zombie movie because the infected have, they lose their control, their thought process, their agency, their ability to whatever. So I'm, I'm now perfectly fine with calling 28 days later a zombie movie. Uh, But it's not on my list because I don't think it's enough of a horror movie. Oh my goodness. (laughs) <laughs> you okay you gotta you gotta tell me well why don't you think it's enough of a horror movie if you could <laughs> i'm sorry i gotta know you no, that's fine i just i went back and forth on it i think it's uh i think it's i think it's more science fiction speculative science fiction i think it's uh limited apocalyptic i think it has certain horrific elements uh, i think the horror is there i think the terror is there But because of the tonality, and this is where my argument gets less focused, but the tonality to me doesn't read horror. Oh, my. And I just got to kind of put it at that subjective point. Oh, man. Everybody's wrong sometimes, Kyle. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. This is what's (laughs) ironic. The only reason I'm making a big deal out of this, because you are always respectful of my opinions. And and, um, the only reason I'm making a big deal is because to me, 28 Days Later is actually a horror film within a horror film. So that's hilarious to me that you you don't consider it a horror film at all. But um and I'm not going to spoil anything here. But there's the whole zombie element, right? So that's that's a horror film. But even scarier than that is what ends up happening when they reach the the army barracks, you know, of oh, the yeah. people and especially with with Okay, and you guys know what I'm talking about. Which is about. a classic zombie conceit. Like, the whole structure is classic zombie movie stuff. Right, but but to me, like, a lot of people complain about I've heard people say, yeah, it lose, it's a great film, and then it loses its way once they get there to that army barracks place. But, man, for me, that's when it gets really serious because it's like, oh, my goodness, there's horror inside, there's horror outside. They cannot yeah. escape. And so, like, it's really powerful. But, like, there are some things in here that are absolutely... Um, it, just as upsetting and as horrific as they could get. For example, um, and this is a very, very mild spoiler. I'm sure most people have seen it, but there, there's a scene where a girl's father, um, who's her only protector, by the way, he, he is infected and he turns right before her eyes. And so not only does she see that transformation in him, he becomes ravenous and, and insane, 
but also she sees him killed and i just think that that is like a, a tragic oh yeah i mean i mean there there's that and i think these i think these zombies are seriously some of the scariest zombies because i i know you're a you're a slow shambling zombie man but man i'm i'm a fast zombie man cuz they scare me to death and these guys are like zombies on steroids which i know a lot of people think that's cheesy but for me it's like i i don't know if i can get away from these guys and and they are so malicious. It's not just like they slowly eat your brain, but they rip you apart maliciously, like a pack of beasts. And Resident I, Evil is is zombie on steroids cheesy. Twenty eight days later right. is awesome. <laughs> right. Exactly. But see, th- this goes back to where we we disagree on on the uh, the 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 animals, right? Be- and I, I the the twenty eight days later zombies to me are more in line with a tiger. Or you know something something <laughs> biological. So, just in my defense, because I think this is one of the best zombie movies. I'm with you. I love Twenty Eight Days Later. I think it's a brilliant movie. Okay. But but I don't consider Jaws a horror film. I don't consider Silence of the Lambs a horror film. Me neither. Uh, I you know I I just there's there's something about my kind of subjective inarticulate understanding of the genre <laughs> that we talked about at the very beginning that would exclude this film from my list, even though I absolutely agree that it's a brilliant film and I respect your choice. Oh, thank you. And you are not inarticulate, you are not inarticulate <laughs> whatsoever, by the way. Well, uh, with so, this, so, I am. So that's, it's just that's, not, because it, it isn't. That's why. I'll, I'll tell you the most surprising thing about this podcast episode that we recorded is that um the fact that, that even we, the three of us, we consider ourselves like to, to be uh, thought-provoking thinkers of the cinema that even we um, find ourselves in this discussion of what's horror and what's not. And I think that's hilarious. Even mm. So I think that's really cool, though. But anyway, tw- um, my number four is 28 Days Later, 2002. And thanks, Kyle, for your feedback. Um, what about number three, Josh? What's yours? Okay, here's where I lose all credibility with <laughs> the audience. The tagline of my number three film is, ready? Yeah. Sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, never die. It's fun being a vampire. <laughs> it's The Lost Boys, yeah. a 1987 vampire film starring Jason Patrick, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, Kiefer Sutherland, others. Um, basically, two young yuppie kids move to uh, a small beach town that is apparently the murder capital of the world. All these people are turning up dead and missing and Jason Patrick is the older brother. Corey Haim is the younger brother. And Jason Patrick falls for this young waif of a beach babe. And he pursues her, but is confronted by a teenage kind of punk rock and roll biker gang led by Kiefer Sutherland. And they turn out to be a group of vampires. And they're the ones who are presumably wreaking havoc on this small beach town. And I just love this movie so much. I mean, part of it is <laughs> the age I was when I first saw it. I will, I will admit to that, but... It, it still holds up. I've watched it several times and it is good. Now, I know, Jason, you didn't like Attack the Block, which I think you're insane. I, I never said I didn't like it, but it was okay. just average. You compared it to Goonies in a negative way. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And uh, in my opinion, Goonies is one of the great, great cinematic masterpieces. So, uh, oh, my this goodness. Is, this is uh, Goonies plus vampires, basically, right? So, 
Anyway, in the, in the film, Jason Patrick eventually succumbs and he's on his way into turning into a bloodsucker when his little brother has to come to his rescue with some local preteen vampire slayers. And then the movie ramps into fun and scares and action from there. And it's just so great. Um, also, the opening song of the film, Cry Little Sister, is just this chilling chorus of children's voices chanting in kind of a Pink Floyd the Wall way to this Bible verse, Thou Shall Not Kill. And as the camera flies over the dark ocean toward the lit up boardwalk of this beach town, and it's just chilling and beautiful. And it also yeah. makes it one of my favorite horror soundtracks as well. But number three, the lost boys. <laughs> I agree with you on that opening. It is a great opening and it is, it is a fun movie. It is lots well, of fun. That's a really good vampire movie. I think. Yeah. It's you, one of the better ones. Yeah. I'm surprised it's so high on your list, but the thing is a lot of people, love that movie so i don't think you'll get too much you know flack for that one all right but we'll yeah. See. yeah all right so uh <laughs> listeners let wolfman know though if you want to give him flack. don't no. bother i'm don't just bother. i'm just kidding <laughs> he doesn't care he will not change keep his it mind. to yourself yeah. <laughs> okay uh dr walking dead what's your number three uh my number three if, if i've been keeping score correctly this is the first film that has appeared on all three of our lists uh but i have ranked it highest I don't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> just, I'm being competitive. Right. Uh, it's The Shining. Uh, the Shining is a great movie. It's it's a really great movie, and it perplexes me to this day why Stephen King hates it so much. Yeah. Uh, is that in the documentary at all, Josh? Uh, you know what you'll realize is that it may have to do with all of this personal stuff that Kubrick brought to the film. I mean, oh, okay. You know, he really, you know, according to the film, he really brought a ton of himself to this movie. And uh, that may have been why King hates it so much. Well, I love so much about it. Um, the opening sequence where they're playing the, the Te Deum and they're just driving up the canyon and the, the, then it goes into this abstract noise as the crawl goes up across the screen. I mean, yeah. you're you're 30 seconds into the movie and you're terrified and you don't even know why. <laughs> uh, and I love the novel. I do love the novel. I don't consider this much of an adaptation, which is fine because I can love them both. Right? They're, the the novel's great. The the yeah. movie's great for different reasons. That's right. Um, but it is one of these the term we haven't come up with yet it's it's the the inverted siege narrative they're trapped <laughs> and the monsters within <laughs> and uh, the ghosts are scary ghosts are scary these ghosts are particularly scary but the idea that the most terrifying person in a child's world is his father <laughs> is haunting yeah because because you know what that's not fiction folks unfortunately yeah. there are there are dads who get drunk and beat their kids and that at the core of the shining is what this is about it's it's about a, a an alcoholic father who who beats his family and tries to escalates to the point where he tries to murder him but the ghost stuff to me the the bartender is terrifying uh and just yeah. the cold demeanor of him saying you know what do you want to drink? And then the butler with the, don't you think you need to correct them? I corrected my daughters. Yeah. I mean, good grief. <laughs> and uh, because no, neither of you mentioned it, I will. The, the, the naked woman is so disturbing yeah. because, mm -hmm. again, I mentioned this before, getting the audience aroused and then turning that arousal to revulsion 
is a mean, dirty trick. <laughs> and and that sequence is terrifying. Uh, trivia, my wife and I went to, uh, we spent our honeymoon on Mount Hood so we could stay at the hotel where the exteriors of The Shining were shot. <laughs> Yikes. For that primary reason. Oh, my gosh. Uh, although we did not get the right room, tragically. <laughs> That's we some were... horror cred right there, brother. That is seriously the scariest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, we our first date, we watched Scream. Uh, and so we've, we've had a nice history of uh, horror pop culture references throughout our, our relationship. Uh-huh. Okay, so is there a maze at the at the hotel or not? No, there's no maze. Uh, the interior of the hotel is very small, uh, very cramped. Uh, it's like a lodge. So it's it's such a suspension of disbelief. But but it is a cool location and it's very remote and and a little disconcerting. Uh, yeah. Now um. <laughs> I, it's funny, as you mentioned, all these scenes, like they've com- taken on completely new context to me, having seen that documentary. So maybe I will say to people, if you don't want to have all these ideas in your head maybe and you just love The Shining so much, maybe don't watch Room 237, <laughs> the documentary, because that's all I can think about now when you're talking about this stuff. It's like, well, that obviously they did that. That means this and this means that. And... Dr. Rocking Dad, I got to pay a high compliment to you. I've heard a lot of people review The Shining, but that was the best I've ever heard. Oh, thanks, man. That was excellent. So <laughs> I'm kind of obsessed with it. So it is so good. Yeah. Well, well thanks for doing it. Great. Justice. Okay. Uh, so I think I'm to my number three and you guys, uh, probably a lot of people aren't going to believe that this is so high because it's such a new movie, but this is from 2005. It is one of the great beastly freaks flicks and it's called the descent. Man, you guys. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I love it. It's a real mm. it's a real simple story. These bunch of girls, they go um into this, they go caving, okay? And they end up going in a different um series of caves that are unexplored. And I'm telling you, in the beginning, like something happens where it's kind of dangerous for them in the cave. One of them gets injured. And then they kind of, there's like a cave in and they're kind of stuck. And that's not a spoiler because it's just, it's early in the film. And even up to that point, I'm scared to death. I'm like, this is so scary because it's very claustrophobic. It's very dark down in these caves. And you got these girls and like, even to that point, it's scary. But then there are these subterranean freak creatures down there that are, that are really genuinely scary. And man, it's a good film. I... This is another one of those where I could put it on and watch it just back to back over and over again. Um, I remember the the first time I watched it, I was blown away. I've watched it several times since, and I I like it more with each viewing. It's it's one of those rare exceptions. You know, sometimes you get tired of a film or it it wears off, but I think it's scary, and I, and I think it's an amazing horror film. So props to Neil Marshall and and who's the director. And by the way, The Descent Part Two is actually it's one of those direct continuations and I would highly recommend that as well and I think it's you know just about as good actually some people say it's even better so I'd recommend them both the descent it's my number three hmm. okay yeah good good call I, I was thinking about how in some ways it's a it's a reverse the thing because it's all women mm-hmm. but they're still trapped together and and they mistrust each other and all that kind of stuff going on but but you're right. That movie scares me because of the claustrophobia more than the monsters. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's I mean, a freak. It's a freaky film. I mean, if you're stuck underground and you have to deal with monsters and it's dark, I mean, that's just unthinkable. It's like, how bad could it? Po- how much worse could it possibly suck <laughs> than that? That that's the. Uh, so anyway, okay, let's hear your number two, Wolfman. What do you got? Well, this could have been my number one. It's been mentioned by both of you, um, and it is John Carpenter's The Thing, 1982 classic. It was a remake and almost ruined Carpenter's career at the time, but it's now seen as one of the great cult classics, sci-fi horror films, and it's amazing um, for all the reasons we've said it. To me, it's about the paranoia. Um, I love the location. I just love the f- whole feel of you know that that world that they're in. Um, it's just so immersive, and I love. It, Kyle mentioned this that it doesn't explain it to you. You know, like you have no idea what's going on for like the first 20 minutes. And I watched this with somebody who saw it for the first time recently. Mm. And that was such a pleasure to watch it with somebody who had no idea what was happening. They're like, what's with the dog? And like, you know, like Uh-oh. it was just, it was just an amazing experience um, to watch it with, to watch it with that person. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's just one of the great, the great films. I'm a huge fan of the body snatcher sub genre. This takes it to the next level. And I, I love everything about it. Number two, unsung performance by Wilford Brimley. Yes. Oh, not by me. I think he's he's amazing, and and I would agree. This is one of Kurt Russell's absolute best things he's ever been in. And I'm a huge Kurt Russell fan too. So, for sure, that's, uh, saying something, I guess. Yeah, people, if you don't own the thing, go out and buy it right now. I mean, for real, it's one of those. Yeah, I'm looking at the DVD case <laughs> across <laughs> yeah. the room. Absolutely. Okay. So what's your number two, Dr. Walking Dead? Uh, so I brought it up. I'll bring it up again. This movie's <laughs> from... Sorry, it's getting late. Uh, this movie is from 1979. I think it's one of the scariest movies ever made. I think it's brilliant. I think it's well shot. I think it's well designed. I think it's well acted. It's uh, really Scott's Alien. <laughs> nice. The first... And only, I mean, (laughs) the original, uh, alien is, it was one of these movies that I just, I want to teach it all the time. I want to write about it. I haven't done either yet. I have this great idea of writing a paper that argues alien is an adaptation of Dracula. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, but, but it's such an effective movie because it is sci-fi initially and it's in that classic late 70s you know post star wars sci-fi it's a giant ship deep space high production values for the time and then suddenly it takes a left turn (laughs) and goes deep into a a dark primordial uh cat and mouse horror zone which is which is part you know this kind of reverse siege stuck inside with the monster it's part uh, it's it's part of this final girl narrative. It's part slasher film. It's part of all these other things, yeah. and and the the creature, the big reveal with his hands outstretched to the camera it doesn't bother me. It, it's actually one of the most memorable iconic shots. I understand. <laughs> I understand the criticism with it, but but this relentless picking off of the survivors one at a time, and and the the great twisted kind of ending. Fantastic. Uh, little trivia, personal trivia. Well, secondary trivia. Uh, I have a friend of mine who was a, a film major, and he said when he was in college, he actually uh, watched 
alien frame by frame in in one of those editing machines. What are they called, Josh? Just uh, <laughs> I'm blanking right now. So he All watched right. it on a reel to reel editor editing machine, and he watched it shot by shot. And he said that you, the alien, is in all kinds of shots. It's in the background. It's in the computer panel. It's hidden in the shadows. Uh, it's peppered throughout that film. Oh, and I think wow. I think that kind of detail is great. It's also a really great film to teach Freud because there's so much uh, male and female sexual imagery uh, that I would love to teach it now that I have tenure. <laughs> nice. Alien, nineteen seventy nine. Hardly seems like it was that old. <laughs> Steamback, by the way, is what that was. Ah, thank you. Great pick that, and that holds up for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and way better, way better than the next one. Oh my goodness, you guys! <laughs> See, I already felt bad about it when I picked Aliens over the first one, and now I feel even worse. But well, that's that's the goal of tonight's broadcast. The the, uh, the younger, I I suspect that the younger listeners will have my back on that, maybe. <laughs> but um, by the way, uh, Kyle, how did you feel about Prometheus? Is it an abomination? No, I liked it. Okay. Um, it's not a horror movie, right? Right, I it's, agree with that. It's a sci- it's a high concept sci-fi movie that kind of got a little out of control. Right. But it's it's pretty. It's uh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> so I think it's better on its own than as part of this franchise personally, but Yeah, I agree. That's why they marketed it that way. Mhm. Totally. Okay, so moving right along, guys, I got my number 2 here and uh, no one has said it and I'm so happy cuz awesome. this, this is my movie right here and by the way it is the greatest siege narrative of all of all time i i actually left it out on purpose um when we were talking about that it's 1983 cujo you and your animals man <laughs> i'm telling you this is this is one this is like perhaps the king beastly freak movie to me because i'll give you that you've got a mom she's stuck in a car with her little boy who has, who has, um, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it. Is it asthma problems, you guys? Yeah, I think it's so. Yeah, yeah. Can't yeah. Remember. And, and so she, there's this ticking clock. Not only is she stranded inside this car with this rabid giant St. Bernard outside trying to eat her and her little son, but she's also got this ticking clock going on with her son who has asthma and he's really struggling and it's very hot and she also gets injured along the way. And so it is an it is a true horror film. It it's like terror and horror on on the deepest levels. And especially when you you know once you become a parent cuz I always loved this film. I always thought it was powerful and scary and now that I'm a parent it is like it is 10 times stronger to me. Um it, it's my favorite Stephen King film or Stephen King adaptation and I just think it's incredible. Cujo is a 10. You guys should buy it. It's my number 2. Wow. I'll get. I'll give you that it's a horror film. Yes, sir. But but is, is every movie on your list either zombies or or animals? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. In fact, my number one is a slasher. But anyway, uh, okay. So we're gonna um, <laughs> move right on here, and um, I'm I'm happy to announce that we've got our final recommendation segment, and this is Doctor Walking Dead. So here we go. The Dead Zone. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> uh, nice. That's my that's my daughter. 
Good. She did a good job. <laughs> She's going to be the next scream queen. She's going to be a star. Her name is Sydney. <laughs> you got all kinds of horror cred tonight. Well, I, mean, I told you it was the first movie we watched, so we had to name our daughter Sydney. I love it. Yeah. Could have gone all right. Them. <laughs> yeah. So I have been writing for the last few weeks. I've been writing an encyclopedia entry for the forthcoming Encyclopedia of Zombies on the micro genre, the Nazi zombie movie. There have not been many. And there is apparently a reason why there have not been that many. Hmm. Uh, For the most part, they are bad movies. Hmm. I've only seen one, but I enjoy it quite a bit. I'm going to focus on one film, but since there's so few in the subgenre, I thought I'd give a quick overview. Uh, The first reanimated Nazis appear in 1977 in a Ken Viederhorn film called Shockwaves. And the, the coolest thing about Shockwaves is that uh, Peter Cushing's in it. And he's actually, well, he's Peter Cushing. He's not bad. But basically, this is uh, a film in which the, the Nazis are super soldiers that have been sunk to the bottom of the ocean. And Cushing stayed behind to watch over them to make sure they never came back. And, of course, they come back and they kill people. Uh, this is followed in 81 by Zombie Lake by uh, Gene Rollin. And if you know Gene Rollin's films, it's like all his other movies. It's, it's exploitive. Uh, there's lots of uh, uh, naked women skinny <laughs> dipping in the zombie lake. And the, the Nazi soldiers come up out of the lake and they kill everybody. But it's, uh, it, it's a little weird. They are zombies, but they bite people on the neck and drink their blood, mm. which sounds like something else. <laughs> right. <laughs> 82, there's Treasure of the Living Dead, also known as Oasis of the Zombies. It's horrible. Uh, <laughs> it's Nazis in northern Africa who have somehow become mummies because they're in Africa or something, and they protect the gold that they had stolen in the war. Yeah, it's weird. So one of the and that's I've it. Never there's, heard of any of these. There's three in the 20th century, and then they disappeared. Well, in 2006, they were resurrected, as it were. Uh, John Ross and John Whitney made a film called Horrors of War. And it's, it's pretty low budget, but I think it's pretty well made. And, and it's a period piece about a special forces team that goes in to uh, bust up this Project Osiris where the Nazis are trying to make super soldiers and it goes horribly wrong. And they, and they start making these monsters. What's cool about it is it's not just Nazi zombies. It's Nazi werewolves and Nazi like Jekyll and Hyde monsters and it's, it's low budget, but if you just roll with it, it's kind of fun. Nice. Uh, I'm going to skip the one I'm going to talk about in detail and come back to it. Uh, in 2011 there, we got a war of the dead. Uh, war of the dead is another period piece in Finland where they're trying to find super soldiers. It's really similar (laughs) to the, Horrors of War. It's unremarkable. I really can't remember it, and I watched it last week. <laughs> and then uh, probably the most successful one is Dead Snow, uh, which is from Tommy Wirkula, a Norwegian film. Nice. It's a little bit more of a comedy 
kind of a, a horror comedy. Um, I'm I'm writing a I'm finishing up a paper on Dead Snow that I'm going to hopefully publish soon because I think it's a really really great movie. Uh, and one of the reasons one of the reasons I like it is I did a lot of research into Norwegian folklore, and they're not zombies. They're these things called draugar, mm. uh, which fans of of uh, one of these video games uh, uses draugar as, as their enemies. Mm. But they're basically Norwegian mummies that they burial mounds and they kill people. So Dead Snow is definitely uh, uh, one to check out. I know I'm not necessarily recommending that as my segment but i would i would call dead snow probably a seven oh. and, and i i would say buy it i think dead snow is great oh yeah it's an 8.5 for me 8.5 buy it dead snow yes no. seven or eight it. seven or eight it's I'd definitely eight. <laughs> it's riffing on the cabin in the woods thing it's riffing on a lot of stuff anyway so the movie i'm i'm that's actually the recommendation but not the focus uh, of all the the Nazi zombie movies, uh, Dead Snow is by far the best, by far the one that you should invest in. But I found a gem that really surprised me, and I reviewed this on Twitter, and I and I gave it a. I think I'm I'm recanting my my rating. I think I'm going to give it a higher score. It's called Outpost from 2007, directed by Steve Barker, and it's a contemporary piece uh, about a guy uh, named DC who, oh no, sorry, he's Hunt, and he hires DC and a bunch of uh, mercenaries from all over Europe to go deep into Eastern Europe to find an abandoned Nazi bunker where there is allegedly a kind of uh, weird space-time machine that could allegedly make people immortal. And so it's kind kind of a cool almost steampunk premise that that has a lot of a lot of it smacks in its efforts of hellboy uh particularly the the graphic novel with this idea of occult nazi research fused with technology and all that kind of stuff so it's a quiet movie in a lot of ways it's it's all it's an all-male cast they go to this bunker at which point it becomes a siege narrative because they go into the bunker and then they find out that they're surrounded by these long dead Nazi soldiers. <laughs> and they're sort of zombies, sort of not zombies. They can kind of, uh, this is, it's a Harry Potter term, but it's the only one I can think of. <laughs> they, they can disapparate <laughs> like, like a ghost. So the zombies can be in the woods and then the lights <laughs> go out and then suddenly they're standing right next to you and then they Ooh. disappear again and they reappear back in the woods. But there's some mm. very creepy imagery uh, the acting is not as bad as you might suspect. Uh, there's there's some really cool. They find some old, uh, you know, 35 millimeter footage of the Nazi experiments that is really chilling, because it because the Nazis did do experiments on people and killed people. So there's just enough connection with the real world that it's scary, mm. and. And the monsters, the the semi not semi zombie uh, undead monsters, are really sadistic. <laughs> so they don't eat their prey. They don't attack their prey with their teeth. They like to use uh, bayonets and empty bullet casings as weapons. And uh, you'll have to watch the movie to find out what I mean by that. <laughs> so uh, outpost, it's certainly not a buy it. 
but I think it's worth uh, worth renting or getting on Netflix. It's not on instant, so you actually have to wait for the disc to come in the mail. Uh, but but I I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, so I'm going to give it I'm going to give it a six, which mm-hmm. is actually an upgrade from the the review I gave it on Twitter. Okay. So consider Outpost for your next Nazi themed horror party. Uh. Kyle, I got one for you that may, maybe you're aware of it, but maybe not. You, you should add this to your list since you're going to be, you know, studying this in depth. There's one. It's actually, believe it or not, it's a Joel Schumacher film. It's called Blood Creek from 2009, and uh, it has some interesting zombie stuff in it. But the, mm. there, it's got the Nazi element as well, and um, and it actually has some really. Oh. Cool, it has a zombie horse in it that's incredible. Mm. Like I, I think it's awesome. But how anyway, did uh, I miss that in my research? Well, thank it, you, thank you very much. Some people, some people would argue that it's not a zombie film, but trust me, it has zombies in it. I think you'll, eat, I think you'll agree. And um, by the way, huh. significant to this year, uh, Henry Cavill, who is Superman and Man of Steel this year, he's in yeah. it. And, um, He's the star and Fassbender's in it. I mean, this is a decent cast. Oh, yeah. And it, ah, it's, a, it's a good film. Blood Creek from 2009. I think I came in at like a 6, 6.5. It's definitely a rental. So. Good. Good recommendation. I, I will check it out. <laughs> sure. Sorry. And could you could you explain to the listeners basically generally? I mean, obviously your segment's called The Dead Zone. It's, it's going to be about zombies or, or what's your... It's dis- going to be about um, zombies, vampires, ghosts, uh dead things nice dead things <laughs> that tried to kill us speaking of dead things and zombies um just while we're on the topic there is a pretty awesome comic book series called war of the undead um that has uh, an occult group of nazis trying to resurrect hitler bring his soul back from hell and turn him into a zombie and basically there's a, a an army of, of the undead of undead nazis um, that are hoping to attack the allied forces and turn the Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster, and uh, Dracula also use them to defeat the allied troops. But the classic universal monsters end up flipping and fighting the zombies. So it's it's the Wolfman, Dracula, and Frankenstein's monster versus a war uh, army of undead Nazis. It's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> See, I gotta just start emailing you guys when I do research. <laughs> yeah, let brother. you do the work for me. We'll back one to, wait of one to two months on Amazon. That's too bad. <laughs> mm. Oh, for which is that? For War of the Undead? Yeah. Huh. If you call, um, well, I'll tell you how to get it faster <laughs> after the show. <laughs> Josh has got connections. Yeah, yeah. Great recommendation, guys. So that is that's my segment: the Nazi zombie, a surprisingly. Uh, a surprisingly healthy micro genre. <laughs> I had no idea there were that many. It's I had only heard of like two, maybe tops. It's crazy. <laughs> well, it's just the perfect idea to com- combine two things that you'd want to kill as zombies and Nazis, right? Like, That's right. <laughs> so, okay, so let's move on. We're gonna we're coming close to the end. Finally, this has been epic, you guys. Um, I, the listeners are gonna love this. They love long ep- episodes. I hope they love it at least. But um, what so what are your thoughts generally on PG thirteen rated horror movies as opposed to R rated horror movies? What do you say, Kyle? Well, you know, I think if the production values are there and the scares are there, then 
I don't. I, I got no problem with it. I think that a PG movie can be just as effectively scary and frightening as an R-rated movie. Now, when we're talking about gore, like we have talked about before, if if the gore is somebody's high priority, I mean, if that's a big deal, then yeah, you're not gonna like you're not gonna like a PG horror movie. Right. Um, <clears throat> I'm very suspicious. I will say of non-R-rated zombie movies. Which is why I'm very suspicious about World War Z, which uh, at the time of this recording, I have not seen yet. Uh, but by the time of its airing, I'm sure I will have many uh, loud and obnoxious opinions about it. <laughs> I just saw it today. Actually, it was released in theaters today as we record this. And I told Kyle earlier, I actually kind of liked it. It wasn't as bad as I thought. I don't know. This. Yeah. So anyway, we'll, we'll get into that on movie podcast weekly <laughs> i'm sure but um so so you're okay with them though as long as it's good like as good production values and so forth yeah if it's if it's a good movie if it's a scary movie if it's got elements of terror and horror you know my attitude with the rating system is that it's all bullcrap anyway and it's all political and it's who you know so i pretty much discount the ratings right right away anyway okay all right. What about you, Wolfman? I just think it's whatever the story dictates. Um, there's two sides to it for me. I love the idea of a horror film that can work as PG or PG 13, because I think they're great introductions to the genre for younger audiences. Um, Watcher in the woods, monster squad, poltergeist, um, but even more sophisticated films. I think um, the sixth sense is an exceptional film. It doesn't need to be rated R. Uh, the original Haunting from 1963. As I mentioned before, it's messed up my dreams more than any contemporary gore fest has. Um, and then I think you look at more recent films like Insidious or The Ring. I mean, what are you missing in those films? Um, I don't think I don't think you miss the gore in those movies. And then, on the, of course, on the other side of the spectrum, you have Alien versus Predator, which is a travesty. So it's movie specific for me. <laughs> right. Well. Well, it's interesting because like um. I've seen copies of Jaws that were rated um, R, but I think like even on IMDb right now, it shows it as rated PG, for example. And that's interesting. And that was in, that was in a lot of our top 10 lists right there. Right. And, and then there was another one that oh, came to mind and then I lost it. So, But um, is it possible for PG-13 rated horror movies to be good and even scary? And I'd say yes. I think it's more rare. I mean, a great example of a PG-13 rated scary one that's excellent is the uninvited from 2009 and um there are others i mean i was a keeping a list somewhere but i josh named a list already i think it was really good so well the ring i mean geez that's freaked a lot of people out that's kinda, very scary for sure. oh i know i was gonna say the um the orphanage by the way this is really interesting that movie the orphanage um it's actually rated r but if you look at why it's rated r it says something like for scary images or something. I mean, there's nothing really objectionable in it as far as like, um, what's the word as far as like, you know, you know, any of the, like the sex or language or right. gore or anything, but yeah, if that's you, a terrifying movie too, by the way, it, it, it's, it's rated R for some disturbing content. And I think that's awesome to have an, to have a film like that. That doesn't have anything quote unquote objectionable, but it still gets a rated an R rating because it's like that scary and so. sinister. They were actually very similar and they were going for a PG 13 when they shot it actually. 
Yeah, but man, some of those deaths in that are, I mean, that's so upsetting. I love that film, by the yeah. way. And anyway, I mean, so so I think there is a use for PG-13 horror, though. I mean, it, you have to have some good age-appropriate horror fare for the younger fans, I think, you know. And then sometimes they're actually good, like we said. So I, I think the rating restriction can sometimes cause filmmakers to be innovative and do something creative. And I always give them a chance, but I have to admit, I do have my doubts when we go into the PG-13 movies. So, um, okay, so we all answered that, right? Sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting wappy too. I think this is our last question. All right, so guys, what do you think makes a great horror film? And let's start with Kyle. So this, this is a good question to end on because in a lot of ways it's a little bit of a recap and a summation of, of what we've been talking about and kind of an explanation of the lists that we ended up forming. Uh, I think for me, it's, it's the emotional, there has to be an emotional reaction on the part of the viewer that is almost always, uh, kind of an unwilling reaction (laughs) that, that you, you really don't kind of force yourself to have the reaction to a horror film, whether you want it there or not, it's going to be there. And so I think a good horror movie is the kind of film where someone could go in and say, you know what, horror movies are stupid, I'm not going to get scared, and halfway through the movie they're jumping out of their seat, they're freaking out. Uh, I think that that the ability of a film to take over our emotional control is something that's amazing and, and something that that people are afraid of. People are afraid of losing that control, and that's why it's so important and that's why it's so great. So I I think a great horror film, whether it's gory or not gory, whether it's horror or terror, whether it's rated R or PG, a great horror film is going to elicit a emotional response of fear, of terror, of revulsion. It's going to make you not want to sleep at night. It's going to make you leave the lights on in the hallway. It's going to make you question uh, noises in your house. It's going to make you act differently until you can shake it. And I think I think that's what's really important about horror is it forces us to confront primordial emotions that we want to keep repressed and we shouldn't repress them. Mm, very good. Well said. Yeah. Soapbox. That Finished. was that was excellent. <laughs> okay, what about you, Wolfman? I can't improve on that. That was that was well, so well put. And he's such a show off. Like, Sorry, uh, I've been been waiting for that for three and a half hours. I guess for me, that's like the second part of what my answer would hopefully be. My first, the first part is just that I think it needs to work like any other great film. You know, great characters, great story, yep. deeper meaning behind this beyond the surface level. You know, plot points, tension. And I think the scares and the thrills and the chills and the deaths that all work better if you care about the characters, if you know, and if you have a strong narrative, basically. So good filmmaking is the only thing I'd add to that. Also, a spear through Kevin Bacon's throat never hurts. Oh, right. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, for me, first and foremost, it has to be a good premise. I mean, I am I am like all story guy for real. And and I think that's why the survival movies appeal to me so much because you know without a good story foundation to build upon then it's a lot more difficult for me to experience those other factors like you know the scariness and so forth and and so of course that's not all it needs like for example in the descent my number three favorite horror film um there's that and then there's the cave from 2005 
they have nearly the same premise and the descent is just miles and miles beyond i mean it's my number three and the cave is terrible and it's basically <laughs> you know it's it's just the execution and yeah so there you go and by the way the cave i think is pg-13 and the descent is r so <laughs> there you go but but my list is a great horror film um is also realistic or at least believable and it has even if it has like supernatural elements as long as they're done well then you know i can buy it and go with it um i'd also say it I love horror films that seem like they could happen or that they have happened before somewhere. Um, if it's unsettling or creepy in some way, I mean, it doesn't have to be like, you know, jump in your seat scary, but, you know, it has to stay with you for me. I mean, I think disturbing something that like gets in your blood or under your skin, I think is a, a sign of a great horror film. Um, and I think for me, the performances have to be halfway decent. I know that acting in horror isn't really like <laughs> the the foremost strength of the genre, but um, you know, if if the acting is terrible, I, I it's so distracting for me. It it kind of ruins it. Um, I and usually I have to relate with at least one of the characters. Um, one of my favorite things about movies in general is just sitting there thinking, what would I do if I were in that situation? And I especially love to do that with horror. So I like being able to have that perspective. Um, I think a great horror film shows you terrifying things and whether it's scary images or gory scenes, or if it, it shocks you to some degree in some way. Uh, I love um, Dr. Walking Dead's description of the shining and how, you know, the scariest thing in that was that the father, the, the kid's own father was um, <laughs> turned on him. And I, I think that's yeah. very disturbing. Awesome. Um, uh, one of the great things that I think is a good hallmark of a lot of good horror films is that the characters in there, their sadness that they have or their grief in their life is only eclipsed by this newfound terror. A lot of characters and horror are, are facing like the a gigantic tragedy or loss or something that's super upsetting to them. Um, it pops into my head. The first, um, the haunting in Connecticut, that kid is um, battling cancer and then he gets haunted on top of that. And, hmm. that, and I think that's just uh, a really incredible um, thing that horror does. Uh, also, uh, a horror film usually features two kinds of characters, characters that you want to die and then at least one character that you don't want to die. Uh-huh. That's interesting. Um, a great horror to me has uneasiness throughout and it's not just saved for the very end so like um sorry i forget who said it but in the shining the opening scene was that you kyle that said in the first 30 seconds you're already (laughs) dreading it and i think that's the the hallmark of a great horror film unlike the relic which had the horror at the very end and a great horror film i think has truth in it i mean going along with the realism stuff if i see fake looking blood or artificial sounding dialogue or bad creature effect it just takes me out of the movie or even character motivations i mean a lot of a lot of horror characters are pretty um dense they do dumb things that real people would never do and i think that um that's problematic for me and and then finally i just want to say a a great horror film sticks with you and it makes you think about it for a long time and uh yeah so that's it for me anyways well said (laughs) just went on and on and on sorry about that Okay, guys, we're down to our number one, and I know people are really excited about this. We're going to give our number ones, and then we'll wrap it up for the night. So uh, who wants to go first? I'll get mine out of the way because it's been talked about. Okay. Halloween night, Haddonfield, Haddonfield, Illinois. 
1963, six-year-old Michael Myers murders his older sister by stabbing her to death with a kitchen knife. Fifteen years later, he escapes from a psychiatric hospital and returns home. That's uh, the simplicity of this movie. Halloween, my number one film, is just, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, it's long been on the top of my list, but I really struggled with whether it was going to make the top of my list this time because I thought there were other films that were maybe more a little more complex and maybe a little more interesting as films but um the simplicity with which this film operates and the level of craftsmanship for the time and for the budget uh, it's just astounding to me and the fact that it can still be so effective so many years later um yeah i just think just as, as a testament that um to the quality of of the film it's definitely stood the test of time so michael myers is one of my all-time favorite movie monsters so to speak um and uh i just think um yeah the movie is incredible i'm so glad that's number one on your list because i felt so bad i put it eight on my list i feel like i, I feel like i betrayed the the whole the whole essence of halloween because it really it really is an amazing horror film and i think you are more than justified making it number one. And, awesome. and that's solidified, by the way, that I'm going to be the horror listeners, their least favorite host on this show, because you both have Halloween in your top 10 and that's going to get me severely knocked to, you know, as it's far not as your number one. No, I assumed it had to be. No. I know. I know what your number one is, though. Or yeah. do I not? Uh, yeah, I'm sure you do. Well, <laughs> horror fans are going to love that. What are you talking? About? Yeah, but I mean, I'm serious. The Halloween fans out there. They scare me a little bit. They scare me more than the movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. But no, they're hardcore. Like my, our good friend Greg Amortis, Haddonfield Hatchet, those guys like they and, and, and Wolfman Josh, too. I got to give him put him in there. Um, they just love this movie. And by the way, I almost had the thing, but I just could not turn my back on. I know. Man. I knew I would have bet. I would have bet anything that you were going to put that number one. And um, by the way, Josh, I think for October 2014, that the you know our Halloween episode for 2014, maybe we should consider doing all the Halloween franchise. Like, oh, I'm uh, so in. I've had uh, I've heard other horror past podcasts do it, and they've done it well. But I mean, I I just think that the three of us could have a good time delving into those films, analyzing them. I would absolutely be down with that because I haven't seen them all, so I I would love to have that excuse okay and and to make it easy on ourselves because there are so many and there's a documentary that i think we should include in there maybe we can do it like a little at a time throughout next year 2014 okay so yeah we'll we'll do that then i I love it to hear that we're all willing and so listeners next our next halloween episode for 2014 is going to be all the halloween franchise that's we'll bring it to you well, you knew what mine was going to be. I think I know what yours is going to be. I have no idea what Kyle's is going to be because I would have thought Dawn of the Dead. So I'm just cu- I'm curious what. <laughs> okay. All right, Doctor Walking Dead. Uh, Wolfman Josh is right. We had no idea what yours was going to be. So let's hear it. You still don't, Jay? You haven't figured it out? Um. Uh, don't say. Just- I no no I won't I won't I, I have theories but l- let's okay. let's hear it. I'm just suspense. All right. Well, I'll give it away pretty soon. Uh, This film is my favorite horror movie of all time. It has been since I was very young. It's probably the first (laughs) horror movie I saw. I know it. I know it. I know it. It is not rated R. It is PG. Uh, It has a goony element to it. (laughs) 
That's what the I like dog, the dog does not die. In fact, there is not a single human death in the entire movie. <laughs> yet it terrifies me every time I watch it. It is 1982. It is Poltergeist. <laughs> Obstensibly directed by Toby Hooper, but really directed by Steven Spielberg, <laughs> nice. who was a, avoiding a director's guild law. Uh, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Every time I watch it, I'm in awe of it. Uh, even though the product placement, which was relatively new in the 80s, marks it and dates it it otherwise feels very contemporary uh it's very fresh it's uh, a haunted house narrative and i've been looking over my list technically i could argue that eight of my films are haunted house narratives or variations <laughs> on haunted houses and i love that idea what what continually fascinates me about poltergeist is that it turns like like with the inversion of the shining it turns the idyllic suburban home into a nightmare. It, it turns everything which should be uh, a source of comfort and trust and security into something alien and threatening and dangerous. It takes the trope of the monster in the closet and jacks it up into the most terrifying, uh, one of the most terrifying film visuals I've seen in my life. What I have taught this film, by the way, and I call it the, uh, the closet vagina. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you have all those fears uh, associated with sexuality and reproduction and de-birth rather than death, uh, rebirth. There's so much great symbolism and visual imagery. It's one of the most terrifying film scores I've ever heard, uh, which I have a theory that I can't prove, but I think the film score for Poltergeist is intentionally riffing on the score for To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, mm. I'll need a musician to, to back me up on that. <laughs> and the story I always tell when I talk about Poltergeist is when I saw it as a kid, uh, this goes back to what Jay was saying earlier. We got HBO when I was a kid, which was like, Oh, <laughs> so I was home alone in the afternoon. And because Poltergeist was PG, it was on during the day. And so I closed the curtains and I made the room really dark and I, and I got under a chair and I started watching it and it was like, Oh, it's Spielberg. Oh, it's, it's Goonies. Oh, it's all this stuff I'm familiar with. And one of the things that scares me the most in life, and we haven't talked about this is tornadoes. Mm, twisted. I don't know why, but <laughs> I'm, I'm terrified of storms. Yeah. And so when that tornado hits and that tree tries to eat the kid, it was over. I was, the lights were on, the curtains were open, and I was still terrified. <laughs> when I watched this movie recently, having kids, the movie is now 10 times more terrifying. Mm. Uh, because that film is, is about an, the impotence of parents to protect their children, even though we tell them we will. And that's what scares me about that movie, oh. even though they all survive. Wow. Wow. You just blew my mind right there. Poltergeist. <laughs> I love that pick, man. I love that pick and I love that review. That's awesome. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, you've, you've really, uh, you've really brought it home on this podcast, Kyle <laughs> Bishop. Serious. <laughs> I love horror, man. <laughs> I know you do. It's obvious. You know, speaking of product placement, I have to say this. 
since I just saw World War Z today. I got to warn you, Kyle, there is a full-blown Pepsi commercial in the middle <laughs> of, of World War Z, and uh, it is shameless and terrible, and it really upset me. But anyway, that was random. Okay. All right, Jay, what you holding out for us? Okay, number one, here it is. You ready? 1987, Harry and the Hendersons. That opening <laughs> scene is so scary. <laughs> Whatever. I'm just kidding. I'm lying, you guys. That's not it. Okay, number one film of all time for certain. And by the way, this ranks in my top 10 all-time favorite films, period. And I love all kinds of films, all kinds of genres. This still makes it in my top 10 of all time. So that's a spoiler, Josh, for you for, for our birthday episode. But anyway, it is 1974, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper's masterpiece. And I mean, yes. it is a masterpiece. This is the ultimate nightmarish uh, horror movie for me. I When you watch this movie, and here's the thing, it, it's almost beyond a documentary to me. It has a documentary feel to it, but it's almost like you're transported somehow and you're witnessing these scenes in real life play out in person. I mean, that's what happens to me when I watch this movie. It's so gritty and grimy. It appears to be so real. It's like they really shot this these events happening. The, the, first, the first kill scene is, um, I think it's the most chilling moment in all of horror history. It is my all-time favorite kill. Um, <laughs> Leatherface opens that door, bashes that dude in the head with that sledgehammer, and um, and then that music starts when he slams the door, and he's just laying there, and his heels are drumming the ground. That is horrifying. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, that really sticks with you. That's one of those scenes that, like, it stays with you for sure. And, uh, you know, the whole Leatherface thing is freaky, that's freaky and what i like about this original film is like he's not necessarily he's not like the centerpiece of the movie whereas in the sequels i think they were problematic because they started making it about him and it's really about this crazy freaking cannibal family they're they're all nuts and they're all scary and these kids just happen into this situation and they don't even know what hit them and they just get picked off one by one um, it, it chills my blood. I, I mean, every time I watch it. And and one last thing, the infamous uh, di- dinner sequence uh, when they're eating. There, there's a lot of amazing commentary, as as Kyle said. There's a lot of neat history behind that. But but moreover, that scene. I remember when I was watching it. I remember feeling something come. I don't want to say unhinged, but I remember feeling like some damage was being done to my <laughs> psyche when when they're holding their head down and yes. th- they're trying to encourage grandpa to smack her in the head. I mean, that <laughs> is so scary. Anyway, um, you guys. I, I absolutely agree. I had the same experience when after I watched that scene, it was like, well, I've crossed a, a threshold now. Right. Uh, I'm never coming back. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is something really um, disturbing on a deep level. It's just so unsettling. Anyway, um, this movie is a masterpiece. It's a horror masterpiece. Um, and then so Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1974. It's a must own. And please check it out if you have not already. Absolutely. So- so there you go. So um, for those listeners who are interested in our top 10 list, if you haven't been writing them down along the way, I'll tell you what we'll do. Um, I'm going to have a 
password protected blog post on our website where you can go just look at our list since since you've listened to the 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 episode and the password is real easy ready horror movie podcast (laughs) it's the name of the show (laughs) so i'm just gonna put it on there do it all one word horror movie podcast just type it in and you'll you'll see our list there and you know i just do that because i don't i want people to listen to the episode to hear our picks you know obviously but uh you guys i think that just about wraps up episode one of horror movie podcast we uh thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this show and so from here on out you guys will be reviewing horror films i mean i'm sure we'll do like thematic stuff where we'll talk about various themes and stuff i think the the listeners probably got a feel for our approach to horror where we're coming from i mean josh has a a really technical perspective kyle has an analytical perspective and um you know i don't know where i am but i i i, I actually i like to talk about I like to try to analyze why it's scary. <laughs> That's what I like. And so, um, you're the heart, man. You're oh, the passion. Oh, you guys are nice. <laughs> so one more time as a quick recap, horror movie podcast is a bi-weekly show with new releases every other Friday. So that means that episode two will release on Friday, November 8th. And by the way, that episode is called haunted house. And we're going to have some bonus content coming down the pike to you as well. And so the best way to make sure that you don't miss anything is to subscribe to Horror Movie Podcast and iTunes. And we have the little CD symbol for iTunes at HorrorMoviePodcast.com. So check that out and just go subscribe, please. Anyway, do you guys have any other comments about that and as far as our release schedule or recording schedule? Well, I, I've had a lot of fun. This has been a dedication of my time, but it's definitely worth it. Yeah. Josh, anything? Do you have anything to say? No, agreed. I mean, I love podcasting. If I could do it full time, that's what I would do. But, you know, life has other plans for me right now. So, you know, we'll we'll get it done. We'll get some good stuff out there for the listeners. That's right. Anyways, um, if you have suggestions or ideas, just leave us a comment in the show notes below or you could email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And, you know, just let me let us know what you think. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes if you haven't already. And by the way, if you go to our site at horrormoviepodcast.com, you'll see that we have 36 episodes already released for you. We have all 26 of the weekly horror movie podcast, which is golden content in my opinion. I'm not even there on half of those episodes, and I just I loved it too. I loved what they did with it without me even. And then Horror Metropolis, and that's where we brought in Josh. We got a guest appearance from... Dr. Walking Dead, so uh, please check those out. I want to thank uh, Fred Ingram for the use of his music. Uh, Frederick Ingram, you can find more of his music at frederickingram.com. I'll link that in the show notes for you. And um, I just want to go around to my esteemed co-host tonight and see if you have anything to say about the show or to the listeners or any plugs that you want to give. Uh, what What about you, Wolfman? I'm on Twitter at Icarus Arts. I also sometimes, as much as possible, podcast with Jason on movie podcast weekly where he recommends a horror or crime film every week for fans of the of the genre um i would recommend checking that out and uh for now that's about it okay what about you dr walking dead uh, i'm also on twitter uh, people can follow me at dr walking dead uh, i i really have been using it to do many reviews and commentary on science fiction and and horror uh, a little more science fiction lately for some reason, uh, but that's out there. Uh, I also do have my book, American Zombie Gothic. If you want to read a, a pretty critical 
uh, academic analysis of the zombie phenomenon of the 20th century. It recently was dropped in price, so you can get it on Amazon for uh, $25 or a little bit less if you want to check out more of my my writing. And uh, I hope to hear back from the listeners so we can kind of take this podcast in a direction that is desired. Yeah. And, and by the way, I got to tell you, Kyle, um, I'm going to be buying your book because I want to support you for one. But I, I had checked it out from my school library at UVU and I've been reading it and I'm, I'm genuinely impressed. It's really interesting. And I know you've told the listeners a lot that it's kind of a it's more of a an academic approach. But I tell you, it's still super entertaining. If you guys have enjoyed the podcast tonight, you're going to love this book. And I would highly recommend American Zombie Gothic. I'm going to be I'm going to be getting that from you, Kyle. So. Thanks. Just in time I, I for Christmas. Now, I, I own a copy of it as well. I need to get it autographed by the author. But Heck yeah. <laughs> Sometime we, we all need to meet. <laughs> We're going to. We, we definitely got to. You know, I've only met Josh once but I've in person, but I've known him for years. Has <laughs> <laughs> really, really only met once? We've only met once, and that was when you interviewed me for Clean Flicks. That's pretty hilarious. So we're we're going to do the zombie race together now? Is that is that right, yeah, Jason? <laughs> we got we to gotta work that in at some point. I need to get in shape, but... Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, as for me, you guys, um, my co-host Josh and I, we have a weekly show, as he said, it's called Movie Podcast Weekly, where we review at least one new film of any genre that's currently in theaters every single Monday. And by the way, when there's a big horror film that comes out, I cover that one for sure. So um, you can find it at moviepodcastweekly.com. We got tons of episodes there for you. And if you'd like more content for Halloween, Wolfman Josh and I recorded a commentary track for Cujo. We did that with our friend Andy from Movie Podcast Weekly. And so if you look at the sidebar at horrormoviepodcast.com, you'll see our Cujo commentary. And you just click on that picture and you can download it for just $1. That's it. One buck. Oh, and I also have this weird little podcast about pop culture called The Donut Show. So if that kind of thing's up your alley, you can check that out at donutshow.com. I also discuss movies a little bit on that show as well. And that's it. I just want to thank my co-hosts again for joining me. Um, the, the listeners don't know this behind the scenes stuff, but these two have been very supportive and very patient. And they really helped me a lot with getting this show together. And I appreciate them. So that's it for episode one. We thank you again for listening and join us again next time for Horror Movie Podcast. <laughs>